Hello again, friends, and welcome back to part two of 605 Super Podcast's 100th episode extravaganza, spectacular, whatever it is you may want to call it. I am your host, the great Brian Last, and let's kick things off right now with what has become a very popular recurring segment here on the show, where Fumi Saito, Japanese wrestling's leading historian, and myself look at the history of Japanese wrestling using the relationship between Giant Baba and Antonio Noki as the foundation to tell this story, or perhaps I should say all Japan and New Japan, and we are in a really crazy era for Japanese wrestling, the early 1980s, where talent is jumping back and forth, the junior heavyweights really take off, outlaw promotions spring up, and so much more. Let's go to this, a segment looking at Japanese wrestling history with Fumi Saito. I am happy today to welcome back to the Super Podcast one of our very most popular guests, and that is Japan's preeminent wrestling historian and reporter, your friend and mine, Fumi Saito. Fumi, welcome back to the Super Podcast. Hello from, yeah, hello from Tokyo. Hello from New Jersey. It's great to have you back on from Tokyo. <laughs> yes. And, you know, this series that you and I have done looking at the history of Japanese wrestling, but really focusing on the relationship between Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki has been really popular. Sure. And this is really something I was looking forward to, is getting to this period of time, the early 1980s, when sure. it is just all-out war, where whatever hostilities that were under the surface all come out, and there are talent raids, and there are scandals, and there's so much happening. And new companies, yeah. New companies popping up, new companies failing. I mean, there's so many things happening. Last time you and I spoke, we left it off talking about December 1981, the Real World Tag Team Tournament in All Japan. Terry mm-hmm. and Dory Funk against Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka. Stan Hansen surprises the wrestling world, specifically the Japanese wrestling world, coming out with Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snuka, telling everyone that he has jumped from New Japan. There had already been several jumps. Abdullah the Butcher jumped to New Japan. Dick Murdoch jumped to New Japan. Tiger Jeet Singh and Umansaki Uida jumped to all Japan. So the jumps were happening, but Stan Hansen really signaled another level when it came to these jumps, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Pretty much the biggest name. Yeah, between that, uh, you left out uh, Kim Dak, Taiga Toguchi from, you know, Taiga Chan Lee for you, I guess. Yeah. Kim Dak. From New Japan, uh, from all Japan to New Japan. And Chavo Guerrero Senior, classic, from New Japan to all Japan. Yeah. In the 70s, there were never any talent raids like this? Um, one by one, like, you know, strong Kobayashi or, you know, yeah, a f- just a few, yeah. But not like this. Not like this. What led to this? What led to this? Well, this was basically, uh, well, there was wrestling was booming, of course, but it was basically Channel 4 NTV, Nippon TV with All Japan. Yomiuri against TV Asahi, Channel 10, now Channel 5, but Channel 10, TV Asahi with Antonio Inoki, Asahi group. That's like, a, uh, it's, it's a wrestling war between Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki, all Japan against New Japan, but it was always network channel against network channel. That was big. They got big budget then, you know? See, Antonio Inoki's in New Japan always had, always had Friday night, primetime, 8 o'clock show, network. And Giant Baba had Saturday night, 8 o'clock, 
Channel 4 primetime on network. So it was network against network, a two big thing. So it was not just a wrestling company against wrestling company, but it was like a major network television against major network television and big, huge budget behind it. When something like this happens, when Abdullah the Butcher jumps to New Japan. Yeah. When you're watching that, when you're living that in real time, and you're thinking there's no chance he'll ever go back to all Japan, or you're thinking... Uh, at I mean, the time, we never thought, no, this was it. That was so huge. Yeah, it was so huge. But uh, you always, remember, you always have to have storyline reason for jumping companies, you know? Like, I want to challenge in Antonio Inoki, right? So it's not like I was really by bigger paycheck or anything like that. You know, that's a kind of turn down. I mean, it's turn off, right? It's You need wrestling storyline to do so. And it was IWGP that Abdullah the Butcher that shows up in, in one of the New Japan's big show announcing that the, I am entering IWGP uh, championship tournament. The IWGP, the first IWGP championship tournament won't happen until 1983, right? But it was three years in making. IWGP, International Wrestling Grand Prix, was a concept concept to create the undisputed world well it's not like world heavyweight championship but uh but it was a uh who was the best in the world and the biggest you know the biggest superstar and the biggest championship winner uh, that the iwgp was a whole concept to conquer the world according to antonio inoki does that make sense in antonio inoki's eyes i'm sure it makes sense yeah but it most I mean, like, uh, hindsight, it's kind of funny, but uh, back in 1980 and 1981, Japanese wrestling fans believed it because the myth of NWA, National Wrestling Alliance in Japan, was so big that, see, it was one of the things that Antonio Inoki could not conquer. See, Inoki never really able to challenge NWA championship in Japan. Well, they did back in 1969, 1970. Right, before New Japan. Before New Japan. See, Inoki and Baba working together up until 1971. Inoki formed New Japan in spring of 1972, and Giant Baba left JWA to form All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1972, uh, September. And Inoki and Baba both left the, the old company and created their own new major league, you know, wrestling company. Then Giant Baba pretty much signed and became membership, um, became the official member of NWA. And all the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Champions, you name, you know, uh, Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Harley Race, all the way to like Ric Flair era, right? And it was believed. See, Japanese wrestling fans are basically very reading oriented fans you know in tokyo sports newspaper that comes out every every day every afternoon that they covers wrestling and you have wrestling magazines you know baseball magazines wrestling magazine gong magazine weekly fight all those print media they really covered wrestling in depth and nwa myth was so huge that if you were older than 45 50 years old now that they still believe in nwa myth to this day some some of the fans in america too right oh yeah it was like the closest thing to undisputed world heavyweight championship that the biggest thing ever or something right and 
membership thing. You know, the becoming an official member of NWA was so huge that in 1973 and 1974, Antonio Inoki applied for membership and it was denied, you know, because of some Chinook's relationship with Jan Baba and, and Dory Funk Jr. These people helped, you know. That's right. Baba had the relationship with the Funks. They had the relationship with Eddie Graham. They, there you go. Baba has the political power. Yeah, Jim Burnett. Yeah. yeah. Or the Van Eric. Yeah, Van Eric. Fritz. Or the Florida. Yeah, Fritz and Baba yeah. had the relationship. Yeah. The Sheik. Yeah. So Anoki didn't have the political power on the board of the NWA to really get any. Yeah, the only NWA member that helped, you know, Inoki was Mike LaBelle of LA. That that was it. Well, that's the interesting thing about IWGP, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that because, of course, yeah. when you go to 83, we're jumping ahead, but you said it. It was being built up for a few years. You didn't yeah. have the NWA, but you had this relationship or this series of relationships that Inoki and New Japan had with Mike LaBelle, Vince McMahon yeah. Sr. You had relationships yeah. in Europe. You, of course, had yeah. relationships in, in, in Calgary Mexico, a little bit. Relationships yeah. in Calgary, relationships in Mexico. So it's not the NWA, but to do something like IWGP, you do have an international talent pool to get some real premium talent in there. And you had Andre the Giant. Inoki always had Andre the Giant. The Baba always wanted to have Andre. He he got him later on, but uh, absolutely the, the end, butchers. But that was the end. Yeah, oh, yeah. very end, very end. But uh, the reason and public, you know, like a storyline reason for for uh, Abdul the Butcher to jump from old Japan to New Japan, he was interested in entering IWGP. People believed it. So how much had been said already in the press? How much were the fans aware of the concept of IWGP here at this point, here in 1981? Yeah, because it was uh, like a three years in making storyline. See, at the time, Inoki had NWF, heavyweight championship, right? National Wrestling Federation, if if you remember, you know, you know Johnny Powers, <laughs> Ohio yeah. world title, you know. That's but right. it was very good that NWA was so big that Baba would challenge it, and sometimes you, you beat Jack Briscoe for one week, but at the end of the tour, you kind of secretly return the title, right? It wasn't even televised, you know, but the yeah. Baba en- ended up putting Jack Briscoe over and returning a t- title. So a smarter fan then said, ah, yeah, I knew that was it, you know. But for Inoki's case, when he beat Johnny Powers for NWF title, that American World Heavyweight title stayed in Japan. Very believable, right? And uh, when Inoki and New Japan wanted to create IWGP concept, it was very good that for three years, you know, in making this, the whole storyline was that Inoki first, he himself gave up NWF title, okay? And Sakaguchi at the time, North, North American heavyweight champion, he gave up his own heavyweight title. Taiga Jitsin, who ended up jumping, but the Taiga Jitsin came in and gave up his all-Asian heavyweight title. Stan Hansen gave up his cowboy hat, you know, all these things. And <laughs> Abdul the Butcher. Yeah, Abdul the Butcher came in and gave up his Puerto Rican, uh, no, Caribbean heavyweight title. Was there such title? Anyhow, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know but uh, Abdul, the, Abdul the Butcher came into you know, New Japan ring and gave up his uh, Caribbean heavyweight titles. Therefore, he, you know, he has no championship now. He will be entering IWGP uh, concept to create undisputed top of the world thing. 
believable, you know, and it's like a very much like something you can look forward to, you know, and uh, yeah, but actually, um, Inoki Abdul the Butcher single match series was not really a draw as much as they thought it would be, you know, it didn't, they didn't click in the ring, you know. When yeah. Stan Hansen walked out and went to All Japan, did he get his hat back? A different color hat he had. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was more like a straw hat. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but uh, it was so huge. At um, the re- another reason was that Stan Hansen was working New Japan tour ten days, just ten days, not even two weeks. Ten days prior to his New All Japan jump, so he was just there. Then, then uh, at the very last day of this real tag team tournament, 1981, at the Sumo Palace, All Japan card, he just shows up with his cowboy hat and, and a Western shirt and denim and cowboy boots. I mean, you are f- most famous cowboy, right, in, in Japan. And, uh, you know, up until then, Terry Funk and Dory Funk were the, the most famous cowboy in Japan, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Most popular. And the... Yeah, very first American babyface, you know. They had Mil Maskers, they had Billy Robinson, so there there were some American, I mean, uh, gaijin babyface, but the Funks, the Funks was it. You know, they were so popular, so Why? popular. Why did the Funks cross over to that level where they got so popular? Because it wasn't always that way. Why did they get uh, so popular? First, 1969 debut of... 20, then 28-year-old Dory Funk Jr. as NW, young NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Two days in a row, Anthony Inoki challenged Dory Funk Jr. And next day, Giant Baba challenged Dory Funk Jr. And 260-minute uh, Broadway, two days in a row. See, at the time, Giant Baba and Anthony Inoki together, they were the biggest superstar in Japan. They individually challenged Dory Funk for the title, and either of them could beat him. So it's like, wow, NWA must be something above all the wrestling. The, you know, the whole image was created, right? And uh, he was above. I mean, Dory Funk Jr. was above everything. Like, wow, Japanese champion couldn't beat him. And he came back and defended the title again the following year in 1970. Yeah, Inoki challenged again, n- another 60-minute, one against one. And this time, Dory Funk Jr. challenged Giant Baba's international heavyweight title. He couldn't beat him. So Baba, you know, they, they, they were, I mean, Dory Funk Jr. was so elevated. Like, wow, NWA World, him and NWA World heavyweight title itself is above all Japanese wrestling or above all the wrestling world or something. The image was created. But at the time, I'm sure that the NWA was the closest thing to undisputed world heavyweight title, right? So, yeah. And also, um, very, right from the beginning, right from the get-go, that when All Japan, uh, Jan Baba started All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1972, Dory Funk Sr. and Terry Funk um, appeared in the very first tour, and it, they were the one publicly announced. You know, they were the one who brought all the superstar American wrestlers into Japan. And the Funks in Amarillo, Texas, in Japan, Giant Baba were like allies, friends, like true baby face of the promotion. You know, does that make sense? It makes sense. And the fast forward to this period of time in the early '80s that we're talking about. The yeah, folks yeah. are responsible for booking American wrestling talent yeah, into all yeah. Japan. Who's booking the American talent into New Japan? Is it all through Vince McMahon Sr.? 
and Mike LaBelle. And Mike LaBelle. Uh, from LA. And also a little bit of Donna Warren from Oregon. Interesting. And Montreal, too. Mon- uh, I don't know who was running then, but, uh, you know, the Gills Poison guys were there. That uh, You know, Rujo's, Tiger Jeet Singh, you know, the tr- from Toronto. Uh, the Canada was part of the deal, too, a little bit. You know, with yeah. all these jumps happening, it's also a really exciting time because... Oh, one more thing I forgot to mention. Yeah. Also, uh, the Funks in Amarillo, Texas, trained then-golden rookie Jumbo Tsuruta, and it was all filmed for Japanese television. You know, the Funks training Jumbo Tsuruta. Yeah, so it was like, right, they, he was coached by Jumbo, I mean, coached by Funks, and Funks were, their, you know, their friends, you know? So, yeah, they made Amarillo, Texas, and the whole Funks family thing a big baby face in Japan. Okay, let's go back. While all this is going on, while, you know, the real world tag team tournament's happening, while all these mm-hmm, big mm-hmm. heavyweights are going back and forth, there's mm-hmm. also a revolution happening that we're still feeling the effects of to this day in New Japan Tiger Mask. with Tiger Mask and the junior heavyweights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How big was Tiger Mask when he first hit? And um, very first, yeah, debut match, you know, they weren't sure. New Japan wasn't sure either, you know, that it, is is it going to be just a temporary thing for like a season thing or for everything? See, Tiger Mask um, animation, you know, was real, you know, the, the cartoon series of Tiger Mask was really huge, but it was in the 70s. And they created this Tiger Mask for return of uh, this cartoon, you know, the you know animation series Tiger Mask 2. Uh, that started in 1981. So the TV, it was on TV Asahi Channel 10, the new animation series, Tiger Mask 2, and they wanted to create the real Tiger Mask in the ring too. And New Japan had a couple candidates, but the Inoki said, no, we have Tiger Mask. That was Satoru Sayama. Yes. If it wasn't Sayama, it wouldn't be as big, don't you think? You well, I mean, who would it have been, Maeda? Ooh, George Takano? I don't know. Yeah, Somebody. it wouldn't have yeah. worked. It wouldn't have worked. It had to be a short guy like your animation image. And also, Tiger Mask, uh, well, I should say Sayama, was pretty much number one protege of Inoki at the time. You know, he, he came in, he quit high school, and when he was 15, and before his 16th birthday, he debuted. And he, you know, he worked in Japan for like a year or two, but he, he was sent to Mexico right away. And then he was, if he wasn't Tiger Mask, he would come back. Sayama would come back and, you know, headline the junior, you know, junior heavyweight division anyway. But uh, Sayama was it. It was so special. I mean, he was special, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, you had never oh. seen anyone that quick in the ring. And it also, of course. Innovating move, creative move, the things you've never seen. And it made the Dynamite Kid into a star in Japan as well. Actually, Dynamite Kid was pretty much a star before that, though, because he From had the program. matches? Yes, yes, yes. Because it was an early jump uh, incident, too. Um, 1979, Dynamite Kid had worked for IWE, you know, then defunct, you know, that uh, uh, third company, you know, IWE. Right. Yeah, they had the AWA jumped. relationship. Yeah, yeah, yes. In Canada a little bit, and not much, but the AW relationship, yes. Um, Dynamite Kid debuted. And then there was a tour, New Japan wrestlers, you know, Inoki, Fujinami, and a couple more people toured K1 
Calgary, and uh, there was a Inoki against Stan Hansen match in Calgary one summer, and uh, that was in 79, I believe. They discovered Dynamite Kid there, and they said, we're going to book this guy, right? So New Japan stole Dynamite Kid from IWE. So there was a minor jump, and there was a program. Then WWF Junior Heavyweight Champion Fujinami against Dynamite Kid programmed in Japan, like in 79, 80, into 81 even. And Fujinami became heavyweight so that uh, the place was vacant. So everything worked out in, in, in a good timing, you know? Beyond Anoki, yeah. when it comes to the heavyweights in New Japan at this period of time, let's say 81, 82, what is yeah. the hierarchy? Is it Anoki, Fujinami? Where's Choshu on the list? What would you say would be the order of Inoki, Fujinami, and Seiji Sakaguchi, probably? Even that late, even in 81, 82, you would put Sakaguchi. Yeah, 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 because he was a big guy, you know, and, and a really heavyweight. And also, he was, I don't want to say it, but, uh, but let's put it this way, he was like a designated jobber before Inoki. You know, when big name American or Gaijin comes in, before this guy challenges Inoki, there was always a single match against Sakaguchi. And this guy beat Sakaguchi to establish that he's a you know, worthy opponent for Inoki. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Sakaguchi was your Gorilla Monsoon position for Bruno. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. See, also, he was always like a designated number two. And he was always right in, standing right next to Inoki. So he, not necessarily huge superstar, but the people look at Sakaguchi as always, that, that's your number two, and number, number two guy, you know? And Ricky Choshu, of course, talented at the time, but he was lacking gimmick. And also, he didn't really become superstar until he became your pretty much first Japanese heel. Like challenge, yeah, challenging that, challenging the establishment, challenge the company, challenge the authority. Just like what happened to, like a Kevin Owens today. You know, he, they got big pop. He's like, Shane McMahon can kiss my ass. The guy got huge pop, right? So always needed rebel, you know. But the, they didn't have that because basic formula was always Inoki's, you know, babyface crew against. Big name gaijins, you know, you know, Japanese against foreigners. You know, that was a basic formula until Japanese heel was created. How did Choshu morph into that character, though? Because obviously he had been a lot more bland just a few years earlier. Yeah, a few years earlier. Yeah. Equally talented. It's not that he changed what he did in the ring or anything. He grew his hair out, of course. But then also he was erased and he was gone for like 10 months period. End of 81 into 82, he went to Mexico, UWA, you know, and he, he grew his hair out and came back. And the very first match was six-man tag team, Inoki, Fujinami, Choshu against, uh, it was something like Abdul the Butcher and, and Special Delivery Jones and, and, and the Bad News Alley or something like that. And then during the match, Ricky Choshu turned on Fujinami. That elevated both Fujinami and Choshu as headliners. Inoki was slowing down a little bit. So it really created a new star and the whole idea of a faction, 
You know, now it's all faction, you know, Bullet Club, the Elite, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like five or six guys, or NWO later on, you know, this all faction thing. But the Ishin Gun and Choshu's Revolutional Army, like Ricky Choshu, Killer Khan, Masa Saito, the, the Yoshiaki Yatsu, yeah, yeah. Okuniaki Kobayashi. It's like, oh, wow, they can all be stars by becoming a group of heels that going against the establishment, you know, that really gets over in any wrestling company. Don't you think? I do, but this specific period of time, the early eighties, was that a big thing in Tokyo? Because not to go too far ahead, but obviously Akira Maeda, Sayama, and an entire crew of guys, Fujiwara, Takata, mm-hmm. young Takata would go off and form the UWF. And that was obviously a very rebellious move. Was that something really big with the wrestling fans in Tokyo? The idea of, the wrestlers being rebellious against the promotion? Yeah, but Ricky Choshu was first, though. When Ricky Choshu turned, you know, the new big Japanese heel who does the clothesline and uh, Scorpion Deathlock, you know, Scorpion, what you call it, a sharpshooter there. But uh, at the time, actually, Fujiwara, Maeda, Young Takada, Yamazaki, they were all in New Japan mid-card, you know, at the time. You know, rather, yeah. mid-card. Yeah, but uh, in 84, oh, after the scandal, then we have to go cover that, that uh, Ricky Choshu's faction got over first, you know, Japanese big heel, you know, yeah. going against Japanese against Japanese. That's when Abdul the Butcher got really phased, you know, like uh, he faded down to, you know, like he stopped coming, you know, that uh, all the headline card, you know, main event, semi-main main event, they were, they became all Japanese against Japanese, Inoki's baby face against Ricky Choshu's group, night after night, you know, it's like either single match or tag team match or uh, six-man tag team match, you know, during your, your tour, that it became your headliner, and then they, New Japan, started using less and less Americans on that. One of the Americans they did use was Hulk Hogan, who had really broken out in New Japan around this yeah, period. Yeah, right after, right after Stan left. Now, he had been there before Stan left, and they actually had a friendship, but it was Stan leaving that caused Hogan to be elevated. And also, New Japan didn't want to lose Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan, that's when he became a pretty good politician, that he signed new contract with New Japan right then. And New Japan turned him babyface, American babyface. And he started, you know, coming out of the ring with this kimono gear, black tight, you know, black trunks with Ichiban kanji on it, and became tag team partner of Anthony Inoki the whole year. That really established Hulk Hogan as new superstar and American babyface they could beat. Yeah, a very smart move on Inoki's part, I mean, uh, Hogan's part. Well, always the politician. How would you compare Hogan's popularity with the adulation for Bruiser Brody in all Japan? Ooh. Um, you know, it's like most wrestling fans watched both shows. Friday night, Channel 10, TBS Ahi, you, you know, you watch Inoki's show every Friday. But Saturday, you watch all J- Baba's Old Japan show too, you know? It's kind of like watching American League one night and you watch National League, you know, next night. Yeah, so they were both popular. But um, it was like Brody was never babyface. And at the time, 
Um, all Japan is now is TV code, and uh, that the, all those things you know changed. And even in J- Japanese television, they don't even have blood anymore. But all Japan, you know, tour Brody always had bloody much on TV, you know. Whereas Hulk Hogan was never bloody, besides one match with Abdul the Butcher. But uh, uh, it was like Terry Funk against Bruiser Brody, they did it over and over. And I'm sure it was Terry Funk's favorite match. And hindsight, it was Bruiser Brody's favorite match. You know, they enjoyed it. You know, they, they loved it. You know, they're working with each other. But uh, Brody was not really as popular, you know. I mean, he was headliner, main event, of course, but not quite popular among kids. You know, it was more right. your hardcore fans. You know, like hardcore male fans think, I think Bruiser Brody is actually the toughest. In the back, back of your mind, Bruiser Brody was always very, very special. And he never did jobs, right? So he was very special, but not quite as popular among casual fans, casual viewers. You know, they watch the, you know, TV, you know, wrestling on TV and Inoki Hogan show on Friday, you know, Under the Giants on it. And the Funks, the Stan Hansen, the Bruiser Brody, all those superstars for All Japan's Channel 4 on Saturday night. Uh, but uh, Bruiser Brody was not yet quite as, like, household. You know, this is really popular, though. Well, speaking of All Japan, I want to talk a little bit more about All Japan here in a second. In terms of popularity, yes, was, was Terry Funk the most popular guy, hands down? Uh, among American, I mean, yeah, yeah, Gaijin talent, yes, yes. How did he get to that level? Um, because it's a crazy popularity. I mean, we've seen the videos of the <laughs> screaming and the crying, and I've seen all the magazine covers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the match that made him popular was, I believe, it was 19... He was popular during the 70s, of course. But in the, the most popular memorable match was 1977, the Funks against Abdul the Butcher and the Sheik. The Sheik and Abdul the Butcher beat Terry Funk so bad that it's like, <laughs> it just, Terry Funk sold so well that the, actually that was the very first time they cut their arm instead of forehead. Remember that incident? You know, yeah, that the bloody forehead, fine. You know, at the time, it's a lot of wrestlers still juiced, you know. But on the Terry Funk thing was that the, his arm got cut out. You know, it's like a bloody arms, you know, and he's screaming and, 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 and rolling around the ring. And, and it's like, well, don't stop the match, stop the match. It's so emotional, that, but that he still gets up and go, right? It's like you're, it's like a superhero, you know, more so than Dory Funk. Dory Funk's never emotional. He's kind of, quiet and never let your emotions go right and uh, i think it was more like a big drama you know that the older brother dory funk always quiet and uh, like a precise and meticulous and you know the total opposite of terry funk terry funk gets gets up and scream and cries and or sometimes laughs and you know just just he has this emotion and uh, he has this his special way of con- with connecting with audience, you know, no language barrier. You you just can't help but you know love Terry Funk over here. And there were always like a couple hundred you know teenage wrestling fans at the hotel lobby back then. Somewhat somehow, 
these teenage wrestling Japanese wrestling fans find out where they are staying in in you know like Tokyo hotels, they just go to a hotel lobby and wait for the funks. It happened with Mil Maskers and other superstars, but for the Funk's case, Terry Funk will make sure that he will sign autograph and take picture until the last person. I mean, it doesn't matter how late at night, he will always smile and talk to you and sign an autograph and take pictures with you until the very last person, night after night, night after night. And the image of this cowboy hero and uh, Amarillo, Texas thing, they came out with LP records, you know, wow, the audience has to be old enough, old enough to know what the LP records yes, were. Of course. But uh, they came out with a record, you know, that uh, it's a record, you know, it's Terry Funk just talking, you know, but they sold that. And there was a photo book called Amarillo that uh, we learned about Amarillo, Texas. It's funny that uh, when you say Texas, it's like da- either Dallas or Houston. Or maybe San Antonio, but uh, Amarillo, Texas is not a big city, is it? But in Japanese wrestling community, when you hear about Texas, you probably think about Amarillo, Texas and big ranch and big cowboy life and your big land all the way to your horizon. And Terry Funk actually lived that life, you know, no lie about it. So he was, yeah, a cowboy hero. And, of course, the Japanese magazines would show that life because the coverage of the wrestlers went beyond the ring, beyond the shows. Mm -hmm, It went mm -hmm. to the houses. It went to the families. And it Mm -hmm. seems like during this period of time in the early 80s, we did more. There was an explosion in the amount of Japanese wrestling magazines being produced Uh beyond just Gong and Weekly Pro. It seemed like a ton of magazines popped up. Yep, yep. Oh, Terry Funk's that popular. Yeah. And the retirement thing was. Summer of 83, you know, that the Terry Funk was so beaten up, 39-year-old Terry Funk had to retire. Oh, my gosh, is this going to be the last time we, we see Terry Funk in the ring? No, it wasn't, though. You know, he came back. But uh, we believed it, you know. Um, Terry Funk later on told me that, later on, like decades later, told me that it was a plan because New Japan at the same time was so popular with Tiger Mask, Inoki IWGP, Fujinami Riki Choshu program and all these things that the New Japan was so popular that uh, it didn't matter how many superstars old Japan brought in, you not just Funks and and you know, you're even Bruno San Martino or you know, you brought in Mascaras Brothers, Stan and Brody and it, New Japan still outdrew, you know, them, you know. And that the Terry Funk's very first retirement tour, summer of 83, was so emotional and so huge that it turned things around a little bit, you know? Yeah. It was really big, and it got a ton of coverage. And like we said, not only were there more magazines available yeah. during this period of time, but specifically magazines tailored around Terry Funk. But if we're talking about this happening in all Japan, this really being the highlight in many ways of all Japan, in 1983, mm-hmm. the Terry Funk retirement. At the same mm-hmm. time, while everything is going good for New Japan, they get engulfed yeah. in scandal. What happened yeah, there? Yep. I guess it was a combination of things. You know, Inoki's outside wrestling interest in business that uh, he was um, running a uh, kind of like a environmental company. In his Brazil, you know, the basic idea was 
to sort of using you know cow poops to you know you know to create a like a substitute of gasoline and natural gas to create a new energy in this environment and then uh, Inoki spent millions and millions of dollars you know using New Japan's money you know it was a huge wrestling boom period that the wrestlers including Choshu, Fujinami, even Taiga Mask they thought they should be making a lot a lot a lot of money right but at the time they were making just over $100,000 or something in the boom period. And something must be wrong with this company, right? And, uh, yeah, it was Inoki with his manager, Hisashi Shima, that, that took money out of New Japan and the using that whole fund into Inoki's personal, you know, interest, you know, this environmental issue, new energies thing, you know, in Brazil. And, and uh, yeah. So wrestlers and the front office staff, a lot of people wanted to restructure New Japan Company and make it right for wrestlers. Kind of revolutionary, you know? Yeah. Does and that make sense? Sh- and Shinma took the hit for it, right? I think so, because nobody wanted to, you know, get rid of Inoki. That's crazy, right? Yeah. It was Inoki's personal manager at the time, so it had to be Shinma, yeah. And it was right around this period of time, too, that the original Tiger Mask, Sayama, started having yeah. problems as well. Yeah. And also, there was a problem with the original creator of Tiger Mask animation series. There was a scandal about, about that guy, too. And uh, New Japan and the animation you know, creator, they had fallen out. So they were going to change Tiger Mask into a new wrestler, Space Tiger or something. You know, similar character, similar Tiger Mask design mask, but he's no longer using Tiger Mask's name. Kind of deceiving, you know. That never happened. That never happened. But uh, all in all, Sayama decided to walk out, walk out of the company, you know. I had it. So Tiger Mask was only just two-year and eight-month period or something. Yeah, short-lived, you know. Fumi, what was the scandal with the creator of Tiger Mask? His name was Iki Kajiwara. Iki Kajiwara. He, he created so many different animation and, you know, the boys' stories and, you know, that uh, he was actually a real bad guy in real life and all the scandal came out that summer. And uh, TV people and media people trace, you know, pretty much tried to erase his image from the, the children's cartoon shows, ch- children's animations. So uh, it was a combination of a lot of things that Sayama's version of Taiga Musk was to be erased at some point, you know. And of course, when he would go to the UWF, this first version of the UWF, we'll talk about yes, in a sir. second. Yeah. He yeah. would he wouldn't be able to call himself Tiger Mask. He would become Super Tiger. He became that Tiger first. The Tiger <laughs> before Super Tiger. Yeah, that Tiger. Actually, he started his very first shooting school right after he quit New Japan before UWF. See, Sayama wanted to start a new sport called shooting. You know, like like, like the wrestling term shoot. You know. It became from that, you know, came from that. But uh, he wanted to create something very much like today's MMA, a very innovating idea, you know, the complete opposite of what you would do in professional wrestling ring. 
you don't run into ropes, you know, that uh, you don't help each other in moves. That uh, that was the year, uh, maybe like a, a year later then, he, you know, he published a book called Kayfabe. Where he exposed the business, correct? Yes, yes. But it was more like, not like exposing business, but it was more like, this is why he wanted to create his dream sport, the sport he dreamed as a kid. You know, uh, Sayama was a wrestling fan growing up, of course, you know, and just like any other child wrestling fan, you believed everything, right? And when he became professional wrestler and he became superstar as a tiger mask, something really disappointed him, you know? Is this what I want to be doing? You know, like Sayama had vision that he would, uh, he will, you know, want to create the new sport. It's called shooting. Much, much like today's MMA, history is a funny thing. And when he was active wrestler, he told Anthony Inoki about it. I don't want to be doing this. I want to create what you are doing. Believing that, you know, in early 70s, uh, like mid-70s, if you remember, Inoki had a series of work shoot matches. You know, not just the Muhammad Ali fight was real, but the Chuck Webner fight that the uh, number of karate fighter, you know, matches, boxer matches, Inoki against boxer, Inoki against karate fighter. There was a mixed martial art before MMA, though, but uh, of course work. But uh, Inoki had a series of match against karate fighter or judoka or professional boxer, kickboxer. Inoki beat them all, right? And uh, it was sort of like, Inoki's way of creating himself a superstar in mid-70s when he couldn't challenge NWA title, right? That New Japan's business was built around Inoki's uh, the mixed martial arts fight uh, for a period of time, if you remember. And Sayama wanted to create a new sport like almost beyond wrestling. That it, it Come out of professional wrestling, of course. But uh, she had this vision the division was very similar to today's MMA, you know? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and, you know, while all this is happening, and yeah. all, all these big things are happening, the scandals in New Japan, Sayama, yeah. Tiger Mask, unmasks and leaves, Terry Funk yep. retires. Another yep. big thing that happens, to go back to the magazines, the two yeah. biggest magazines, Weekly Pro Became and weekly. Gong, went weekly. Yeah, instead of monthly, yeah. But that much happening, you know, yeah, um, spring of 83, baseball magazines, pro monthly became weekly pro wrestling. And the fall of same year, six months later, the monthly gong became weekly gong. And yeah, yeah, that was the same summer. Yes, same year, 83. It came out every week. I think the magazine became stronger by becoming weekly because it comes out every week instead of once a month. You know, a little smaller, but uh, news come out every week. That much happening every week. People really start buying weekly magazine and news became more weekly than, uh, you know, your once a month, you know, newsstand magazine. And also it forced wrestling company to become a little bit more honest about it because, you know, when the magazine was monthly, it was more Bill Apter style more George Napolitano style. It goes along with your storyline 
who's coming to next door, who's challenged the championship, what's the storyline, as if it's a real storyline and all these things. But by magazine becoming weekly and following all those news, including outside the ring, it became more observer-ish than uh, after magazine, don't you think? Yeah, it even covered the observer. <laughs> in the weekly yeah, magazine. Yeah, yeah. So, and Observe uh, started, you know, catching popularity at the time too, you know? So a lot of things changed inside the ring and outside the ring. Do you have any idea at all in the early 80s, let's say 1983, 1984, yeah. what kind of circulation they were looking at for the weekly magazines? How many people uh, a week were buying them? Uh, they started with 50,000. 50,000 copy every week. Then wow. quickly became 100,000. Wow. Yeah. And the following year became like 150,000 weekly. At the, in the peak period in early 90s, in like a G1 climax, a very initial, you know, G1 climax period, or Tenru turning, you know, heel and going against Jumbo and company. That time period, there we were. I was so involved, you know, we're selling legitimate over 200,000 copies every week. That's incredible. Yeah, and at, at one point we printed as big as as much as 450,000 copies a week at one point. Did any of you guys ever have a meeting like Fujinami and Choshu and say, "Hey, where's all the money? I see how much we're selling. Where's all <laughs> yeah, the money?" Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, but they never paid wrestlers, never paid wrestling company anything. It was like a, man, a real magazine, you know. Newsweek never pay celebrities, you know. People magazine don't really pay Hollywood people money, right? It's I'm saying it became, you guys. I'm saying the writing staff. I'm saying the reporters. Saying where's oh, the money? We've got all this circulation. Uh, oh God, I don't think I I that never made me rich. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> worked very hard though because. We made we were making this weekly magazine like a five day turnaround after the actual match. You know, every Friday night, Saturday night, sometimes Sunday, we made weekly magazine in like a five day period. You know, every week, week after week, day after day, night after night, we stayed up all night and wrote stories, cut out the photo, design the page, deadline. Deadline, deadline every day, and five year, you know, five day period. We created weekly magazine every week. I did it over thirty five years. <laughs> Not doing it anymore, but uh, yeah, crazy period. But we had great, you know, great time. We were, I was about thirty five years younger too. So, speaking about a crazy period, let's get back to this period of time, eighty three. Yes, let's yes. say. When we Hulk look- Hogan beat Antonio Inoki for the very inaugural first IWGP Championship tournament. And how big was it? I've been building it up for years when it finally takes place, the first IWGP, mm-hmm, of course, ending mm-hmm. with Hogan versus Inoki in the finals. How big was it? Huge. And also, you know, it was like your climax of your big drama of season five or something, right? You know, like your... I don't know what's a big drama. I mean, TV drama, like uh, your uh, Walking Dead or something. I don't yeah. know. You know, Breaking Bad, The Wire, yeah, Sopranos. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. It was going to be Antonio Inoki against Hulk Hogan. And yeah, sure, you know, people thought Antonio Inoki would beat Uprising New Superstar Hulk Hogan to become very, in, in the first 
IWGP tournament champion, you know. But that would spell the end on the screen, huh? Everybody thought Inoki would win, and that was the the story. And instead, Inoki chose to do that, you know. And uh, also, he fooled everybody. It was still ongoing argument that who knew, you know, did Sakaguchi know about it? Did Hulk Hogan know about it? And in my opinion, Anthony Inoki did this finish without telling Hogan, without telling referee, without telling Sakaguchi about it. And this finish that you're talking about is where clothesline after yeah, after apron onto the onto the floor, and he, Inoki hit his head back of the head so hard, got knocked unconscious, and ambulance came, and the newspaper covered it, or even the evening news covered it. Antonio Inoki accidentally hit his head and, you know, knocked unconscious and he was carried, you know, to uh, rush to the hospital with ambulance. That was the end of the night. And regular evening news covered it. Regular, not the sports paper or not the tabloid on your subway station, let alone wrestling magazine, but the actual evening news and, and the real newspaper covered that incident following day. Inoki not, you know, knocked out unconscious during the wrestling match, during wrestling show, they call it, right? But uh, so if you go back and watch this June 1983 match between Inoki and Hogan, and then see the reaction of all the wrestlers around, around the ring, the reaction of Sakaguchi, and the reaction of referee, and the reaction of Hulk Hogan, they must not know, you know, know this. I, I think... Inoki did this finish without telling Hogan, without telling referee, without telling his buddy Sakaguchi, the booker. And Hulk Hogan probably would never admit to it because that meaning that he was fooled too, you know? So he, Hogan would just tell people in public that I beat Anthony Inoki for IWGP and I'm the first champion. That's true too. It's technically true and technically not true because he was the first winner of the IWGP, but that championship and the current title are two different yeah. things. Yeah, but the that the Inoki wanted to keep it that way. 83 IWGP tournament, 84, 85, 86, 87. So they had this round-robin IWGP tournament for five-year period before it, Inoki made it into championship that you would de- defend the title all year round, you know, all year round. But uh, interesting enough, though, during this period, they ran this, you know, all year, the, this, your tours without single single title. Is it ever possible in this you know, day and age? You know, Inoki in New Japan was running tours and all year, schedule without even having a single championship belt that's wild yeah iwgp was that big and also inoki against so and so with or without title that was the main event anyway inoki was that popular so there's a lot of things you can we can argue you know can a wrestling company in run all year schedule without having a single championship they did it though you know, Inoki against, like, say, Master Superstar, Bill E.D., big main event at the Sumo Palace. That wasn't even title match. You know, Inoki against Dick Murdoch or somebody, single match. 
it wasn't even title match, you know, but it was like title match if there was a sing- very important single match in Oki against somebody, it's main event anyway, you know. So it proved a lot of things, you know, I think. But all in all, there were IWGP spring, you know, this tournament, championship tournament for five-year period. And second year, Hulk Hogan and Inoki met again, 84. You know, second year, Inoki beat Hulk Hogan, count out, you know, but uh, Inoki still won. And the third year, Under the Giant, fourth year, Dick Murdoch, and fifth year, Masa Saito, 87. Then Inoki announced that we are making this IWGP belt into a championship belt. Like, you know, you defend the title from now on. So the rest of this history. So there's a transition. Huh? While all this is happening in New Japan, over in All Japan, Giant Baba's yeah. phasing himself down. Inoki's still at the top of the card. Baba's starting mm-hmm. to phase himself down. One of the guys yeah. they're starting to elevate is Tenru. Talk a yes. little bit about the emergence of Tenru in the early 80s. Um, see, Giant Baba is five years older than Inoki, though. See, his peak period became, became five years earlier than Inoki's peak period. See, Giant Baba was already champ- international heavyweight champion with old company back in 1965, you know. And he was always winning World League, you know, spring tournament. That was the idea. You know, every spring we have championship tournament type of thing. And Baba was always winning. And, uh, yeah, always five years older. So Baba runs, like, before Inoki. Inoki was always chasing. Well, that made him more popular, of course. You know, Inoki was somewhat underdog underneath Jan Baba for a long time. That made him popular. But, uh, yeah, this time, Inoki was still in his mid-30s, you know, and Baba was hitting 40s, and Jumbo and his partner, Genichiro Tenru, was replacing Giant Baba as top group, you know, uh, babyface, yeah. Stan Hansen, Bruce Brody, Jumbo Tsuruta, and Tenru, pretty much the same, all same age group, little younger than Baba and the Funks. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the Gaijin, the new Gaijin coming in, someone who would really get into a place of prominence in 83 in that Terry Funk retirement match would be Terry Gordy. And he was in, yeah, he was in the retirement match. The Funks against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy, then 21-year-old, yes. Did he get over right away with the All Japan fans? I mean, he would go on to a pretty story career with All Japan. Uh, he was put into main event position, and always he was introduced. He they didn't say it though, but that he was introduced as this is your new Texas cowboy. You know, he had the cowboy hat on and the big kind of chubby, but the very talented young guy, and physically as large as Stan Hansen, he was brought in in Terry Funk's retirement match. So most fans can realize. This guy will be replacing Terry Funk. And he was talented. You know, Terry, when Terry Gordy was good, he was very good. I know he would come over with Michael and Buddy Jack a little bit later. Baba but... did not want Michael Hayes and Buddy Ravas that much. You well, know? that's what I was going to say. First of all, what did Baba think of the Freebirds? And second of all, how well-known were the Freebirds amongst the Japanese wrestling fans? Uh, hardcore 
and magazine readers, you know, the reading-oriented fans know fabulous Freebirds, of course. But uh, TV viewers, it's a different cluster, you know, much larger audience. They won't know you until they watch you on TV. And he was put it in main event position right from the get-go. So Terry, yeah, people look at Terry Gordy as this is young new superstar. It must be, and uh, he worked well. That you know, every bit as good as other three in the ring. So I, I'd say Terry Gordy pretty much established himself right away. And Baba liked him, but Baba did not want to book all three Freebirds. They brought in a couple times though, but you know, obviously Michael Hayes wasn't Baba's favorite type, you know. And they all always just wanted Terry Gordy every tour or something. And that was like almost end of the Freebirds, as you know. Because pick up so many dates, you know, that Terry Gordy was picking up, what, the 20 weeks out of the year? You know, three weeks here, four weeks here, three weeks here, five weeks here. And it was going back and forth. He did not want to work in States that much anymore in between tours. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting that Terry Gordy decided to make a career in Japan. From that point on. Yeah, and of course, when he wasn't in Japan, he would spend a lot of time in Texas and Dallas, Texas, wrestling for mm-hmm. Fritz von Erich and world class. Fritz von Erich had a long history with Giant Baba and All Japan, and his yep. sons had been coming over for a few years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at this period of time, 1983, how popular are the von Erichs over there, the new generation, Kerry, Kevin, and David? How popular are they? They were pretty popular, but they did not come often enough. You know, they had commitment in, you know, his own, you know, family, Dallas, you know, territory that that they were main events. So they could not commit to Japanese schedules like the Funks did or the Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen have been. You have to come over here a lot to become, you know, Japanese established superstar and gaijins, you know, that. Kevin Van Erich and David Van Erich died in, 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 in Japan in, in J- January of 84. Obviously, Jan Baba had some plans, though, because Baba gave David, David Van Erich UN title, single title, upon his arrival, right? So they must have had plans for David Van Erich to have some kind of program in Japan. He was United National UN champion. Now it's part of the Triple Crown title, but the, UN heavyweight title was number two single in the championship, right? So they must have plans for David Van Erick in all Japan. Well, accidentally or bad, I know it's a, it was a tragedy, but the, he died before the first match of the tour. How big a deal was his passing in Japan? It was huge. Yeah, because some... You know, superstar wrestler dying in hotel room, like found dead, you know. And uh, Baba, you know, you know, the total class act that uh, he, you know, had the funeral, you know, ready for at uh, some, um, some Christian church in Tokyo. And uh, the, the super destroyers, Bill and Scar Irvin, uh, at the time they were working in Dallas too. They were on tour. They asked Irving Brothers, Bill and Scott, to take this casket home. And they, they were sent back to Dallas. And two days later, they had to come back to, to continue with the tour. And Bruiser Brody's 
attended this funeral and the photo, everything was, you know, filmed and photographed. And Bruiser Brody actually broke down and cried in the church, made all the headlines in Japan too. You know, as crazy as Bruiser Brody was. He had his, his hair all tied in ponytail in the back. He was in the very first row at the discharge for the you know, fun, funeral service. And he kissed David Van Eriks, you know, uh, forehead. And uh, it was all filmed, you know. Uh, maybe it was, I'm not sure it was the right thing to do or not. But uh, Japanese television filmed the, fun- uh, the, 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 the funeral service. And it was big news. Somebody dying in a hotel room, like rock and roll superstar. It was huge. So coming out of all this, let's go to early 84. And we'll wrap up pretty soon, Fumi. We only got to 84. We have to do it again. We have to do it again. So much much to talk about. You know, big news, transition, all these things. So we have to come back and do it again. We have to come back and do it again. I insist. I'm glad to hear you volunteered already (laughs) to be a part of that. Yeah, because I'm so happy that a lot of American, not quite hardcore, but the American wrestling audience, wrestling fan, your listener, are now interested in Japanese wrestling history, you know, something we can share and have very good understanding, you know? Well, it's a rich history. It only makes it better. And it's a fascinating history, and we all love learning about it. But in early 84, we talked about the issues that Sayama had causing him to leave. New Japan, leave professional wrestling to take off his mask. We talked about the issues, the embezzlement scandal that would lead to Shinma being pushed out of New Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. Never came back. What happened that led to the disenchantment with guys like Akira Maeda, Nobuhiko Takada, Fujiwara? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fujiwara, yeah, Yamazaki and all that. Yeah. It was also a combination of things. Very first version of UWF was not created by wrestlers. It was created by Shima Hisashi. You know, Shima, the Inoki's right-hand man at the time, but who was pushed out of the company after this inner, you know, struggle and uh, revolutionary in that company, you know. It was like, let's put it this way. New Japan, Inoki's idea was to have two buses running at the time. All right, let's divide New Japan into two groups, two tours, two different companies. We're actually together. But like, it's got, have two buses running, you know. One main bus is running with New Japan name. And we will be having one more bus running, running a regular tour all through the year, you know, with different group people who are running two buses at a time. That was the UWF idea. And they, they, they picked Akira Maeda and Rasha Kimura, uh, Grand Hamada and Ryuma Go, like five, six guys, so they can run their own show. And the people like Dutch Mantel was brought in, Bob Sweeten being brought in, a few Mexican guys brought in, being brought in, and they created a third company. And then the plan was they were going to march back to New Japan as UWF faction. And uh, when that happened, Maeda insisted, uh-uh, we're running, the, uh, we, this is a new company, we're running our own show. And Maeda actually really decided to leave New Japan and create a uh, yet third company. You know, that Fujiwara, Young Nobuhiko Takada, you know, Sayama, they all felt it was their opportunity to really run a new wrestling company outside of New Japan wrestling. At the time, 
unthinkable, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's very reminiscent to something you and I spoke about in yeah. 1966, Tokyo Pro Wrestling. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can call it outlaw company, but it's like creating new wrestling company was so hard at the time. Not like an independent you know, group today. You know, you start running a show over this weekend or something. But the, at the time, creating a new wrestling company was so hard. The third company, unthinkable. New Japan, so strong. Baba's old, old Japan, so strong that the, they, I mean, all through 70, all throughout 70s into early 80s, mid 80s, nobody thought it was possible to run third company, you know? So originally the UWF, the original UWF, was actually yeah. something set up by Anoki, but they kind of yeah. rebel, kind of like the monkeys. They rebelled against their producers. They rebelled against Anoki, and they decided yeah. they were really going to start a outlaw promotion in Tokyo. Yeah, they created... See, original idea was that the, it's a legend and could be a myth, and it was told by so many people. It was written so many different places, and so many people made so many different comments. So I don't know the real, real truth out of this. But it was said, Inoki told Shima that I'll be joining UWF. That's really? why they started it. Yeah, early on. I'll leave New Japan. I'll join, I'll, I'll join this second group. Don't worry about it. So they went ahead and created the group, you know? And UWF, during this brief period of time, they actually had a working relationship with the WWF, right? Because of Hisashi Shima. Yeah. He sent Akira Maira to Madison Square Garden to create a, create a UWF International Heavyweight title, beating somebody like uh, uh, Phil Raphael or somebody, yeah, at the Madison Square Garden, yeah. And that would end up being a disastrous tour for Maeda. That would really change... <laughs> the way Maeda saw professional wrestling. Yeah, yeah. But then again, by touring people with people like Big John Studd, Dan Morocco, he really learned business too. He learned about psychology and whatnot and what he liked about wrestling, what he did not like about wrestling. It be, the idea became very clear for him because Maeda was not exactly a wrestling fan growing up. He wanted to be a karate instructor. And uh, he was told when he joined New Japan right out of high school, if you become famous superstar in wrestling, yes, you can go to America and open the wrestling, uh, I mean, the karate dojo. That was his dream to begin with. And also, um, Maeda was one of those wrestlers that uh, you go out to, you know, bars or nightclub or something, right? And the fan or regular people or whomever was in the, the bar, they'll come up and, t and, and tell you, hey, uh, you're a professional wrestler, right? I think wrestling is fake. Maeda could not stand those conversations. Well, I cannot talk you know, about everybody, but what I do ain't, ain't fake, okay? Get out of my face, kind of thing. So he always had that confrontation with casual crowd at the nightclub scene. They really walk up and tell you, even in Japan. Um, I watched, yeah, it's like, you're a professional wrestler, right? I think you're a fake. It happens in America in 70s and 80s. Now it's all, you know, WWE sports entertainment. It's not even an issue, right? But uh, yeah, in Japan, as serious as we take wrestling and talk about wrestling and watch wrestling and, you know, we really spend time thinking about the, these things, you know. And Maeda and Sayama had idea that in the vision that 
someday, maybe after Inoki then, but someday I think we can make wrestling real sport. Maybe a lot of wrestlers thought about it one time or another, maybe. But even there, I mean, you saw a difference in the opinion of what that sport should be. Sayama and Maeda would end up having a falling out, right? Right, right. Very interestingly, yeah. So uh, it's like the history repeating itself, huh? Like in 1930s. I don't know, maybe we'll go back all the way to Frank Gotch or William Muldoon or your Joe Sticker or, I don't know, Ed Stronger-Lewis era. You know, everybody wanted to make this look real or make it real or you control the business or you become promoter or you know, it's all these things you know is that similar though yeah so that's what happened because i think aging inoki aging and baba aging it allowed the door to open who's going to be the next superstar will be you know there's going to be a debate is fujinami's idea of wrestling Ricky Choshu's idea of professional wrestling, Sayama's vision, Omaeda's vision, go back to old school, Jumbo's vision and Tenru's vision. A lot of things come out, and weekly gang and weekly pro wrestling, we openly wrote about it. And I guess in a lot of ways, you could say Choshu's vision may have won at the end of the day. Well, but he became establishment. Yeah. When you know we have to fast forward five six years, Inoki finally left wrestling, becoming politician, and Inoki gave Ricky Choshu Booker's position. He became somebody who actually called the shots, not just in the in the ring, but Ricky Choshu pretty much took over the dressing room. But that's the one way to win it. But the Maeda, on the other hand, he created a new company, Rings you know, an early 90s, he ended up becoming not wrestling company, but became MMA company at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like something you and I can talk about all night long and we still don't have conclusion. Yeah, no, know? we can keep going. I'll tell you what, let's wrap up this segment uh, fittingly, <laughs> yeah. Fumi. We talked so much about the emergence of Ricky Choshu and his faction and how... Mm-hmm. Him becoming a Japanese heel, although he was actually Korean and no one knew it at the time. But him becoming... People knew, though. Yeah. Did, did they know? They knew? Okay. okay. Yeah, because he represented Korea 1972 uh, Munich Olympic. See, Jumbo went to Munich Olympic, too. But the Ricky Choshu went to Munich Olympic representing Korea. But this is a very interesting subject because it is like... Um, Japanese Korean, Korean Japanese are product of wartime. Riki Choshu was born and raised in Japan, and the family was Korean, you know, descent. Um, I think Riki Choshu's grandparents came from Korea, you know, and spoke the language at home. But he was born in Japan and went to school in Japan and went to all the way to college in Japan. He's Japanese, you know, but his family never changed the passport. It's very, yeah, interesting subject. You know, there's like a 500,000 Koreans in Japan that, I mean, was born and raised in Japan, but the family never changed the passport. Back in 1930s, okay, back in 1930s, there was no North Korea or South Korea. During 30-year period, the whole Korean Peninsula was Japanese colony. That's when Rikidozan came to Japan. 
See, um, this is like a very much like you have to learn the Japanese history class in college or something. But uh, they were, see, Riki Choshu were born in Japan and raised in Japan, you know, and he had Korean name and also Japanese name, Mitsuo Yoshida. But the passport was always Korean passport that some family don't want to change it. You know, it's your heritage, you know, yeah. and uh, spoke some Korean at home because grandma spoke, you know, but he was always raised as Japanese, too. It's a very interesting subject. There are five over 500,000 Korean raised in Japan. Like now it's like a 2019. It's like a third or fourth generation Koreans in Japan. And uh, yeah, there's like a, always discrimination, you know, and the hate speech. You know, I hate to say this, but the Japanese Twitters are like a racist heaven in a way that there's like they're racist, openly talk about real racist, making racist statements, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's the big political issue way outside of wrestling. But uh, Ricky Cho, back to Ricky Choshi, yes, he, yes. His, 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 his family is a product of wartime. So Ricky Choshu here at this period of time is on fire. He is so popular, even though he's a heel. And yeah. to wrap up this segment and to really wrap up this yes, time, sir. looking at the different jumps, and there are more for next time, Ricky mm-hmm. Choshu and his faction jump at the end of 1984 from New yeah, Japan to all Japan. Yes, and joining all Japan as Japan Pro Wrestling starting January of 1985. It's incredible that this happens. What leads to this happening and how big a deal was this? Because this wasn't Stan Hansen. This wasn't another Gaijin. This wasn't just a Japanese wrestler. This was an entire crew of Japanese wrestlers. All 13 of them. Yes, sir. It was like end of Antonio's and Inoki's real power, huh? Because who beat Inoki wasn't a wrestler. It was New Japan Company itself. It crumbled from inside. You know, there was a UWF project that to, to divide New Japan up in two different groups. It failed that uh, the trick didn't work. And Maeda chose to really form a new company. And the 13, 15 of them left, right? And Riki Choshu and his buddies got together and really decided to leave the company, all 13 of them. And New Japan, uh, All Japan Giant Baba and Channel 4 signed with Riki Choshu's faction. And all these 13 Riki Choshu's guys jumped and started working for All Japan and Channel 4 Nippon TV January 85. But I, you got to fast forward a little bit. Decades later, like a couple years you know, ago, that the Riki Choshu made a comment in, in, in the magazine interview that the, it was Inoki who told Riki Choshu that he could go and please come back in a couple years. Do Which be- that's exactly what he did. Do you believe that, Fumi? Do you believe that Inoki said that? Well, it was Riki Choshu's statement um, 2016. You know, like 30 years later, now he's telling. It was Inoki who told me, you know, I could go and you can always come back in a couple of years. That's exactly what he did, too, you know. So a lot of things can be said about a lot of things. And Inoki will never make public comment on that. He'll never answer that. Very mysterious to this day. What he did backstage. (laughs) Very much Inoki, huh? 
We are back on the Super Podcast, and joining me right now is a man who is very, very popular with the listeners. The listeners have gone above and beyond to help this man out. He is your friend and mine, the golden boy, Chick Donovan. No, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Oh, my God. I almost had a heart attack. Another heart attack. Okay. <laughs> Jerry Gray, yeah, you got it right. Not Chick Donovan. Just like Jody Hamilton told me, Chick Donovan was jealous of me because I'm bigger, taller, got more women. So, no, I like Chick. He's okay. Are you ever competitive with the other Golden Boys in wrestling? There have been no. several. <laughs> um, no, there's one that's a dentist that won't even fix my damn teeth. He's always bought my. I heard he bought one of my robes that I sold, and it's like he's sending me a email of it. Like what he did to it. I got one of your robes. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Thanks a lot. Just been telling people how bad my teeth are and everything. He's a dentist. I can't remember his name. You know who I'm talking about? A newer golden boy. No, I have no idea who you're talking about. You're not talking about Mike Leno, obviously. That's the only wrestling dentist. No. Hell no. I wouldn't let him touch my teeth. Um, (laughs) No, this guy. No, he's uh, he's all right. But a golden boy, Jim something. I can't pronounce his last name. McDonald or something. McDonald. He posts a lot of stuff online. He's like one of the newer, younger guys, younger golden boys. <laughs> and he's got one of your robes. Yeah, I saw a robe, and, and then uh, all of a sudden he sends me this, uh, whatchamacallit, messenger thing saying, I picked up one of your robes, and you did a bunch of crap to it. Don't look too great to me. Well, you ruined it, really. <laughs> but anyway, and then someone, you know, I needed, I need about four teeth that are really bad, and the dentist was like, oh, yeah, $2,000. I'm like, okay, I guess I won't get them fixed. But this uh, this guy knows about it because I posted it once and everything. But whatever. Trade him a robe for it. He wants to fix my teeth. <laughs> but anyway. Hey, Jerry, what is the secret to a good robe? I mean, you've had several robes, and you always look like you were pretty comfortable in them. Have you had bad robes? Have you had robes that you didn't like? Robes that didn't fit well? What's the secret to having a good robe that you're comfortable with? Uh, well, once I found the good and there was like a pattern they would make it by actually my mom made about the best ones i ever had and then um i had a lot i had about 10 but i've sold almost every one i only got about two left probably three maybe at the most the best ones were of course from mr wrestling two wife can't remember her name but and i think greg valentine had his his uh i don't know which wife it was but he his wife had made one who i thought i thought uh wrestling two's wife probably made it you know his some of his nice ones he had greg valentine but he said his wife made that one too were you ever around julie valentine she was his wife in the early that might 80s be the one. and you were in mid-atlantic like, obviously for a little while yeah i think that's the one that he said made that room because he and then Ric Flair's, I don't know if you've ever felt a, a weight of one, one of his robes, but it's like, she's, you know, that thing, that, that thing is heavy. Because I remember when Elton Owens had like the dumpiest arena you could ever see, and the dressing room was the size of a closet, maybe. And the world champion's there with this, you know, 20 pound robe or whatever it is. And it's like a closet. I mean, we're dressing the six of us. So he puts his, him over in our dressing room. And he was so mad the whole time, Flair. He went and told Don Owens off the next day. Don't ever send me to your damn brother's towns again. This is a joke. Oh, my God. They said, damn, the wrestlers are refereeing. They can't even send the referee there because you don't want to pay an extra 50 bucks for the referee. <laughs> I mean, the baby faces would have to referee. I think I told you that before. <laughs> we'd have to we'd come out there after we just wrestled and then the referee against a guy we're supposed to hate, you know, back when people believed. Yeah, so you got a referee, a match when you might have a feud with this guy going on. It's like, oh, my God, this is a joke. 
So yeah, Flair didn't like going to Elton Owens town. <laughs> you know, Jerry, I know you got a few stories for us today, but before we get there, why don't we get a little bit of an update? It's been a little while since the last 605 episode and a little while since your last appearance. So what's going on? I've seen some pictures uh, attached to your GoFundMe. And of course, it's tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. You can go there and help out Jerry as he continues to battle stage four cancer and so much more at this point. But what is your actual health update? What's going on? Oh, boy. Well, I just had many more surgery. I had a bowel obstruction. That's what that picture is with that NG tube. I don't know if you know what that is. They, they stick a tube. It's like the most painful thing. Stick a tube up your nose, on down your throat until it gets to your stomach because you have a bowel obstruction. So that's the only way they can get it out. The the bowel is kind of nasty or whatever, but the bowel or whatever. Oh my god! That's why they suck it out. And I had that thing in for a month. They said usually most people I have to have it in for maybe a week or two at the most, a month of hell. And I mean it hurts bad too when they're putting it down up your nose and then down through your throat and then the whole time it hurts when it's done. So a month of that. Then I had to have a, um, I have, a, I had that mesh thing, uh, you know, the mesh hernia mesh that are in their ways, lawsuits are all over all this stuff, you know? So it didn't, of course it didn't work. So the hernia came right back and a bowel obstruction both. So they had to do that surgery on that. And then they just left the mesh cause they don't want to get sued. What I think, you know, they don't want to mess with that. Cause once you go in and have a new surgery done, then there's lawsuits you can do. So he just left all that and didn't even mess with the hernia and just repaired the, the uh, bowel obstruction. I was like, so he just left the hernia. And then I found out probably why, cause the attorney said, yeah, well, he didn't mess. He didn't do anything with the hernia. So there's nothing to do about it. I was like, well, this is nice. Let me. Mesh in my stomach and a hernia, and then just leave it, you know, in there. A foul thing in your stomach, you know, it's not even supposed to be there because it's all, he said it's not even covering, I can't explain it, but it's not even covering the hernia anymore or whatever the doctor told me. And then, so I, I guess I went crazy, and I never had this happen before. I don't know what they gave me because sometimes I don't go out when they give me anesthesia for some reason. And uh, one time the dude I was doing a colonoscopy told me that I was awake the whole time watching on the monitor what what he was doing. <laughs> It was like, uh, we need to give him more anesthesia next time. So this time, they gave me, like, I think too much anesthesia or something because I went crazy. I don't remember none of this. And they had me, they had to tie me down. They were all mad at me afterwards. They were always fighting everybody, throwing everybody everywhere and everything. <laughs> and then uh, that happened. And then I was there a long time, about like seven, eight weeks or something. Because then I had an episode that happened where every time I try to stand up, my heart rate would go up to like 140, 150. I mean, just to try to even stand up at all to get me walking, so I didn't get pneumonia, you know, right after the surgery. So then I ended up having AFib, and they had to do a um, procedure on that. Uh, what's it called? Cardioversion or something? Shock your heart back into rhythm. So then, then I went crazy. I remember this time. This time, <laughs> this time it was kind of funny. I uh, something they gave me again. I ended up pulling all my IVs out. After they did all the procedure, I'm back in my room, pulled all the IVs out, and I'm walking down the halls. And I think I was trying to take an X-ray of me in the room. I thought it was like he was at like a magician or something trying to show me because he had a girl with him, telling me to lay down on the thing. And I'm kind of laughing at him because it looked like to me like a you know a magician stands there and tells you this and do that. He's gonna do a trick or whatever. Yeah. So I'm laughing at him. I'm laughing at him and. Uh, because that's what I saw, because I'm all the stuff they gave me, whatever the hell it was. So then I pull out the IVs, and I don't think I had any clothes on either. 
because I had a blanket on me or something. I stand up, so I'm probably naked, and I'm walking, and all the people are just looking because they already knew I went crazy before. You know, all the people are looking kind of just like, uh, what's he doing? And then I'm walking down the halls, and one guy that knows me kind of there said, what year is it, Jerry? <laughs> and I go, uh, I knew the year. And then he said, okay, just calm down. Uh, you know, and they finally got me to calm down. But I don't know what the hell's going on. They give me, give me some kind of medicine, made me crazy this time. So then I, uh, so and then they messed my heart up too by whatever they did, giving me too much anesthesia. I don't know what happened. So I had AFib and that other stuff, and then I have some kind of um, tumor in my liver that they keep saying is too close to something where you'll bleed out if they try to. Because I've had a liver resection done before, with I had three huge. Uh, cancer tumors in my liver and they took half the liver out because it grows back you know they did that a few years ago and then but this one they say it's too close to something whatever it is you know arteries or whatever that you'll bleed out so they just keep watching it and see how much bigger it keeps getting but they're not even i mean it's like a secret everything like when they give me cat scans they're not supposed to tell you you know the tech what you have and they go okay you have liver cancer colon cancer bone cancer and then uh, and then the, i never knew about no bone cancer until they said that you know the tech they're not supposed to tell you what you have it's supposed to be the doctor that tells you you know results and then they said lung cancer one time i'm like okay wait a minute i didn't know about that and they go oh no no we, uh, we i don't know no we made a mistake so i don't know if they're keeping that a secret to doctors down here i'm telling you man it's like a secret your health well, you know, one thing I could say is that, you know, you and I, we're recording this the day before this show comes out. It's November 27th, and we yeah. hadn't been able to record for a long time because you weren't able to speak, or I guess you couldn't speak for long periods of time, right? Oh, yeah, that thing that had done my throat for so long. I thought I damaged it for, you know, I didn't know if I was ever going to work. I couldn't hardly, you wouldn't have been able to understand me like about a month ago. It was like, oh, over even say anything. And you couldn't hear me anyway. Raspy like. <clears throat> but yeah, that's why I went away. But you still sound better than Jake. Yeah, I sounded even worse than him back then. <laughs> so were were they able to take care of the bowel obstruction? Yeah, that's real good too. Like uh, only a few days later, I go to my doctor and he hears noises coming from my stomach. He goes, you need to go back to the emergency room. And I was like, right, no way. I just got out of that place. There ain't no way I'm going back there already. I said, it's because I'm hungry, you know, it's a growling stomach. He goes, no, that's not that noise. So hopefully it's okay because it's ridiculous. I don't know why it keeps coming back so much. How are you doing with pain? Because I got to assume that uh, because you've been going through this ordeal for a long time, you probably have a pretty high tolerance to any painkillers they give you. How are you doing with pain? Oh, horrible. Yeah, it doesn't even work anymore. Pain medicine. Yeah, they had to give me like whatever the heck it was, the thing where you push it yourself pump uh like the strongest thing there is because they were trying to give me something i was like this is not helping anything some kind of pump they gave me at the hospital not now at the what's it called uh delauded but it was like a, a thing you push yourself i can't remember what it's called some kind of i don't know pump you push yourself yeah some kind of pump you push yourself whenever you need it i was like yeah i still didn't know much so. but um yeah now they wean me off pain medicine it's like oh that's nice 
yeah, this is getting too, you know, people are doing it. And I was like, yeah, I know people are doing it too much because they don't. <laughs> I got a reason, I think, that they want to need pain medicine, Jesus. Yeah, the doctor, doctor just weaned me off. He's like, I'm, I'm weaning you off now. He's, uh, I'm like, oh, oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Might even help, and then you're going to wean me off all the way completely. And is Florida a tough state to get uh, medical marijuana? It must be because they never even mentioned that at all. Yeah, I don't think it's. Yeah, I don't, it's not like California, definitely. But I don't know. I thought about asking them, but then they're going to be like, oh. He wants drugs. Don't give him oxycodone. Give him, we don't want to give him marijuana. It's even worse than oxycodone. <laughs> That's what they think. Bro. Yeah. Once again, let's plug it. Tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. That is the GoFundMe page for Jerry Gray. All the money goes directly to Jerry to cover any bills he has, to cover any medical issues that are not currently being paid for by insurance or whatever the case may be. If you can help Jerry out, please do help Jerry out, even if it's a dollar. Tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. But Jerry, here we are in episode 100. I'm sure you must have a story or two, something good to talk about. Now, you met Anoki in Hawaii the first time, correct? Yeah, and I didn't know he was such a, uh, like you said before, like a, a Mick Jagger type guy. You know, he's because he was sitting there like, uh, I never knew that he was that, you know, uh, kind of like a secretive where he, you never really got to see him when I was in, in New Japan. In Japan, I never really even saw him face to face. It was just like he was in the dressing room. I don't know where it was. He wasn't in the dressing room with the other Japanese guys. But he must had his own thing. But in Hawaii, he was sitting there. Luckily, I was friends with, uh, Great Muda and Ken and Nagasaki, so I was kind of like in their clique sitting with them. And then he came over there because everybody was in Hawaii that, on that, that show. That's that one, what they call that show. Brody was there. Everybody was there. I think Jerry Lawler was there. But it was, there was a huge dresser. What's the name of that stadium, Honolulu? Um, I know what you're talking about, but I forget the name. It was uh, Lars Anderson yeah. via My Via show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Lars Anderson was yelling at the Sheik and uh, might have been Mark Lewin for smoking pot in the dressing room, one of the big dressing rooms somewhere. Smoke that shit in the dressing rooms. Don't come in. <laughs> so, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Sheik, 60-something-year-old, whatever it was. Hey, let me ask you about the two names you just mentioned. Um, I want to ask yeah. you about the great Muda in a second, because I know you worked with him okay. in Hawaii, but Kendo Nagasaki, oh, yeah. you know, we talked about him recently a little bit on the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review podcast with myself and Mike Mills. And yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. He came in there after Kabuki had been there for a very brief yeah. period of time. And I'm curious mm-hmm. what you think. Do you think that if Kendo Nagasaki came before Kabuki, he would have been as successful as Kabuki? Uh, in terms of the gimmick, I'm talking. In terms of that gimmick. Because yeah. it's clearly a, a ripoff of the great Kabuki gimmick. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, who was the... Who was uh, Kendo's manager? Was it just JJ on the? He didn't come into the live studio with him, did he? Didn't he just do TV interviews he sent in? Because I know Gary Hart was with Kabuki. Right, JJ didn't come over. Yeah, I think if Gary Hart would have been, or someone would have been with Kendo, would have been better because he can't do his own promos and everything, and it's not quite the same one. You know, they just send in a taped interview like JJ did, but um. I don't know who was the better. You know, the funniest thing, too, before we go to that, is both of those, them two had a um, thing on their shoulder. I don't know if you ever noticed, like when they turn a certain way. I don't know what phone that was, but it's like it sticks way out, like some kind of injury they had. Both of them had the exact same things, Kabuki and Kenan Nagasaki, if you ever watch. 
some of their matches up close. Like you'll see that both of them have some kind of, uh, I don't know what that, what that muscle or bone or whatever would be, but it sticks out. It's so weird. Have you ever noticed that? I haven't. On their that, now I'm sure. Okay. I <laughs> it's so weird. Cause it's like the same gimmick and then they both have the same exact, you know, things sticking out. But I got some funny stories about Kendo too, but, um, I don't know who was the better. They're both really good worker. I've worked with, no, I never worked with Ken, uh, Kabuki, but I worked with Kendo a lot of times, and he was a really good worker in the ring. Well, I'll tell you what, let's move, on to, let's move on to Muda. You worked with him when he first came. What was he like when he first came to Florida? I think I had his first match when he was um, in Melbourne, Florida, when they first sent him here, cause, and I had never been to Japan yet. So until like a few months later, they sent me to Japan. So I didn't understand that style, especially the young boys. I mean, they just pretty much shoot halfway shoot. So they put me against Muda. We didn't even meet each other or anything. Just in different dressing rooms. And then all of a sudden he starts doing that crap with me. Like, uh, I mean, full blown <laughs> stiff, everything he was doing. So then I took him down got him in some kind of chokehold, just defending myself. And uh, Bill Alfonso, I remember was the referee and said, you better listen, young boy, or you stretch your ass or something <laughs> to, to Muda, you know? Because it was like I was fighting for my life. It was like he's trying to kill me. And then he finally was like, what the hell? And then he didn't speak hardly any English at all. And I ended up riding with him in uh, kind of Nagasaki almost every night. Me and Humperdinck would sit in the back, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, and do all of our fun stuff while they would be in the front eating raw eel or whatever they would be doing. And then uh, some funny things, some funny things with Muda though, because he was almost like a, he was so immature. I think he was a virgin actually, and he, because uh, <laughs> he was, I mean, he was like a, such a young boy, like seemed like he was about 15 years old the way he acted. But he, uh, so now we one day we got him to hit, take a hit off a joint, and he didn't know he just took it, and then all of a sudden he goes, "Oh, you're crazy, crazy!" He was so paranoid, and then. Ken and I guess I keep telling him Dajoba. I mean, don't worry in Japanese. I found out later because that's why he kept telling him Dajoba, Dajoba, Dajoba. And I'll tell him to shut up and everything, <laughs> calm down. But then he finally, this is the funniest one. I don't want to get too X rated, but one time in uh, Fort Lauderdale, I had two real good looking rats. And then Kendo would always get kind of jealous because he had that, you know, he had that bald thing in the middle of his head. Right. Bald spot. He would wear a funny looking toupee. <laughs> outside the ring this big toupee like it looked worse than having the ball hit and then these girls I had two of them in the back seat Humpernate wasn't with us that time so I had two girls in the back seat with me but the matches were all over with people were leaving there they were in the parking lot of the uh, more more Auditorium in uh, Fort Lauderdale one more Auditorium okay so Muda and Kendo are in the front and, and Kendo's so jealous because he wants a girl you know he could never get in any because it's just a gimmick alone and then so I told one of them, I said, go, go up with him, my friend. And they, she didn't really want to, but she was like, I said, come on, please. And then she got up in the front with uh, Kendo between them two. So the, Kendo, instead of doing the, you know, the thing the girls do with their mouth, he leans her over the, whatchamacallit there, the armrest. And he, he's taking her pants off, doing the whole thing right there in the park a lot. People are still leaving, but it's dark at least, but he's doing everything. And then <laughs> he's telling Muda, Feel, feel, because back then, you know, the 80s, the bush, she had a big bush and everything. <laughs> he, he's telling feel, <laughs> telling Muda to feel, feel. And he's like, the kid, the first time ever, you know, touch it. He's like, oh, oh, oh. And then I'm in the back doing my thing. And then, uh, and then next thing you know, Kendo finishes and he tells Muda to feel again. It's like, oh, after that, and he's still oh. touching. 
like it's the first he didn't get to even he didn't even do it. He's like, no, I know he was a virgin because he hear it, and he's feeling. He's like, oh, oh. So then all the way home, they girls got out and left. All the way home, Kendall kept saying that. He said that for years. He said, uh, oh, good time tonight, huh? Oh, good time tonight, huh? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, yeah, good time. So all the way home, like 200 mile trip, he's saying, good time tonight. And mood is all like, you know, a kid. Candy store, all happy and everything. It was like the funniest thing I ever seen because it was like Muda. Just all he did got to do was touch the girl. But then finally, I got him a real rat, you know. So then he falls in love with her, though. She was pretty and very thing. He didn't understand that the girl was everybody's girl. So <laughs> one day we're making a trip to Jacksonville, and here comes Sean Royal driving by, and there's nobody beside him because the girl's in her, his lap, you know. And it's, it's Muda thinks it's his girlfriend, right? You don't understand as everybody. So then all of a sudden her head pops up because Kendall's trying to drive by a wave to the guy, wave to Sean uh, Royal. <laughs> and then her, the girl's head pops up, Muda's face is against the window. You should have seen. He was so sad. I felt so bad. And then the girl looked like, oh, my God. And then uh, Muda all the way there. He was so sad. It's like, no, it's everybody. This girl's, you know, these girls are like everybody's girl. It's not your girlfriend, buddy. So then finally he caught on. I think he... But the worst part was when you go to Japan, they don't want you touching their women. After they, they get you all hooked up here, I, I got a girl, Japanese girl over there, and Brody, the first store I was there, Brody was there. And he said, don't let them see, uh, no, the officer, nobody see you with that girl, or you won't ever come back again. He said, they go to our country and you know, marry our women, everything, but you come here, they don't want you touching them. And then they had a guard even walking on your floors to look and see what's going on. Brody told me this. And I was like, what the hell? Weird. And then I remember uh, Kendo was on that tour with me too, Nagasaki. And he wouldn't even talk to me or nothing about girls, nothing, and hook me up, nothing. And we would act like, you know, they act totally different when they go over there. They don't want you messing with their women. <laughs> but that was funny about uh, Muda doing that with the falling in love with the uh, the first girl he got. Was marijuana a big deal for them? Because obviously in Japan, that's, oh, that's a big no-no. You can't do it over there. You can't have it over there. You'll get kicked out of the country or arrested like Paul McCartney. So when these guys would come here, was it something they wanted to try marijuana or did they want to stay away from it? Yeah, they didn't really like it. Uh, they tried it. And then I remember uh, <laughs> Humpernick always had everything. He gave Muda. Then Muda didn't like the marijuana. He made him crazy. Then like a week later, Humpernick handed him a, a volume, I guess it was, <laughs> told him try this. And then Muda took that, and he threw up all over him. He's like, you guys know more. He got mad. And then <laughs> he didn't trust us ever again. But the, uh, yeah, they never did, except for that one. What was the guy in uh, Mid-South? He was older, too. Ito? Remember Sa- Ito? Sao Ito. <laughs> the funniest thing ever. Me and Ken, uh, me and uh, Dennis Condry and Bobby Cornett wasn't with us that time. With us that time for some reason. I don't know where he was, but um, it was me, Dennis Condry, Bobby Eaton, and Ito making a trip somewhere. Those long trips, and uh, Ito would like to smoke some of it. And and you know how the way uh, Dennis Condry talks, they crack you up if you ever heard some of the words he says. But he goes, uh. Uh, Ito kept wanting it, yeah, I want it, yeah, yeah, free. He didn't pay for none of the crap, you know. So then uh, <laughs> Condi goes, oh, you want more? Oh, yeah, yeah. You want to buy some? In other words, his voice, I can't do his voice, but it was so damn funny. Because he goes, you want more? But you're going to pay for some, too? Yeah, oh, no, no, you're not going to fucking pay for it, are you? He got so mad because he didn't want to smoke all of ours, but it's free. But uh, Condor was a badass, too, because I remember one time he, uh, I don't want to get 
two straw. I didn't like Coke. I, I was too cheap to buy Coke, so I didn't like to um, buy too much. Well, one time I bought some, I remember, and we all did. That time it was me, Buddy Lindell, and uh, Condry, and Cornette was missing that time. Again, too, for some reason. I think he had Brian Hildebrand visiting him or something that time, maybe he was hanging with him. But it was me, Bobby Eaton, Condry, and Buddy Landell on a trip. And I would only do a little bit because I wanted to save it. And I said, Spencer, and then the buddy in the back seat with me kept wanting all mine after he already did all his real quick, you know. <laughs> he kept trying to get all mine, and then Condry really told him off, too. He got so mad at her. He said, brother, is that you you taking Jerry's shit? Uh, he really told him all. I mean, buddy was scared of him, too. I'll never forget that, the Condry defending me. Because I didn't really care that much, but it was kind of like Jesus, man. Was Condry a guy you wanted watching your back in a fight? Yeah, he was definitely, after I seen that, he was definitely like, everybody was kind of, of that group there, everybody was kind of, he was like the, you know, the leader, the boss of all the, that group we're talking about, definitely. Landell was scared of him, I seen that that night, definitely. But, um, yeah, that's one thing that happened with the Japanese. No, they didn't, they weren't really in the drug, the beers while they ever wanted beer. Kabuki. I remember I rode with him a lot too in Charlotte, and he uh, always went beer. He drank a lot of damn beer. He got so mad at me one time because he got lost. I was in the back seat, and him and remember the the one that got killed in the plane crash on his honeymoon, uh, Magic Dragon. Oh yeah, yeah, in like 1987 yeah. or so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He uh, there was always him and uh, Kabuki in the front, and usually me in the back. Gary Hart too sometimes, but um. They were drinking beer the whole way, and I was asleep, I think. I was on the back seat, and then they got lost. I went like two or 300 miles out of the way because <laughs> they were so drunk. Kabuki and the Magic Dragon, and he's mad at me the whole way because I'm American, and I didn't tell him which way to go. I'm like, what the hell? You're driving. I don't know what the hell you're on. Jesus. This was funny, though. If you, he would have been there. He <laughs> had me on at me. You American, you, we get lost because of you. <laughs> anyway. I'll tell you what, Jerry, before we defame anyone else here this week on the show, let's wrap <laughs> things up. Once again, we want to tell everyone tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. That is the way you can help Jerry. All the money goes directly to Jerry to help him with all of his bills and all of his medical bills. But Jerry, anything you want to say to the listeners as we wrap up this segment? No, I just want to say thanks to everyone. I wanted to mention one guy, too. It happened like a long time ago. I had to go through all the donations for like a, I mean, I don't know how I've been talking on the show with you, but it might have been like right at the beginning, a couple of years or whatever, year and a half, two years. One guy one time donated six hundred and five dollars just because six oh five, you know. Oh wow! No, that was the biggest donation I ever got, and I had to go back through all the names to find out who it was. And he said he don't care because he don't even he's not doing it for the whatever fame. Steve Antonia, I don't know if you remember that name, but. I couldn't believe that number. I was like, that's at six dollars and five cents or six or five Jesus. That's tremendous. Yeah, that, that was yeah, that was fantastic. I had to go back and find them and thank him and everything again for unbelievable. But yeah, I want to thank everyone. I mean every dime helps me and believe me. So it's gonna be one hell of a show. I can't wait to hear this hundredth episode. It's been worth the wait. <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> i am very happy today to welcome to the super podcast a man who was responsible for many trailblazing and controversial wrestling publications a man who won the wfia fan club of the year award for his hulk hogan fan club 
He has done so many things in and around wrestling and really all combat sports. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the show today, Mike O'Hara. Mike, thanks for being here. Thank you. And that's going to be probably my my obituary. It'll say Michael O'Hara, WFIA fan club president <laughs> of the year, found dead in a, t- in a phone booth somewhere. But um, thank you for that. Well, no, it's thank you for being here. It's uh, You're someone I've always wanted to talk to because your publications, like I said, they were groundbreaking, they were trailblazing, they were controversial because they exposed so much more than the after mags or any of the other magazines that were on the market at the time. But let's take a step back. Let's go to the beginning. When did you first see professional wrestling and what was it about wrestling that first captured you? Well, the funny thing for me, I see with you, 605 was a, a pivotal uh, moment for you, I guess, at Championship Wrestling from Georgia. My thing was, I wasn't really an NWA guy. I'm from New York City, so I really wasn't even a WWF guy. What had happened to me was midnight on a Saturday night, I'm turning the dial on television, and we had a dial back then, and there were only six channels. On Channel 9 at midnight, there was something called IWA Wrestling, International Wrestling Association. It was also known as International Championship Wrestling. And that was promoted by two guys, Eddie Einhorn, who was the money, the big money, and a a kind of a forgotten promoter who I thought did a terrific job, a fellow by the name of Pedro Martinez. And Pedro Martinez used to run shows in the Buffalo, New York area, and I also believe Cleveland, Ohio. But he had a terrific roster of people that when the IWA went out, a lot of these wrestlers you never saw again, but you, you read about them and you heard their names. So at any rate, this is sometime in 1974. They bought syndicated airtime on Channel 9, WOR, and Saturday night at midnight. Who, it's like a midnight show, you know, going to the movies and seeing yeah. Rocky Horror or something like that. <laughs> so it became synonymous as a teenager. I was a teenager. I was in high school. 1974, you can do the math. I was 15 years of age. It became synonymous with not being in school. So pro wrestling <laughs> just was <laughs> this whole moment of freedom. And then the wrestlers that were there... Dick the Bulldog Brower, Ivan Koloff, Ernie the Big Cat Lad. These were guys that were just bigger than life. And if you weren't exposed to wrestling, you were exposed to the ABC Wide World of Sports or Major League Baseball, football. Everybody believed in fair play and sportsmanship. And if these guys were disqualified or they were stopped for whatever reason of doing what they wanted to do in the ring, they would explode and you would say to yourself, oh my gosh, look at this, real genuine emotion. Well, of course, it was real genuine emotion that was somewhat scripted. But I fell in love with the whole thing, and I watched it for months and months. Finally, after probably about a year, the IWA was able to hornswoggle some arenas in the New York City area, and the best one that they could get closest to New York City was Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey. And to this day, I remember it was July the 10th, 1975. I went out to Jersey City to this wrestling show, 11 events, 11 matches. The main event was a two out of three fall match with Mil Mascaris versus Ivan Koloff for the IWA world title. It was outdoors during the match, the two out of three fall match. It started raining. The lights went out. You could hear Koloff and Mascaris slamming one another in the ring. And um, by the end of the night, we were soaked. It was kind of a mini Woodstock. You were on a a dirt field where they had played baseball. You were covered in mud. And when we left, unbeknownst to me, when we came in, there was a little carnival that was set up outside the arena, all the way around the stadium. So it was like a Fellini film. I went into this wrestling show. There's all of this crazy stuff going on, all of these crazy wrestlers. 
And I come out and there's this carnival and there's just lights. And I just felt like I was in a different world. And unfortunately for me, I was hooked. You know, most people that grow up in New York, they grow up in the first hero they have, you know, maybe someone that isn't the main eventer like Chief J. Strongbow, but usually you'll hear Bruno San Martino or, you know, yeah. depending on what your Pedro Morales. So the first guy you had that was your top guy was actually Mil Moscaris because you weren't even watching the Worldwide Wrestling Federation yet. I, I didn't see it at all. The funny thing is, growing up in the in the 70s, it was a weird mix of heroes for me. My three heroes, and um, it, the third one, you may even laugh, but the main guy for me, Mexico's Mil Moscaris, Bruce Lee, and then the third guy was Robert Conrad from the Wild Wild West. I, so those were my three role models for testosterone growing up. Well, you know, I want to get back to wrestling in a second, but you know, later on, you would start a publication called Combat Sports, which ran for such a long time and ended up having a ton of subscribers, but it was Combat Sports. It wasn't wrestling news publication. You didn't just cover wrestling. You covered roller derby and also martial arts. So let me ask you here, when did you first get interested in roller derby and martial arts? Well, martial arts, I had taken, I had participated in. I went up to like an orange belt in judo, and then I transferred over to Kung Fu Silum. Kung Fu. And I had done that probably from the age of maybe 11 until 14 or 15. My wife is still trying to find some footage of me. I was the only child in an all-adult Kung Fu class. And it was, um, it was done for Channel 2 News. And John Stossel had, uh, had interviewed me. And it was a, a, a school called the Jerome Mackey School of Kung Fu or a school of Judo, I think. And he had, we, he had expanded into other martial arts. So I was in the martial arts pretty young, pre-teen, and then, God help me, when wrestling came along, I just kind of dropped everything and just put my energies into uh, following wrestling, which was kind of a bizarre thing. But, um, but the wrestling uh, and the roller derby, roller derby was still around on Sunday afternoons, I think, or Sunday mornings at 10. It was one of those odd time periods where I guess there was airtime that you could buy. It was the equivalent of an infomercial. And I just like the anti-establishment and kind of the carnival atmosphere that roller derby and wrestling um, offered. Um, as far as martial arts, there was a promoter, a guy named Aaron Banks, who used to do a thing called the World of Martial Arts at Madison Square Garden or at the Felt Forum. So we really didn't have like a federation at that time of, you know, karateka or judoka champions, as far as I knew. But I would cover it from time to time if something was happening like an, an exhibition of martial arts. I would cover that and I would mention the names of people who were around at the time, Moses Powell and people like that, if they were appearing at something. So I just tried to combine the three, but it was always predominantly wrestling. There was a little, there might have been 10% roller derby and then a wee bit of martial arts if I could find something that was substantial. Well, to go back to the IWA, so here you are, Saturday nights at midnight, you're watching Jack Reynolds and maybe Tex McKenzie with him hosting the right. IWA show. Is yeah. that when you first really became enamored with Dick the Bulldog Brower? Because later on, you would also run the Dick the Bulldog Brower fan club. Yeah, I think Brower just was, um, you know, now I guess he's politically incorrect. Oh, you know, he was crazy. You can't call him crazy. Very angry man. Let's let's just say <laughs> for, for 2019 purposes, he was a, a very angry, frustrated man in the ring. And I just thought it was um, my two heroes, ironically, look at that. You want to see two different sides of the coin were Mil Moscaris, which was this disciplined, unbelievably streamlined, perfect body. And then I go, go to the opposite. What would be the opposite of that? Well, Dick the Bulldog Brower. So whatever Moscaris was, Bulldog Brower wasn't and vice versa. So it was just kind of a funny mix. I just um, 
looked at it and it was somewhat theater to me in a way. They both expressed two different arcs. One guy who was very much kind of a Napoleon Hill character, which was, you know, do everything right, treat people right, be fair and square. And then there's this other guy where it's no holds barred. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it. So they were two very interesting extreme stories. And I guess as a teenager, those were just very interesting extremes to, um, to explore. So the IWA airs on TV up here on Channel 9, WOR, for a while, and then eventually they aren't able to succeed in New York. They aren't able to break through and get beyond Jersey City, and the WOR spot eventually goes to Vince McMahon Sr. and the World Wide Wrestling Federation. Was that your first exposure to the WWF? Were you already interested in the magazines by this period of time? Well, as far as WWF, I was exposed to it simply because at the time we had VHF, which uh, television, which was six channels, which was CBS, NBC, ABC, and then we had three local stations, which were WNEW, WOR, and um, WPIX, which were the local independents, and a PBS station. And if you look at an old television, there are two dials. That's VHF. UHF is made famous by Weird Al Yankovic. You had to turn this other <laughs> dial, and you had to. It was like trying to be a safe cracker. You would turn the dial back and forth, and you would get in the New York City area channel 41, which was Spanish-speaking programming. Channel 47, Spanish-speaking programming. You got two PBS pseudo PBS channels, channel 21 and 31. And then there was a great channel out of New Jersey with one of my favorite all-time entertainers, Uncle Floyd, which was channel 68. Yeah. And on channel 41, we would get, um, I forget not what night, I think it was Wednesday night, we would get wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles with Spanish narration. But on channel 47, I believe on Sunday afternoon and Tuesday nights was WWF wrestling with Vince McMahon and Antonino Argentina Rocca. So I did eventually want more wrestling. It was only the one hour of IWA wrestling, and I was hungry for more. And um, little by little, just being out and about, you talk to people about wrestling, and there was no way of finding these things out other than somebody willing to admit that they followed wrestling back then, which was a big deal. People did not want to admit that they followed wrestling, but they'd say, oh, you know, on Channel 47 on such and such a night, and Channel 41 was this. So I discovered that, and then I think, I guess it was 79, 78-79, uh, WWF gave up its Tuesday night, and um, so for some reason we had syndicated championship wrestling from Florida, which was terrific. But IWA ignited the flame for me to watch other stuff. But WWF was very predictable after a while. The thing that saved it always in those years was the fact that somebody would get built up to meet Bruno, and then they would be broken down and leave the market, the circuit. And it usually took about eight months. They'd come in, they'd pin Dominic Danucci, they'd beat Gorilla Monsoon on a count out, and then the following month, they'd get the match at the Garden. It might go one match or two matches, and then after that, Strongbow would get a hold of them, they'd lose. Putski would get them, they'd lose. And then they'd go down the line and they'd leave them the circuit. So we always had a fresh group of villains coming in, but we really had a stale roster of good guys. And uh, it became very predictable. So the thing that saved WWF at the time was just we had a great roster of bad guys coming in. And um, they, to me, didn't compare to the IWA. The IWA had a nice mix. They gave you some pretty decent main events for the time period. Every show had something interesting. It'd be a six-man tag where you'd see all of the main guys more or less get given an opportunity to uh, wrestle one another. Maybe the decision was not very satisfying. But the fact is, you got to see main guys collide with one another as opposed to just a never-ending onslaught of 
a top guy versus a uh, a guy who's just destined to lose week after week. So it was an interesting mix, and um, it's a shame that they couldn't make a go of it. But um, it was it was great while it lasted. You bring up Uncle Floyd. It is really amazing that considering how much wrestling is on TV nowadays, there was a time where a loony Skip Rooney was on TV more than any professional wrestling show. That's right, right, and probably better known. <laughs> in the New York area, maybe. <laughs> so, I can just see the rubber chicken now and asking it to get dressed. <laughs> well, before we go off on an Uncle Floyd, uh, see, I'm a ping pong ball. Like I said, you got to keep her <laughs> hurting me in. Lasso me in. We'll go off and do 20 minutes on Uncle Floyd. Well, you know, here we are. We're in the late 70s, and now the IWA is no longer in existence. Although later on, it would do some shows in the South. It was no longer really an entity here in the Northeast. And you are now watching other wrestling, including the wrestling on Spanish international television. When do you become involved in the fan club scene? And when do you become involved with the WFIA? I started, um, I actually sent, um, here we're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. There was a magazine uh, printer, publisher, and distributor named John Santa Angelo Jr. And he was in Derby, Connecticut. And one of the things, one of his components of his publishing empire, if you want to call it that, was something called Charlton Comics. And I'm just using this as a point of reference. And Charlton was kind of like last port of call for artists and writers in the comic book industry. In fact, I think when Steve Ditko, one of the co-creators of Spider-Man, left Marvel, and, and I don't know if he was working DC, he went there and it was volume work. They would pay you as much as you could crank out. Well, having said all of that, they had three wrestling magazines and they were pretty bad by all standards they were big book of wrestling wrestling review and wrestling guide and i guess around 1975 or 76 somewhere in there it had to be 70 76 i sent in a couple of articles and lo and behold they were published and i actually got a check it wasn't anything terrific but it was like wow it was actually in a magazine and there's my name and um i started with that and then I was a subscriber to Tom Burke's Global Wrestling, and I thought Tom did it. And Tom and I had become friends over the years um, from that time. I guess that was right after I started getting in. I wanted to know more about what was going on out there. So I think he was the first newsletter that I had picked up. And uh, when you would buy tickets to go, I started going to wrestling at the Garden because you wanted to be at something live. It was still, it was very exciting, and it was cheap. I think a ringside ticket was like 10 bucks, if that. But the thing is, the next day, you had to wait online in front, in, in by the box office at Madison Square Garden, uh, and the, the window would open at 9 o'clock. So people would literally be lining up at 7 o'clock in the morning before going to work, before I was going to high school. I'd stop over there, and you'd be online, and you'd see the same people month after month waiting to get tickets. And I started talking to people, and what about the matches the night before? It was Monday night wrestling at the Garden. Tuesday morning, the tickets would go on sale. And um, lo and behold, on the line were a couple of guys that did newsletters. One guy became unbelievably, my, one of my best friends has since moved over to Paris, France, and we have lost touch. But a guy named Bill Hill, who did Empire State Wrestling, which was a really terrific newsletter. Yeah. And then two other guys, uh, Kenny Levitt and Paul Abenetti, that did something called the Spinning Toehold Report. And we would all be waiting online to get our tickets the next day at the Garden. And um, back in the day with the wrestling magazines, I kept the tradition alive right up until the very end of pen pals and um, uh, fan club newsletters, you know, that sort of thing. So I was buying things that I would see 
uh, listed, or I would contact people in certain markets and say, listen, I can send you a Madison Square Garden ad out of the Daily News or the New York Post in exchange for a Memphis ad or whatever. So we began sw- I began swapping with a lot of people, and I was accumulating a lot of monthly match results and uh, newspaper clippings. Also, in conjunction with that, in the Times Square area, there was an international newsstand where you could get mag- newspapers from all around the world, and not only around the world, but throughout the 50 states. So if you knew Monday night was Memphis, well, maybe you pick up a Sunday paper and you get the ad for Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, I pick up a, a, a newspaper from Puerto Rico, and I knew what the nights were for certain arenas of, of uh, Carlos Colon's promotion, uh, Portland, Oregon. It was a ex- very expensive proposition, but I was picking this stuff up. And then finally, I, um, the very first issue of Combat Sports, the, uh, the headline was Bob Ackland defeats superstar Billy Graham for the for the tie, the world title, um, I had been picking up ads and getting the results or making contact with people. So I was, it had gone on for probably a good six months to a year prior to it. So that was March of 78 when the first issue of Combat Sports came out. But I did a little bit of writing in 76, 77 for those magazines uh, that were through Charlton. And I also did a little bit for Norman Keitzer's Wrestling News. I remember doing something on Kevin Sullivan, and I also did something on Dino Bravo. But for the most part, I was more fixated on being a newsletter person. It really just, everything else became kind of a byproduct for it. And then I had extra magazines and whatnot. So then the mail order business started picking up from that. So in some respects, selling back issue magazines, and then I was taking photos. That became kind of the tail wagging the dog. I was just doing a lot of uh, I mean, it wasn't big bucks. Things were kind of low, low priced. If you ever come across any uh, combat sports, but I was unbelievably busy as a, as a high schooler, and then later as a college student with the wrestling. Besides trying to get an education, you know. So go figure. In terms of the newsletters, you mentioned Tom Burke's Global Wrestling. Who else and what else was an influence on you in combat sports? Were you getting the Terry Justice newsletters? You mentioned Bill Hill and Empire State Wrestling. A little earlier. Terry Justice, yeah, I met, I got uh, through Tom Burke. I met Terry Justice, and Terry was unbelievable. I don't know how he did what he was able to do, but um, it was something that I wasn't. Those kind of newsletters, I was very in awe of, like uh, Terry Justice or the Weeklies. I didn't have that sort of drive that I really wanted to analyze. Uh, and Terry really didn't do it. It was some of the later newsletters. Terry really was a lot of news clippings. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of clippings. But I knew Terry. We met. We we corresponded. We swapped newsletters. We swapped newspaper clippings. And um, a big part of that really came through. I think Tom introduced me and said that I'd like to know him and he'd like to know me. We met at the WFIA in 1979, I think. I only went to two WFIA conventions, 79 and in 80. I was in Memphis and then Atlanta. And um, I knew Terry at that, and then I don't know what year he passed away. It was kind of shortly after that, wasn't it? He died in the 80s, I think. 81 or 82, I forget which. Yeah, so so that was it. I think I just caught him at the tail end. And uh, super nice guy, unbelievably knowledgeable about wrestling. And uh, that meant something back then. You know, I, I, I think about having wrestling knowledge now comparable to if you were a cab driver in London and you had to know the not you had to get the knowledge and you had to know all of this stuff and how important and how it separated you from people that you knew something and now GPS makes all of that you know <laughs> big deal so you know how to get from you know to the high street big deal everybody does so i think you know back in the day you met someone who knew this and that and who had the title and what happened in St. Louis last week oh my god it was like you know this guy is 
come down from uh, from on high. You bring up the WFIA conventions in 79 and 80. Those are both legendary conventions because you got to see history-making events during those trips. In 79, you were in the studio for the debut of the Freebirds. And then yes. you got to see the Freebirds come out for the very first time to music at the Mid-South yes. Coliseum that Monday. But it was also the first time, I'm going to guess, that you saw Hulk Hogan, or at that time, Terry the Hulk Boulder, correct? Terry the Hulk Boulder. I went to the uh, the Saturday morning TV uh, in Memphis. And afterwards, uh, I'm with a group of people, and we're at like one of these $3.99 steak, baked potato, and cornbread places. And I'm sitting down, and all of a sudden, who comes and sits next to me but uh, Terry the Hulk Boulder and Dizzy Boulder, who later became Brutus Beefcake. And we start, I started talking to them, and I talked to him about New York and, you know, how, you know how, and, of course, the thing that he probably was tired of hearing at the time, how much he looked like superstar Billy Graham, and he had the tie-dye and whatnot. We swapped information at that moment right there in Memphis, and um, I went over. I put a resume together for him, and I got his statistics, his height, his weight, what, who he had worked for. Uh, he had worked Gold Coast Wrestling. He didn't. Ha- he didn't really have that big a resume at the time. Um, um, I'm trying to think who else he worked for, but um, he was there, and um, I took a whole bunch of pictures for him of him. WWF uh, was, I think, it wasn't. It was Capital Wrestling Corporation at the time. When I came back to New York, I went over to their office. It was kind of like a welfare hotel. It was all the way over on the like right off from Port Authority and 42nd Street, which is a, a, a totally different world from the Port Authority of today. Not that it's that great now, but even back in 79, it was horrible. And I went up into the office and in there was Angelo Savaldi, Arnold Skolan, maybe another of one or two people. And I gave him the resume. I gave him the photos. And um, that was at the end of that was um, September, I guess, or August of 79. Hogan came in December of 79 under uh, the management of Fred Blassie. And you maintained a relationship with him when he came in, and you would become the president of his fan club. How did that come about? And this was a thing that you had to do back in the days when you had a fan club. Did you get a permission slip signed by Hulk Hogan? I did. In fact, I went to, I guess it was, um, they did two TV tapings. It was Allentown, Pennsylvania, and they also had one in Philadelphia. And I think I was at the Philadelphia arena for the TV taping. And I, when he came in, I missed his, I missed his debut. I didn't know he was coming in. We weren't in touch, but I went to the next one and it was, I know it was December 4th and I got him to sign a permission slip and it went on for quite a few years. Truthfully, Hogan and I did not see one another that much. I was, you know, I was a college student. Uh, I was doing all this other stuff and we would bump into one another from time to time. Ironically enough, the person that I really kept in touch with throughout the years and I got baby pictures and all this other stuff was his mother, Ruth. I don't know if she's still with us. She may have probably passed on because this was a while back. So it was his mother and father that I predominantly dealt with. But we would bump into one another from time to time and we talk a little bit. But he had a crazy schedule when he was here. I mean, they really utilized him to the max prior to becoming a, a, a baby face when he was here as a heel. He was here and then he was gone. Then he went to, I think, he went to Vern Gagne directly from here, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Vern Gagne and obviously continuing his New Japan commitments. Yeah, and the New Japan. And in fact, I remember at the time he was really nervous about going to Japan. they have given him all these horror stories about, you know, what bathrooms were like over there and what you had to sleep on and all of this. So I guess they were ribbing him and scaring him that it was going to be hideous. <laughs> so I caught him just prior to going over to New Japan, and he was kind of apprehensive about it. 
when you would later see, I don't know, maybe late 82, 1983, 84, somewhere in that period of time when you would see what he would become as the babyface Hulk Hogan, when you would see Hulkamania before Vince McMahon claimed to invent it, when it was running wild in the AWA, what did you think? Because obviously he was so much different and much more dynamic as an interview and in terms of how comfortable he was in the ring, what did you think with the evolution of Hulk Hogan in the early 1980s? I think to some extent what had happened was the promotion itself, in my mind, eclipsed my thoughts about him. I still more or less saw who he was, and then I saw the development and the evolution of the character from the heel to the baby face, and even the way he spoke. I mean, obviously, he did some elocution lessons. He changed his sound. So there was a lot that had changed there. The only thing that I became very focused on was I just saw the implosion of the business, uh, and, it, and it was coming. It was more and more on the horizon that you know, little local promotions were little by little unable to make a go of it. And places that they didn't have to work that hard, they'd bring in some new faces, were struggling. And once McMahon started siphoning off the best talent, I could see the handwriting on the wall that you know we were going to wind up with fewer and fewer promotions. I didn't even think the WWF or WWF, WWF would survive over time because I thought they cannibalize all the good talent and then where would it all come from? And I, I think we may be seeing that now, but it took one heck of a long ride to get there. You would end up, because of the Hulk Hogan fan club, having some run-ins with the WWF, then Titan Sports. In the summer of 86, they contact you, and I saw the letter because you reprinted it in Combat Sports. Yeah, yeah. Really tried to intimidate you into giving up the Hulk Hogan fan club. What happened yeah, to all I, of that? All of that, it went back and forth for a while, and then um, more or less, it, we, we just kind of, it was the parting of the ways eventually. They, they, it was a cease and desist letter that they had sent out to other people, and I just kind of told them, you know, go see Hulk Hogan about this. And um, it was left kind of up in limbo. They never came after me per se, to say, uh, you know, we're going to create legal proceedings against you. But um, I don't remember when we just kind of, I just kind of let it go because other things had opened up. I became more and more involved with wrestling magazines at the time. Uh, Mike Ballou had contacted me when wrestling had taken off. And I guess that was after WrestleMania 1. I'm bad on the dates, but it was the early, you know, mid-80s, 84, 85, 86. I became involved with him and... Um, and then I was running ads also in those magazines, and everything just kind of had taken off. It was really a, a, a really great period to be uh, writing stuff and also to be running ads. I had quite a, a few ads in there, and it wasn't something that uh, wasn't really a big part of the I wasn't, you know, I didn't have tens of thousands of fans. It was never something that was that big. There were maybe hundreds of fans, but I don't think it was. Also, the, the price of it was, it was like a lost leader. I would you get like a membership card and some photos and some newsletters and all. And when all was said and done, it was really, if anyone bought additional things like photographs and back issue old magazines, and that's really where the money was for me. So it wasn't something that I say, listen, I got to hold on to this thing. This is a, this is a cash cow. It really wasn't the case. And, um, the newsstand magazines more or less were uh, my bread and butter at the time. And it was, a, it was a, a place to be, was to be on the newsstand. Um, Combat sports did well. I mean, we kept picking up, picking up. And I think at the end, um, I probably had a, somewhere between six and 7,000 subscribers, which is pretty amazing. I, we, I never took really any ads out anywhere for that thing. That was a word of mouth. But as, as much as it picked up, it took a precipitous drop. I don't remember one in the 90s. It just all of a sudden, bang, maybe the late 90s. And um, 
it, again, it's one of those things where you have to say it was of its time, and I'm not going to try to resuscitate it. Uh, if it's if something's you know had its moment and it was doing well, try to put that energy into something else, which has always been my philosophy. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the Hogan thing, we just kind of eventually uh, parted ways. It wasn't anything uh, really volatile. Um, they made an effort. I think it was just when they went after anything that appeared to them being an infringement of their trademark. And um, I just tried to make a little bit of a big thing out of it because I thought it looked good. You know, it was good, it was good copy. And um, it, just, it just didn't go anywhere. You brought up the late Mike Ballou. I want to ask you about him and Wrestling Eye in a little bit, but let's go back a little bit. The 1980 WFIA convention, you had one of the most memorable angles of all time, the Ole Anderson turn on Dusty Rhodes in the cage in the Omni. What do you remember about that night? The audience was, thank God they were in the cage. There was a lot of stuff being thrown. In comparison to a WWF show, um, it, I was more enthralled with the audience because the audience really was just kind of out there. It kind of reminds me of when I see that footage of the the riot, I think, in Cleveland, which involved Ox Baker and Johnny Powers and Ernie Ladd, and yeah. people were throwing things in the ring. Well, you had a cage. Uh, uh, it was in a cage, right? It was a cage match. Yeah. The only, and I just remember stuff getting thrown at the cage and splattering and just we were back away. The WFIA did not get like primo rings, ringside tickets. We were kind of elevated ringside. So we were getting the full show, which was what was going on in the ring. And then all of this carnage that was being thrown up at the uh, cage. So, but for somebody going to WWF uh, matches, it really was very, explosive. it was very hot. I remember the arena was very hot temperature wise. And I just think everything led to people being really, at the edge of their seats and then getting off their seats and some of them, you know, wanting to, that was the difference. I don't think that that exists today and I could be wrong. I, I don't go to matches today, but that level of infuriating people to get them so involved that they would, you know, I remember seeing things where people would climb the outside of a cage to get in and not at this show, but, um, in, in, in other, uh, uh, footage that I had seen that people would get enraged. People would really, you know, be immersed in the show and the story. So um, it was a, those WFIA uh, shows that they had lined up were terrific shows. The 1980 WFIA convention in Atlanta would be covered in a magazine that you would become involved with. It didn't last too long, but it's really, really good called the Wrestling Exchange. And one of the reasons I like this magazine is because from 1980, it exposes a lot of things that other magazines wouldn't, even if it's little things like actually applying the date to when the event that you're giving the results for took place. What do you remember about the wrestling exchange, Gary Mancuso, Gary Kamensack, and that whole scene? Uh, I had become friends with Gary Kamensack, and I knew Gary Mancuso a little bit. They were involved at one time uh, doing the Body Press magazine, uh, program in Detroit, and he wanted to do something that... Um, I don't remember who his partner was in this. Was I don't know if it was Gary Kamensack, but there was someone else. They did a, mag a new um, magazine that was not really a newsstand oriented, but it was a subscription based with some individual independent circulation on in retail and newsstands. Uh, he had a friend that did something called Goldmine, which was a music magazine. Yeah. And they had a lot of ads for you could sell old records and whatnot. And what he, what Gary had uh, envisioned was he was going to do that with wrestling and he wasn't going to do it through newsstand. He wanted to try and get it into arenas uh, around the country that they would take it and then put an insert for their program lineup. And um, he tried valiantly for 
I guess, eight months or maybe 10 months. And he even came to New York with a station wagon full of wrestling exchanges. And we were standing, we were hawking before the matches and after the matches. And um, we sold some, but it wouldn't be enough to. I mean, first of all, it was illegal. We could have all been arrested for hawking <laughs> magazines out in front of the door. But hey, I was 21 years old at the time. You know, what do I care about that stuff? But I think he saw the handwriting on the wall and um, uh, he ultimately gave it up. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very hard nut uh, to crack if you don't have newsstand ri- distribution. I mean, even, even in this day and age, from a cyber perspective, um, just getting your message out there, you're really more or less at the mercy of Google. And, you know, you're paying as somebody in, in another field, and I pay for Google AdWords. It's, it's unbelievably hard. Your channels of distribution are always the factor for you to make it or break it. I mean, even in, with my magazines through the years, uh, as wrestling kind of imploded and went into fewer and fewer hands, the same thing happened with magazine distribution. Uh, wholesalers were fewer and fewer hands. Retailers were disappearing. And then you wound up with Borders and Barnes and & Noble and uh, Tower Records. And then little by little, a lot of those were disappearing. So I was always running in front of, I was like a, a, a Japanese game show contestant. I was always running in front of the big boulder <laughs> trying to avoid being squashed by either retail uh, wholesale distributors or just the, you know, the, the outlets or the business itself. We were having fewer and fewer uh, promotions. So you're just kind of dodging all of these bullets and boulders. You know, it seems like there's a straight line from the wrestling exchange through all the other magazines you would be involved in, in that you tended to not insult the intelligence of the reader. You used wrestlers, real names. Of course, you know, we'll talk about wrestling. Eye in a little bit, you would do something there with wrestler jargon, with the lingo, that would be a groundbreaking piece in a wrestling magazine. Did you have a general philosophy about how to treat and how to write towards the readers of the wrestling magazine? I, I left enough space in between the lines so that you, I didn't want to destroy it for anyone. So in the early days, even even if you look at wrestling, uh, New Wave Wrestling and the later books, I never really came out and tried to say, you know, the scriptwriters did the. I think once I insulted the scriptwriters at the WWE, I gave them the Turco Award, and that was right at the end of the run. But uh, beyond that, I never really went out of my way to say, this guy knew this was going to happen, or this guy did this, you know, to make this guy look good. We, we avoided that sort of thing, but we wanted to say, you know, a child came into the world and the doctor slapped it on the behind, and they didn't christen the name The, the Undertaker. You know, there was a real person behind this thing, you know. So I think that people kind of said, yeah, yeah, you know, The Undertaker or Sting. Hey, that can't be his real name. Or people wanted to know, you know, if people were married. That was a big thing. Everybody wanted to know, you know, well, predominantly, well, I guess, women. But you get that. Is this person married? Is that person? And uh, that would kind of show up in the in the um, the letters page later. But I, I think a big part of it was, yeah, you know, I came in just with results. I gave match results. And then if something happened, um, you know, I covered it in the, in the newsletter. I was very careful. I didn't, I never got really that crazy about the unsubstantiated stuff. I mean, newsletters later really were able to cover stuff and I don't know how they were able to get, um, you know, substantial uh, uh, facts. Like if something happened, for example, like Ken Patera and Mr. Saito throwing a boulder through the window of a McDonald's and getting arrested. Well, that was in the paper. And I was able to report that. But if somebody else got involved in something like, you know, uh, the equivalent of casting couch, uh, a wrestler, you know, um, uh, 
taking advantage of somebody underage or whatever. I How can you report this? I can't really substantiate it. It was always this kind of nebulous world of hearsay and gossip. So it would really take a police blotter or something in the paper that I w- would would cover it. But I thought that certain things were interesting or, you know, uh, that was that would be, you know, an, an unusual story. But um, if somebody left a promotion or they showed up somewhere else under another name, I think people like to know what happened. You know, Johnny Rods was out in the West Coast and he's Java Rook and he's winning. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> go figure that. You know, so, um, you know, we I do stuff like that. And then I think people were able to piece things together, two and two or four. Hey, Java, he's Java Rook out there. He's here. Maybe there's a little bit more theatrical elements to it. Um, I don't think I, they needed me to lead them down that road. But I, I did kind of, you know, connect the dots in some respects, but without trying to hurt anybody's. Um, it wasn't like I wanted to do a magician's newsletter and then tell people this is how it's done. The elephant is, you know, didn't really disappear behind that that curtain. So I, I was careful about it. But I, there were people in the wrestling business that really took exception to it. I know um, Jerry Lawler didn't like the real names thing. Uh, that got back to me and a few other guys didn't like the idea of the real names. And I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, you know, come on. You know, I brought up Mike Ballou earlier, and of course he would be with Wrestling Eye Magazine and he would bring you in to Wrestling yeah. Eye Magazine. And you guys in, I think, 85 would do a, I guess, legendary piece on wrestler jargon where you would use all the terminology that the wrestlers use and introduce that to the newsstand readers was that, yeah, yeah was there a lot of internal deliberation about doing this talk about the genesis of the article and did you get a lot of negative feedback from the wrestling industry about it we were left to our own devices anything that i did back in the day for any of the magazine publishers that i worked for uh and and including i worked under mike mike was d- uh, directly with gems inc I worked, he, I would just bring him material that he wanted. We would go out and we'd talk about it, but um, there was no one, we could have more or less put anything out there. Nobody was, nobody knew wrestling. I mean, in fact, Mike was more of a boxing person than he was a wrestling. He was doing another magazine called Boxing Beat. And then uh, the um, second tier magazine with wrestling, I was another magazine called Wrestling Fury that they had. Uh, Gems Inc. had that as well. But anything that I would throw his way, uh, he would go with it. He really, he was, he was fine with it. He was more of a boxing person, as I say. But we went to matches together. We'd have a good time. We went to the Meadowlands, and I remember we met um, the guy who was doing main event wrestling at the time. I forget what his real name was. He used the name Stately Wayne Manor. Oh, and Ernie I remember, Santilli. Yeah, and there was another guy with him, Mike Edison, I think. Mike Edison was a wrestling's main event, and Ernie Santilli as Stately Wayne Manor would end up with Wrestling World. Okay, and I remember we were at the Meadowlands one night, and we were sitting all up in the press box and uh, drinking beers. And I and Mike was Mike Ballou was cursing me out because he said, "Why don't you? I could go down around ringside." And I said, "Well, I got this 400 millimeter lens. Let me just take pictures from up here." I really wasn't, you know, a guy that really wanted to put that, you know, be, be um, you know, scooting around the ring where guys are flying off from the top and whatnot. I was I was quite content to go to the matches and have a good time and cover it and then come up with a point of view of, you know, uh, what had happened or, or come up with a storyline for whatever, you know, if we had some pictures, I'd look at a, a picture and I'd say, oh, you know, I got a story to go for that picture. So uh, it was more along the lines of that. I came to it from a different perspective. I wasn't sitting there scribbling down, you know, somebody did a drop kick at uh, three minutes, 27 seconds, and then somebody put him in a Boston Crab at four minutes and three seconds. I really just would say so-and-so won the match. Even with the newsletter, it was, you know, 
Bob Acklin wins the title from superstar Billy Graham. Atomic knee drop and pinfall. Billy Graham foot over, draped over the rope, you know, and whatever the time was. I wouldn't go on for page after page of what happened and this happened and that. I just left it. Uh, you got the news. There you go. Mike Ballou obviously passed away a long time ago. What can you tell the listeners about him? What, what kind of Craig, guy was he? Super guy. We, we just clicked. We were both pretty much more or less the same age. Um, he died slightly before his 30th birthday. And uh, we just hit it off. We were just, um, he grew up in Queens. I was from the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So we were just kind of regular schnooky guys. Um, he just fell into wrestling eye, I think, as a result of, I think it was Boxing Beat was the name of the boxing magazine. And um, the publisher wanted to capitalize on the popularity of wrestling. I think WrestleMania had, I don't remember when wrestling eye officially started. Was it 84, 85? I, you know? I want to say 85, but it could have been 84, but it was definitely yeah, not so, by 85. But I just know that, you know, they just were in the right place at the right time. It was right after the first WrestleMania, and bang, they took off, and and it, and it really did well, and they got distribution, and um, we just had a good time. We had a good two, three years. Uh, Mike uh, was killed in a car a crash. He was going home. I put him in a cab. I sent him home from Midtown, and rather than let the cab take him all the way home, he got out to get his car uh, wherever it was parked, and on his way driving from where the car was parked, to his home, he hit a telephone pole and was killed. And it was right around Christmas time. It was unbelievably horrible. It was just like one of the darkest days to this day in my life. Um, and we were out that night before celebrating. It was right around Christmas time. And um, they were they had asked me to uh, take over uh, Wrestling Eye and Wrestling Fury. And I just didn't feel it was something to do. I would be walking in a really good friend's um, a dead man's pair of shoes. So I left, I, I, and I was finishing up college at the time. Um, I went to the University of Oregon and came back. I lost credits. So it was elongated. I was not a spring chicken anymore. I was in my late 20s at the time, and then I was um, looking for work. And believe it or not, there was an ad, a tiny little ad in the New York Times, I guess at, in the end of uh, 86 or beginning of 87, that they were looking for people who could, um, they called it magazine packaging, who could put together whole magazines. So I had all of these contacts, sent off a resume, and I didn't hear for months and months. Finally, uh, this publisher, uh, Mike Morse, called me in, and um, I had taken over. Paul Heyman was doing Wrestling Power, and whatever happened between him and this publisher, uh, Paul Heyman left. I think he was working as a manager in Memphis for a while at that time, Paul. And um, I took over Wrestling Power, and then he wanted to launch some more magazines, and this was 86, 87, and uh, I was doing Wrestling Power, then Celebrity Wrestling, Wrestling Fever, Wrestling Life, Double Action Wrestling, and then a magazine, which I always call a, a hairy-chested men's magazine called Crossfire. It was kind of a, <laughs> uh, a it was the kind of our, a low budget. We really had no money for equivalent of Soldier of Fortune, but we predominantly dealt with martial arts in there. Some martial artists that I had known and interviewed them, and some technique and guns and war stories, things like that. And I was with him until uh that was 86 i guess until 90 his distributor went out of business we were doing well they were with a company called select select went bankrupt and then we went over to i think fdc which was uh, flint distributing larry flint and he um took over uh gold belt wrestling which was around in the 80s but somehow mike got the rights to gold belt and i was doing gold belt and power slam wrestling and um 
That only lasted about a year or two. And at the same time, I worked for someone at Lusa Hadi, uh, was contacted to do three magazines for a publisher around 1990. And for whatever reason, I think I was easy to find because I was still being listed in the fan club department. You know, in the newsletter, you'd find me, my address. I was one of the rare people. So he contacted me and I said, I have three magazines. One of them, the very worst titles of all time, which was Official International Wrestling Insider. <laughs> and he had another title called, uh, well, I had one that's even worse than that. I'll tell you, that's one of the very last ones. Uh, but uh, And then uh, there was um, Wrestling Confidential, and there's a third one, which I cannot remember what that was. But that was um, that was between um, 90 and 92. And then uh, New Wave Wrestling, I said, well, I don't want to work for anyone else anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And there's a word for that. It's called stupid. I just, I just, as Mark Twain would say, an entrepreneur is somebody who wants to work 16 hours a day for himself in lieu of working eight hours for someone else. So that's pretty much sums it all up. But it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun, but uh, it ran for about 14 years. Uh, Right near the end, I was contacted by an art director uh, that I had worked uh, for, for Mike Morris with Celebrity Wrestling and all. And we did a magazine that lasted for about a year and a half or less called Toxic T-O-X-X-X-I-C. And I gave it some alliteration to it. I don't remember what the, it was all going to, the, the initials were going to stand for. But it lasted, and then near the end, it was it changed over to Wrestling 2000, which um, I didn't like the first name. I didn't like the trim size. You know, people got very uh, bombastic, like, wow, when Bill After went over to wow. Uh, great looking magazine, oversized. And I, and my thing was always, I was very aware of, even with New Wave, you know, you're always fighting the fight. I measured the size of a candy store rack space. How wide could my magazine be? How tall did it need to be? How high up did my masthead, the, uh, the title have to be so that you could see it? So there were a lot of things like that, that I, I needed to take into account. Uh, wow and toxic. They were these oversized magazines. They didn't fit into the racks. And I don't know, uh, I know they, uh, wow, and that whole, they did a whole lot of crazy stuff, Yo-Yo Mag World and some stuff. And I know they wound up pretty much in the hole at the end. But these guys were smart enough that um, once they started seeing their numbers come in, I think the returns had to be huge on Toxic because I never saw it in a, in a rack at a, uh, at a candy store anywhere. It was just too big. It just didn't fit into the, uh, the containers that would hold your magazine. So um, that was the last one, but that was the absolute worst title, Toxic. Being a guy in New York City in the wrestling magazine business, what was your relationship like with some of the others in the area, whether it was Bill After or the staff at Stanley Weston's magazines or George Napolitano or any of the other guys shooting ringside? What kind of relationship did you have with the other magazine guys in New York? Didn't really have a relationship with them. The only thing I remember on on occasion from time to time, uh, Mike Ballou and I would walk into the... um, Oh, man, what was it? The uh, the Hotel Edison was a bar, and there was another a Holiday Inn where the wrestlers were staying up in the 40s in, uh, on the far west side. And I remember uh, Georgia Bill went running over to some wrestlers to say that we had come into the bar. And, like, you know, I guess they were hoping that these guys were going to kick the snot out of us. I don't know. But um, that was it. We really, we were in our own circles. We, I really, you know, I respect George and Bill as I think they're unbelievable photographers. They did what I certainly couldn't do. I don't think I could sit through 5,000 Sting versus Ric Flair matches and take pictures of it every <laughs> night, but they took unbelievable shots. I mean, they must have some unbelievable uh, archive of negatives, you know, that they can do something with. But um, we didn't have that kind of um, relationship. It's kind of funny. I guess we were all 
kind of territorial. They didn't they weren't going to get anything from us. We weren't going to get anything from them. And I wasn't going to bother them or anything or, you know, but I, I do remember that going into the bar and having seeing them go over and kind of pointing us out. And uh, but nothing happened. You know, we I talked to a few people. I remember talking a bit with Piper before he really would get crazy in the wee hours. You know, you knew when to kind of hold them and fold them, you know, <laughs> and um, we were just we were just kind of having a good time. And if we dealt with people or we didn't do no one ever came I put it this way. I never had anyone approach me and, you know, grab me by the lapels or anything. I, did, I didn't do that kind of work. At least I didn't think so. But maybe some people did. I think the. The thing about the real names was a problem for some, but I, I think, you know, in, in hindsight now, if anybody looks at that, it's so mild. You mentioned Paul Heyman a little earlier. Of course, he would be working for the magazines in the 1980s. He starts as a photographer. I think he takes over the Fred Blassie fan club for a little while, and then he works for Norm Keitzer, does some other stuff, and then he becomes a manager. Did you have any dealings with him, with a young Paul Heyman in New York? Little bit, very little. Um, there were a couple of con uh, conventions in New York City. If, ironically enough, things never could, on that level, gel in New York. You would think this would have been a great market where you could, like, more or less like Comic Con and all of that. You know, I, I, I tried to develop kind of a collectibles market with wrestling just in terms of selling stuff. But um, there would be a convention here or there. And I remember one or two shows, Paul and I had tables next to one another. and We were selling magazines and photos and this and that. And we talk a little bit. And he seemed a bit of a, uh, at the time, kind of a bit of a, a hype master. You know, I think he wanted to make like he was in the biz. And he was on the same level that I was at that time. And I just thought he would, to some extent, he just was a little bit show busy at the time. But um, but nice enough, you know. But we really kind of ships that passed. We were kind of cordial with one another, and, and then that was about it. Who were some of the guys in the business or around the business that you did develop really good relationships with? Uh, some of it was with wrestlers. Um, of course, Bulldog Brower and I really became friends. We kept in touch a lot. And um, when he, it was actually when he came, it was after his IWA days, he was working. He used to come in on occasion for a group um, that was promoted by a, a guy that owned a sporting goods store in New York City, Osvaldo Vega. And he had something called Vega International Wrestling Promotions. And he used to bring Jack Venino in from Santa Domingo, which was a really big name. I mean, Jack Venino would, you know, pull 20, 30,000 people in Santa Domingo. Yeah. And here they were once a month. They would have a show over at the Symphony Theater, the uh, which is now an artsy-fartsy um, showcase uh, theater for um, theater and poetry and, and whatnot. And that was on 95th Street and Broadway. And um, Osvaldo Vega would bring Jack Venino in. He would bring in Bulldog Brower, Dr. Jerry Graham. Uh, so he brought in names of people, and it was um, under the radar of the WWF. He was a licensed promoter, uh, and he did a couple of other shows here and there. But the, he would fly guys in for this, um, you know, more or less the size of a movie theater. I don't know what it what it held. Uh, probably less than a thousand people, you know, maybe 800 people. And um, I met Brower there. I met Dr. Jerry Graham there. And um, I became friends with a lot of guys on the independent circuit. And um, and then they started using some WWF guys from time to time. I was friends with the Iron Sheik back in the day years ago. He was a really super cool guy. Um, it kind of seemed like he went off the rails somewhere, but at the time I knew him, he seemed like a really nice guy. And, um, you know, we went out afterwards, you go over to like Chinese restaurant after the, after the matches and, you know, Brower, the Iron Sheik, I'm trying to remember who else. Superstar Billy Graham during his later reign when he, not his reign, but his later tour when he came back after the, um, the hip surgery, 
I had become friends with Billy at the time for a little while. But it's it's not anything that uh, lasted. You know, if somebody left the circuit, it was kind of, it was game over. Brower was about the main guy that I kept consistently in touch with. But if somebody came in and I was friendly with them for a while and they were here and then they were gone, that was pretty much it. Dr. Jerry Graham is a very popular figure here on this show. You have any good Dr. Jerry Graham stories? Dr. Jerry Graham, um, I went out with him a couple of times in the mid in Midtown, but <laughs> you couldn't keep, I mean, I was a young guy. And um, maybe now I could hold my own against him, but I, I seriously doubt it. He'd just get rowdier and rowdier as the night went on. We went to a couple of bars. And, you know, it was like a bad, bad Leroy Brown uh, a cast, uh, central casting. It was me and him and really a bunch of and I, I don't remember. I think there was another one or two other guys, somebody else he knew from, from somewhere. And we went out drinking, and we wound up in this topless bar. The Metropola Gogo, I think it was, and it was they were up on stage, and you were at the. In fact, the Odd Couple, I think, uh, the original Odd Couple film with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, uh, filmed in there, and the girls were up on the stage, and you're down around the bar, and Dr. Jerry Graham was just pontificating about what it was like to be a wrestler and how he could, you know, nobody could. He's indestructible, and as the night went on, he's challenging people and all, and then I knew <laughs> it was time to leave. So, uh, and that had happened on a few occasions. He actually was living for a while. I don't know if you know this with uh, Terry Justice upstate. Yeah, I did know. And um, uh, they could not get rid of him. He lived <laughs> there. And um, from what I understand, he took over the living room and had a large plastic garbage container uh, right directly in front of him. And as he would drink beers, he would just lob these empty cans into the uh, into this can, uh, garbage can. And um, Terry, I think, was Terry was living home with his folks at the time. He was not he was not out on his own. And eventually, Jerry Graham, they got him out by hook or crook, and he wound up out in the L.A. area again near the end. And uh, But he was living with Terry Justice for a while. And I think he would go out to L.A. and be with another popular guy here on the show, Kurt Brown. That's when Kurt would hook up with him and hang out with Kurt, him. Kurt, I knew, too. I lived out in uh, Oregon for a while, and uh, Kurt and I, had, Kurt came to New York. We were friends for a while. We lost contact. I know he became Harry Hell. I think Dr. Jerry Graham wanted to convince him to become the Medfly, and I don't think that ever happened. But um, I, I, Kurt and I knew one another. I knew Kurt when he had bleached blonde hair. <laughs> you know, I better make a correction here because Kurt will get mad. Kurt was not, in fact, Harry Hell. Harry Hell. Was oh, he not. wasn't. There was another wrestler named Harry Hell, and I only point this out because Kurt and a few other people, Tom Hankins, I think, has talked about him, have all insisted that Harry Hell was one of the worst professional wrestlers of all time. So I want to make sure I stress that Kurt Brown was never Harry Hill. Is that true? This isn't, a, this isn't an Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton story, is it by any chance? Where they're not, they're not one and the same? <laughs> no, they are certainly two different people, because Kurt has actually talked here on the show about how awful Harry Hell was in the ring. And I've seen a picture of him with his big blonde afro with Luthez. That's quite a picture uh, to see. Harry or Kurt? Kurt. Oh, okay, because I don't even know really. I saw like mimeograph photos of Harry Hell, and I had to take people's word for it that it was Kurt. Did Kurt wrestle? Kurt did wrestle as Vandal Drummond, Rockin' Jerry Brown, a bunch of other names that I'm forgetting Oh, okay. Right now, but yes, he, he did never became wrestle. the Medfly, huh? You know, I don't know about that. That sounds like Kurt. So but that was a Jerry Graham-inspired idea because he was, at the time, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Brown's dimensions now, but at the time he was very thin when I knew uh, Kurt. So um, I the Medfly head would have worked, you know. Uh, Harry Hell didn't seem like it would work because Kurt, to me, looked like he was about 130 at the time in terms of weight. But, um, all right, so he wasn't Harry Hill. Interesting. Hey, I learned something here today. 
Actually, I have another. I have a question for you, and, and I know from Six Hundred Five uh, Super Podcast, and it's just driving me crazy. After I found out, you know, you're contacting me, and I'm thinking about Atlanta. What was the announcer with Gordon Soley that used to announce the Omni lineups and all of that? The guy would say, "Be there." Freddie Miller. Freddie Miller. I couldn't think of who it was. Thank you. That's the other thing I needed to know. I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't remember who. You know, you remember all these announcers, and then I just said, oh, my God, I forgot. He was such a, you know, kind of effervescent guy. It was just really terrific. And um, you needed that. I'd like to see a little bit more of that now, you know, from what little I see. Yeah, no one has any personality they're able to display on wrestling. Um, you know, I gotta, yeah. I gotta ask you about something because I've always been intrigued by the little bit I've known about and the little bit I've been able to see throughout the years from Vega International. I've seen photos, I've seen some reprints of programs. What were those shows like? Was it a rowdy crowd? Was it a different kind of crowd than you would see at the Garden because it is uptown? What were those shows like? It was predominantly a Latino crowd. It was a Puerto Rican and Dominican crowd. Um, they had, I do remember they had, um, a couple of, uh, armed security guards around the ring who had guns. Uh, they actually had guns and they would be like in the, in wow. uh, the two front corners and then maybe at the back of the room and, but nothing, ha nothing ever, ha absolutely nothing ever happened. And I was around and at those shows. I was around ringside taking pictures. God forbid that I would be at something else that was safe, where something where potentially it could go wrong. Yeah, then I'm going to be up around the ring taking <laughs> photos. But, but um, no, nothing, nothing ever happened. But they, it was um, predominantly, and I think he, I think he brought a lot of people in from the Dominican. I think some of the roster was from uh, Jack Van Eno's, um show out in uh, shows in the in the Dominican. He had a few um, local guys that would be, you know, train and um but no one ever made it. There was a couple of guys that were unbelievably charismatic and talented. It was a guy named Dixie Pinheiro. I think he was actually a bartender at the New York Sports Club or something like that and I think he probably made too much money that he would leave wrestling for it. And um, I think he would have been a guy. He had a handlebar mustache. He was a, he was a heel, and he was he. They wound up putting the title on him, the VIWP. I don't know if they called it the world title. I would just call it the New York title. But he was a great heel. And um, there are guys that you would see on some of these small circuits that you'd say, man, I you know. But New York was a funny place too. We they didn't promote. I mean, Johnny Rods could have been somebody. There were guys that came in and out of here that you say. Why not? Why not do something with this guy? You know, why not build up a local hometown product? And uh, we were never the case. I mean, this whole East Coast promotion um, never did it. And um, it's it's just unfortunate. You would see people get groomed years ago in other circuits. You know, I saw the the development of Jim Garvin over the years, for example, just to name one guy to start off as a skinny kid and or Randy Poffo uh, to kind of really develop. But that was probably to his own gumption. He was with um, that ICW uh, outlaw group and kind of built himself up to make it and make it here. So uh, I guess it, uh, some of it has to do with the wrestler himself, you know. But but I always was amazed in New York that there was no real emphasis made to build somebody or create someone. Uh, Larry Zabisco might have been it. Can you think of anyone? No. I mean, in terms of a local New York guy pushed to that level, I can't. Yeah, nobody in New York. You know, you'd have these guys that would be kind of fed. They would be like lower tier. The Blackjacks would be going for the title and they'd give them Manuel Soto and Pete Sanchez, you know, like as, oh, wow, well, they beat Manuel Soto and Pete Sanchez. They're getting a title shot. But it's like, well, you know, they never really built anyone up on that level, you know, that you could say you know, give them some kind of a, a bit of footing where you would say, well, there's the possibility that they might beat 
the blackjacks, but you knew, you know, it was always lopsided. What was the New York independent scene like, let's say, before the late 1980s, the era of, you know, Tommy D, I'm sure, was around. Mark Tendler was probably out there trying to do stuff. But specifically in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Queens, what was the scene like? Um, non-existent except for outlaw shows. I used to referee on outlaw shows. They would be like in housing projects, and um, they would just put a sign up like the week before or like in the community. It'd be like in the community room, the community center. Guys would come in that were just working, um, uh, like cat working independent wrestlers and gypsy cab drivers. There was a guy that worked this market, and he ran shows all over the place, who called himself Gorgeous George II. And I don't know if you remember him, George Valentina. It was the name of the character. Uh, in fact, I remember there was a big show. I got a, a, a newspaper clipping from uh, Nigeria where he had wrestled Mil Moscaris for the IWA title before like 30,000 people. So he worked his angles around, but he was a, he was a Latino guy and he did the gorgeous George act. And um, I refereed for a lot of shows. There was no name of a promotion or anything, but you'd show up. Uh, there was another guy named um, Mike Briscoe. Oh, I don't know what his, I forget what these guys' real names were, but he want, he thought of himself as like a Jack and Jerry Briscoe. He was the lone non, uh, non-Latino that was pretty much on the circuit Besides me, you know, and I, if they did a show of five or six matches, I was the referee for the whole night. And um, it would always be up in like a housing project somewhere like, you know, 125th Street, 149th Street. And you get a call and then I'd have to pick me up and I'd go and I didn't even have a referee shirt. I would just be all dressed in black. And um, so that was the that's the extent that I knew people like Tommy D. They were legitimately licensed promoters and they used he used WWF talent. Mark Tendler did a few shows, and then he did some I know in Long Island with uh, another undercard guy for the WWF named Mark Pohl. I don't know if you remember Mark Pohl. He was like a really round guy, rotund guy with like mutton chops. And um, Mark Tendler, I think Mark Pohl had one championship, and Mark Tendler had the other. I think they called themselves the East Coast Wrestling Federation or something. And I remember going to some shows for a couple of months in Shirley, Long Island which I even mentioned that to people in Long Island. They don't know. They've never even heard of Shirley, <laughs> Long Island. So uh, anyway, I used to travel out to their shows and um, they would always promise every month the next show they were going to bring in the Mighty Igor or Ric Flair and whatever. But it was usually Mark Paul, Mark Tenler and a bunch of other guys that you never knew. <laughs> so um, McMahon, pretty much even the even the little the little shows, he had um, uh, had it pretty locked up. New Jersey was a little bit looser. I remember going to like Embassy Hall in Northburg in New Jersey. And when the Savaldi split off from McMahon, they were running some shows and they had Hans Schroeder and a couple of, you know, low level WWF guys. And then they'd bring in like Roberto Soto. And you'd say, oh, wow, I know Manuel Soto, but oh, Roberto Soto, he wrestled in Atlanta, Georgia. So that was a big deal. You were seeing somebody from another circuit. It was exciting, you know. So it was almost non-existent except for these uh, what I would call gypsy or outlaw shows that would just pop up with a little bit of promotion the day or two before, and they would just promote it within like a housing project. But as far as anybody really coming in, the IWA ran some shows throughout the summer of, of uh, when they were here in 75 at the Beacon Theater, which the Beacon Theater still exists, and it's a pretty expensive venue if you want to go see any uh, top, yeah. top line um, uh, musicians. But um, they were they were um, they were there. Uh, they were doing a weekly show, I think, for about the for maybe three or four months. It might have been August, August, September, October, November, and then they were gone. So that was their last gasp after uh, 
Roosevelt Stadium. They'd have they'd had they left a couple of main guys here, and then they filled the undercard with a lot of these Latino wrestlers that were working the uh, the, the the meager independent circuit that we had in the New York City area. So that that was always the case. Tito Torres. Tito Torres, yeah, based out of Jersey City. He was the promoter and the champion of his group. Um, I don't know if IWA used him. They used the guy. I'm, oh, I can't remember. I just I had his name and it's gone. But it wasn't. Um, oh, Espada, Georgia Espada. They used, which was another re, uh, New York, New Jersey guy. Yeah. He wound up on IWA shows. I don't think Tito Torres worked it. I do remember the, uh, Tito Torres bringing Brower in and uh, another uh, his main event was uh, Brower versus Charlie Brown. I don't know if you remember Charlie Brown from the WWF. A little bit. And he was an undercard guy. I mean, was an, he was on the level of, you know, um, Frank Williams and all. But that was the main event one time for a show in Jersey City that Tito Torres promoted. And he brought them in Brower and Charlie Brown were the main event. You know, that you bring up Frankie Williams. That's one of the reasons I've always been intrigued by Vega International is I once saw a lineup where Frankie Williams was on the show and he wasn't in a spot where he was just going to be squashed. It looked like he was actually having a competitive match on a Vega International show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they would they would use guys that um, later on they used WWF guys, but they wouldn't uh, give them really top of the line. But it was a place where they could showcase their talents. The guys had listen. These undercard guys, they had to make the guy on top look good. They had to have talent, you know, just because they lost. And I mean, that that's the sad part about wrestling, you know. Guy like Johnny Roz. I mean, I remember a story where. Um, Kerry Von Erich, I think, came into New York. WWF used to bring in somebody to showcase in the opening matches, and they would usually give them, you know, one of the better talents to work with. I remember Roddy Piper came in, and I think he worked with Pete Sanchez. And I think Kerry Von Erich came in and worked with Johnny Roz. And supposedly, Johnny Roz really gave him a hard time. And when he went back to the dressing room, the story was that he was saying, wow, what did I do to this guy? Why was he just so, you know, mean to me out there? So uh, Roz was somebody not to... uh, play with but he made everybody look great you know you had these undercard guys that you could say well you know they didn't win it was very hard to determine that's why i never liked these like magazines or these rankings where you rank the top 500 people how do you how do you rank the top 500 wrestlers i mean really you know i mean it's all based upon uh, you know the outcome i mean there's you can see legitimate natural talent but in some cases it's eclipsed by the need to make someone else look good and um it's very subjective, but um, there were a lot of guys around that if you if given their opportunity and given the chance, they may not have aesthetically looked good or had the right, you know, vibe for the audience. But you know, I remember with the IWA there was an undercard guy, Cisco Grimaldo, and he wrestled. Uh, he had a great match with Mil Maskers, one of the TV taping shows, and it's you could probably see it on YouTube. There were a handful of guys like that that um, would shine, you know, for a brief moment or two before they had to then remember who they were and what they were there to do. Mike, this has been great today. I got to thank you again for giving us so much time today to share so many of your memories of your time around wrestling. One final thing I want to ask you here this week. He's a popular figure amongst many wrestling fans, has a little bit of a cult-like following nowadays, but you were early on someone who was a booster of his. Tell me about Chick Donovan and why you like him so much. I don't know why people have attacked Chick Donovan. I think, you know, uh, kind of thinking theatrically, 
there was a tremendous arc to this guy. I mean, I remember seeing him in Atlanta, and he was just this squash guy with talent. He had speed, and he had a good look, and he did, he wasn't really uh, as de- muscularly developed as he became later. This is a guy that really worked at developing something for himself. And he was in Georgia. He, you know, each time he came out, he was better. He was better. He was better. I was in uh, swapping. I think the newsletter for wrestling programs with Jeff Walton out of the Olympic Auditorium. And I remember one week Jeff sent me the program, and there's a picture. It said Golden Boy is coming soon. And I looked at this guy. I said, Wow, this guy looks interesting. And then somebody later told me, Hey, that's Chick Donovan. And I said, My God, he went from this Georgia guy out to L.A., invented himself as the Golden Boy. Came back to uh, Georgia later and then did some work here in WWF. But there's a guy that I just think to myself, I mean, they they kind of poop on him. There was this there's this one YouTube interview that he did, which kind of is nonsensical. But in the ring, he did he did his job. I don't really see I, I was an advocate for him always. And I thought there's a guy who developed may have not been the best guy on the mic, but you get around that with giving him Jimmy Hart or somebody else, you know. But um, I don't know why he got some bad press. Uh, Your thoughts on that? Anything? You know, I think he was, you know, he was used as an undercard guy. And then he went to Memphis and he kind of got a little bit of a break. They put him with Jimmy Hart. They put him as part of the first family stable. They had him do some funny stuff on TV. He was getting over and then he got hurt. Right. I remember that he had the broken leg, I think. Right. Yeah. And I think that kind of derailed him a bit there. Yeah. And then it just seems like he went to a lot of places. He went to Japan. He went to world class. Yeah, yeah, he was in world class. I think he did fairly well. I think he had a six. Didn't he have the, the six man tag with some people? I don't remember how that worked out. But he had a, his first kind of success was in L.A. He had a feud going with the football player turned wrestler Walter Johnson yeah. and a couple other people. And I don't know if he ever had the America's title or anything like that out in L.A. But I remember seeing him on the the Spanish language uh, wrestling from the Olympic. And he looked, you know, he just the move from Atlanta to L.A., I really didn't even really recognize him per se. Uh, so I, I give him kudos to him because he really, he developed, he evolved. And, and there's another guy could have, I remember just even seeing the match with him against Flair. They ran it a, a lot in the uh, mid-Atlantic. And he held his own. He was flamboyant. I, I even have that series of, uh, who puts out all of those uh, interviews? Uh, I'm not sure which ones you're talking about. Well, anyway, there's a, a like a, a two-hour, and I have the Chick Donovan. Interesting interview. Great guy. You hear about him being an EMT and just his wrestling uh, exploits. He, so he claimed to have a talking dog in real life and, you know, just all this crazy stuff. So, you know, everybody's crazy. Everyone has a story. You know, they all do. We are back on the Super Podcast, and I am very happy to welcome right now a man who was just mentioned in the previous segment. He is one of the most popular people in the history of this show, not just with the listeners, but especially with me. He's a great guy. We know him as many different names. Perhaps you know him as Rockin' Jerry Brown, the HIV kid, regrettably, was one of his names. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky Pierre was one of his names. Of course, most famously, Vandal Drummond, and that could be one person only, and that is Kurt Brown. Kurt, thanks for being here on episode 100. 
Well, <laughs> and what better way? What better way can I say hello and give my thanks to the awesome 605 cats that uh, I've been seeing more of online now? I'm uh, kind of back in the saddle, frequenting the site more. So, what better way can I say thank you uh, for their brotherhood and their friendship by uh, telling them that every evil entity out there does something terrible? And you know what that something is? No. They suck their mother's <laughs> pussies. They cornhole their pregnant brothers. And they fuck their pregnant sisters and their whores. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, uh, first things first, let me apologize to the listeners who have their children with them today. I didn't and know let that. Me, let, let, me, <laughs> let me say I'm welcome to them, and please don't <laughs> prosecute me if the children heard it. Well, you did your Dr. Jerry Graham impression. You did your Dr. Jerry Graham yell. Dr. Jerry Graham is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. He's the one who just came up also. So we just had a segment with Mike O'Hara. And Mike O'Hara. Oh, man, that's a blast from the past. And he talked about, I guess, the last days of Dr. Jerry Graham living with Terry Justice before he came out to Los <laughs> Angeles. And you know the stories. It becomes impossible to get Dr. Jerry Graham out of your house. He may leave a thing or two behind in your bathtub that you didn't expect. <laughs> There's all sorts of stories. But what Mike O'Hara remembered from that period of time was that Dr. Jerry Graham was telling Terry Justice and Mike O'Hara, and I guess maybe whoever else was around here on the East Coast, that he was going to turn you into a wrestler named either the Medfly or Harry Hell. So this is interesting oh. stuff for a couple reasons. One, I want to know everything you know about this potential medfly gimmick. Of course, the Mediterranean fruit fly is the most destructive insect in the world, I think, or one of them. <laughs> Secondly, we all know that Harry Hell is considered one of the very worst California independent wrestlers of all time. No disrespect to him as a human being. I don't know him. However, Absolutely. I've spoken to his tag team partner. I've spoken to you. I've spoken to a number of people that either watched him or worked with him, and they all agree this guy should not have been a wrestler. However. I had never heard that potentially his gimmick was going to be given to someone else. So, Kurt, this is coming from Mike O'Hara. This is his recollection from almost 40 years ago. What do you know about these two stories? You potentially being either the Medfly or Harry Hell, as per Dr. Jerry Graham. The Medfly was actually a running joke in 1981. When the first two wrestlers that I you know became friends with, along with you know Lloyd Lee, were Diamond Timothy Flowers and Bobby Lane, who was the uh, who was actually Bobby Pico, the son of Bobby Pico Senior and Anne Laverne, brother of Marie Laverne, and I was I had no plans on being a wrestler at the time. I was bone thin. You should have seen me standing next to the wrestlers. I was like maybe 115 pounds, not 150, 115 pounds, had this giant bleach blonde lollipop afro. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the summer when the medfly was like, I guess, in crisis mode or something. And so we're just all sitting around drinking and stuff. And it was Bobby Lane, I think, who came up with this kid, we get him in the ring as the medfly. <laughs> and, 
And that was the summer I met Dr. Jerry Graham, and I never heard of him coming up with any of these names. And I, I think Pistol Pete is the one who came up with the Harry Hell name. I think that story might have gotten around because when I did start wrestling, I was kind of only in touch sporadically with Tom Burke. And when he saw results of the first show I was on, he knew I was into weird and wacky stuff like Titanes and El Ring. So I think he thought Harry Hell must have been me doing something really strange and wacky. Uh, but, you know, being my first match, I, had, I didn't have that kind of clout. If, you know, Pistol, you know, Pete was uh, booking the indie shows and he was the one who made the calls. And I think I would have made a better head Harry Hell if they came up with a gimmick, to be honest. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. Do you think you would have been able to succeed as Harry Hell? Yeah, because I know what a re- I knew what a real punk rocker looked like back in the early '80s, and he he did not look like a punk rocker. He looked like a, a vagabond uh, with frizzy hair that was dyed uh, pink and purple and green. I <laughs> I even remember Carl Carl Lauer thinking uh, it was gonna he was gonna be the next big thing. I mean, it's amazing to think that he actually served on the athletic commission. I think it was in Missouri, Carl Lauer, and, you know, did so much with Cauliflower Alley. Uh, (laughs) The way he said it was, yeah, Harry used to be an arena rat, but we trained him, and now we're dyeing his hair pink and yellow and green, and he's going to be our punk rock wrestler. (laughs) (laughs) And I just sat there thinking, my entry into the business is going to be an interesting one. I'll confess I had a lot of fun, but but yeah, I I I, I remember hearing Tom Pritchard once telling me when I was starting to train. I just was talking on the phone once, and he says, "Just remember, there's a lot of marks in the business, Kurt." And boy, was he right. <laughs> he says they're not just in the audience. <laughs> well, let's go back to this period of time and to this story specifically that Mike O'Hara just told. Do you remember when the doc arrived in L.A.? Do you remember hearing anything about? why and how he left the Justice family home? I think the Justice, one, I got to say, I never met a member of the Justice family. I I remember talking to Terry Justice once on the phone when I was a teenager and would call anybody who, you know, had all this cool information. But the Justice family sounded like just a really nice, very sweet, (laughs) maybe kind of naive family. But the mother, Doris Justice, loved the doc. And uh, one of the things I kick myself for is when Lloyd and I first knew the doc, we put out some little rag newsletter, but we interviewed the doc from one of them. And uh, Doris and her husband owned a uh, copy shop, you know, Xerox shop. And so he said, send it to Doris and she'll make the copies for you for free. And sure enough, I get this big package in the mail that's like 100 copies of our newsletter which was even more than we needed. And she did this up until they closed the shop. And she actually wrote me a letter apologizing that she can't do it for us anymore, but it's just time to retire. And I kept meaning to write her back and never did. And that's actually a regret I have because she passed away. I can't remember what year she passed away, but it was one of those few times I saw Doc looking absolutely like, devastated he just he just thought she was a sweetheart um and after terry justice uh you know he died in a car wreck a drunk driver killed him and 
over the next months, Doc would get upset. He says, God damn it, I talked to Doris. She's losing it. She's losing it. I'm going, what's the matter? She says she wants to die and join the kid in heaven. And I'm saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it. He's not that important. Oh, my God. And I, and I think, Doc, you said that? They said, said, what the hell does she think he's doing? I have to say something. And I'm saying, yeah, but Doc. And he says, hey, she can survive without her son. <laughs> <laughs> but um um I think he just stayed too long and I and I I it sounded I think I read an interview with Scott just I, I think it was one of Scott uh, Teal's old um wrestling as you liked it they talked to him about the doc and whatever I think, happened to yes whatever happened I'm sorry whatever happened to uh, I'm mixing it up with J Michael Kenyon's uh yes pieces so. It sounded like they had no more, you know, animosity towards the doc, but he was just kind of, you know, had a place to crash and was just doing nothing but kind of staying there. And it, he even said it was fascinating having the doc over because they were a very religious family. And at the same time, he said it was fascinating when they would watch, you know, like religious TV shows that doc would just point out the different tactics the uh, evangelists are using to work the people. And, and I, <laughs> I got to give it to Scott because I think, as far as I know, he's still an extremely religious guy. He did seem; it sounded like he found that fascinating. Do you remember when Doc first arrived in L.A.? Well, I know he lived for a brief time in Santa Barbara in the late seventies because Tom Burke gave me his number and said this might be a good guy to interview if you because I was doing my own newsletter at the time, and uh, he said, but. Don't bring him to meet mom and dad, and uh, if you drive him anywhere and he says he has to pee, pull over right away. (laughs) (laughs) And believe me, when I met the doc, every time he said, I have to piss a while, that's how he'd say it when he was drunk, I have to piss a while, and I would just veer the car on the side of the highway, he'd open the door, you know, just pivot to the right not even get out of the car and just pee on the road. And, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't until, I don't know if it was 1980 or 81 when he actually uh, moved to Los Angeles. And he told Tom Hankins, I remember this, that the, re- <laughs> the reason he moved to Los Angeles was because on the East Coast, when he was like drinking all night in winter, sometimes you know, sometimes when you're really drunk, you don't quite make it to your hotel room, so you fall asleep. And he says, I'd wake up with, you know, my hands and my feet numb from the cold. So I decided I'm going to come to L.A. because if that happens, it's not going to be nearly as cold. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was a, a survival instinct. The rationale of a, of a raging alcoholic. I know if I go to L.A. and I pass out in the street, I'll be much more comfortable. Than exactly, buff- than exactly. In the summertime, you might even get fresh air if you don't get, like, a knife in your ribs or, you know, uh, a phallus up your ass. You know, you might be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kurt, I'm glad we were able to clear this up. You were never going to – the doc didn't give you the Medfly gimmick. It was a running joke, and he may have tried to take credit for it, but it did not actually happen. And you were never, ever going to be Harry Hell. No, I was never going to be Harry Hell, but uh, I think I think I have a hunch that since Tom Burke thought I was Harry Hell, maybe he told that to the Doc, and maybe Doc told us to Michael O'Hara. I remember Doc wanted to bring me back east for some indie promotion and call me uh, Professor Kurt. Um, 
I was just I was just going to community college at the time, damn it. So I don't think that would have flew. <laughs> Did the doc ever talk about working those little indie shows in New York in the late seventies or early eighties? Vega International. I mean, there were a few other ones, but Vega. International oh yeah, the stuff. ones done by like uh, who is it? John Crespo and um, um, oh, I'm blanking. Oh, Jack Venino, all those guys. Yeah. You know, I wish I talked to him about it because that's just – I don't know why I never brought it up with him. But I, I'm <laughs> – you know, in hindsight, I wish I did because I'm, uh, I'm curious about those promotions. And by the way, it shows you what an amazing historian Tom Burke is. He can not only tell you the win-loss records or where a guy was. He could also tell you – and also, if he needs to pee, pull over right away. <laughs> 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 he knows his stuff. <laughs> he knows his stuff. Oh, I got to interject something into here. Uh because you remember the the anecdote I told you about when uh, he did uh, what I now call the street invasion, when he, he and another uh, you know uh, vagrant from his hotel burst into Adrian Street's apartment in the morning once. And when we saw him, he was like three sheets to the wind. In fact, it was the second most wrecked I've ever seen him next to the um, Christmas party uh, that Tom Hankins had us take him to. But... You know, that was the day when he said that, no great sucker, read. And he is just gone and just saying just the most surreal shit. But right in the middle of it, during a, a, a pause, he takes a breath and he says to us, when are we going to go to the $5 all you can drink beer joint, kids? <laughs> <laughs> he remembered the $5 all you can drink beer joint. <laughs> As wrecked as he was. <laughs> well, Kurt, as we wrap up this segment and move on with the show, you, of course, have been a big part of the Super Podcast. Anything you want to say to the listeners out there here on episode 100? I just want to say, God, man, I love conversing with you guys online, and I love the rare occasions when we get to meet up in person. Occasionally, I'll uh, see a 605 member at a local Lucha show here in the area. Uh, Joshua Morales is one that comes to mind. And I love uh, when cauliflower happens because that's when we we all meet. And I hear there's going to be uh, quite an attendance next year, and I'm going to do everything in my power to attend. I understand Bob Barnett is planning on attending next year. Yes. Yes, he told me just yesterday. I went to uh, Surf, Surf Guitar 101, the second wing of their tour last night, to see the insect surfers and a great band called Kelp, and he said yes, he plans to go to uh, Cauliflower Alvis coming this year. And uh, I also got to meet his awesome uh, golden retriever poodle mix named Mr. Spinkter, who is the cutest dog you have ever seen. <laughs> Although I think you would say next to Swami, no doubt. Next to Swami, no doubt. What a headline that is. The Medfly goes to insect surfers. That's a <laughs> weekly world news. Where are you? But we'll be that's right, right. That's right. I'm going to do battle with Bat Boy. Damn it! <laughs> Let's now go to this. My conversation with Sean Waltman. You may know him as having many different names: X Pac, the One Two Three Kid. But we're going to talk about his years as the Lightning Kid, and even the years before that. Let's now talk to Sean Waltman about growing up a fan and breaking into the business and the road that led the Lightning Kid to the World Wrestling Federation. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast, Sean Waltman, and we're going to talk about his years as the Lightning Kid, but most importantly, we're going to talk about 
Dennis Caraluzzo for the Dennis of the Week here on episode 100. Sean, thank you for being here today. Brian, I'm so happy we could finally get this done, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've wanted And especially like, like you know, man, I, I sorry, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to talk over you. I'm really <laughs> bad about that even on my show. <laughs> so uh no, but just man, when you mentioned, hey, let's talk about Dennis Caraluzzo, I'm like, dude, I would I would love to, man. I would love to get, you know, yeah, what a what a great character and 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 uh an important part of my, you know, my life and my my early career. Yeah, so, and I, and I want to talk all thanks, about that man. period of time, 1992, 1993, because it isn't just an interesting period of time for Dennis, but obviously for you, this is really when everything comes together and you get that big break. And once you get that opportunity, you really run with it. But let's take a step back because I am curious about the beginning of your career. I, I mentioned to you off air before that I remember the first time I saw you on Global Wrestling in 1991, you made such an impact because you looked so different. You were skinny. You looked very, very young, much younger than you even were. And you also did spectacular moves that I wasn't used to seeing on American wrestling television. And I remember even thinking then as a kid, like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? I've never seen anyone on the WWF or WCW that looked like him. And, you know, I know we've had Bobby Blaze on the show and he talked about training with you at Malenko's. And I was never quite sure how you got to Malenko's because I thought you were from Minnesota. So what is the actual origin for how you got trained? Well, see, I mean, you know, I've built from Minnesota and my family's from Minnesota and Florida. And so, but I grew up in St. Pete, Florida, Brian. And so, you know, it was, you know, championship wrestling from Florida. And, uh, and, you know, I, I was coming to, I was going to, you know, the, my, okay. My first match, uh, live event was at the Bayfront Center in St. Pete. And it was Ric Flair versus Dusty for the title. Oh man. And, uh, yeah, man. And what a, what, what a cast of characters underneath too, you know, Barry, uh, Kevin Sullivan was just just really uh, starting to take off with the you know the Buddha Dean gimmick and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, Adrian Street was there. Magnum TA when he was Terry Allen. Yeah. I mean, anyway. So um, yeah, I, I so yeah, I'm a I'm a Florida guy. I'm a Florida guy, and uh, and I loved me some championship wrestling from Florida. And I just. That first match, that first match I went to, I I fell in love right away. I knew that's what I wanted to do, Brian. And uh, and I didn't have anything else, you know. Like you know, I was uh, unsupervised kid, and you know, getting into trouble a lot. And like, it was something for me to focus on. And I just I fell in love with it, and I focused on that. And uh, you know, um, I just I learned everything I could. I, I consumed every every bit of wrestling I could. I didn't know there was any any such thing as independent or, you know, they called it outlaw wrestling when I was a kid, you know? And, you know, if you went to some of those, you would understand why. So, um, <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, but Malenko's, you know, they, you know, cause, cause of the, the falling out he had with Eddie Graham, he, he ran his shows and trained his own guys. And so, you know, at, at a certain point, I, I found out about those shows and I would show up to, to them. And, uh, and so I met Phyllis Lee and she was, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say she was partners with Malenko, but she was a huge part of like making that school and his shows like happen. Uh, she did a lot of the work on that and just, um, and she talked Malenko into training me when I was 15 and, uh, she, you know, she saw something in me and which, you know, I just, really nobody else saw, honestly, Brian. 
So, you know, let me ask you about Phyllis Lee, because I was uh, fortunate enough to get to know her a little bit years later when she was with Dan Severn and Dan worked for Dennis. And then actually when I did Yama pit fighting, she was there with Ron Waterman and it was really nice yeah. to see her and talk to her again for the listeners out there who've heard the name, but may not know who Phyllis Lee is exactly or what she did in and around wrestling. Tell the listeners who Phyllis Lee was. When she was like, you know, she said she was a wrestler, like, uh, you know, in her younger years, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not sure how many matches she had or whatever, or what the, you know, or where or anything, but, you know, just, she was around wrestling and, uh, she knew everyone, Brian, you know, she got the Malenko brothers booked in all Japan through, uh, you know, or James Blears. Um, you know, she got, you know, she just, she was in the middle of a lot of things, you know, like, like you said, she's the one that got Dan in UFC. So, uh, yeah, like I said, she just knew a ton of people, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's really weird. Like, it's hard to explain exactly, you know, Phyllis. But I just know I owe her a, a huge debt of gratitude that I feel like, honestly, and she's, she passed away now. I wish I would have showed her more gratitude, you know? I know later on she was an agent for various, not just wrestlers, but also fighters. She yeah, Pancrase. Yeah. yeah, and uh, like I said, I'm fortunate to say that I got to know her a little bit, but I want to go back a, a step because you mentioned your first show. It sounds like that would have been '83, Flair versus Dusty, based on yeah. the card you said. When did you? Yeah, have and 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 so and so also like uh, the guest outside enforcer was the Midnight Rider. So like, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, and it was like Mulligan came out with the Midnight Rider uh, outfit on one time. Charlie Cook, who's black, came out on. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of cool, right? But. uh but yeah, and I also got to help set set the ring up with Gordon Nelson, that you know, night? from the time I was like ten. Yeah, well, I mean, that that night and pretty, you know, and like every every time after that, pretty much. You know, Gordon Nelson's an interesting guy. Ron Fuller, uh, we talked about him a while back on the Studcast. I forget who it may have been, even with Austin Idol way back on Austin Idol Live, that it was Gordon Nelson that introduced the sugar hold into the snake pit in Florida. He's the guy who introduced everyone associated with Eddie Graham to the sugar hold. And of course, all the shooters and stretchers fell in love with that hold right away. What was Gordon Nelson yeah. like when you're a kid and you're around him? Such a mild-mannered guy. Like, you would never know, right? Like, I mean, he was just the, the nicest, kindest guy and uh, real quiet. And, uh, and you would only know uh, how tough he was by listening to stories from the current wrestlers and the, the guys that were there. You know, so, um, and, and, you know, he was like, they called him Mr. Wrestling, too. He was like Amarillo Mr. Wrestling. And um, and his son, he was a, a bit of an MMA guy himself, Steven. And uh, he was in the Sambo and stuff. So super, super good guy. And I got to be around him later on when I was in WCW, and he was still around, which is kind of cool for me. So he was mild-mannered, and you wouldn't know how tough he really was. What's it like for you as a kid training at Malenko's the first time you're running the gotch? Uh, well, so, so Carl, he didn't come around that much. It was Masami. It was his son-in-law that really did most of that teaching while I was there. But it was rugged, man. You know, like that, that was done on Sundays. And not everyone did that, but I, I really got into it. I, I love that UWF style. And, uh, and I, plus I had this thing where I, I was the skinny little kid. And, you know, I had something to prove, right? Like I wanted to prove everybody I could hang. So, uh. Uh, but I was like in awe of Carl when he finally showed up because of all these amazing things that I had heard, you know? 
So when did you first discover Japanese wrestling? You said that you consumed everything you can get your hands on. When did you first get a chance to get your hands on Japanese wrestling tapes? Uh, well, besides the little bit that I used to see on pro wrestling this week with, you know, oh, so you were with watching Joe Pettacino and yeah. Gordon. Oh yeah. Cause it was on, it was on, um, it wasn't syndicated in our market on Saturday mornings. Um, I loved it. I was, I just loved it so much, you know, uh, but I, you could see it on there, a little clips once in a while. But when I started training and wrestling, um, and one of the black arts, Tom Nash, him and I were pretty close. Uh, back then and he turned me on to all these tapes you know from the tape traders like Jeff Baldrin and you know guys all those guys John McAdam guys like that back then so and it was all really rough right like second third fourth fifth generation dupes of the tapes <laughs> yeah right so it was real grainy but it, it, it almost made it even like cooler you know Tom Nash was famously announced by Howard Brody in his book as being dead in Costa Rica. And then it turned out he was alive and all of his friends thought wow. he was dead and they were all mad at Howard for putting it in the book. Wow. <laughs> that he was well, dead. Tom was an interesting guy. You know, like I, I really liked Tom. Got along with him really good, but a lot of people didn't. Who else was so. around the school? Obviously, Bobby Blaze was there. What was a young Bobby like? Yeah. Who else was around? And, well, see, Bobby and I, we were, we were together like almost every day. We were best friends and, like we both like pretty much lived well he lived at Phyllis's and I pretty much did too. It's just he he was paying rent and I was sleeping on the couch. So uh <laughs> yeah, no, Bobby was great. You know, uh and you know, he was he was natural in there and we just we both really loved it so much and and uh, just going and doing all these shows like you know, we'd have shows uh, you know, the parking lot of a car lot or you know, any kind of crazy place a, a flea market, you know, and really really Bush League shows, but we were just so happy to be doing wrestling, you know? And, and Malenko's shows, Brian, at least, uh, even though they were outlaw shows, the guys were trained well, you know? And they were, the fundamentals were there. It must be weird for you, too, growing up there, you know, seeing the last few years of championship wrestling from Florida before things crashed, and then breaking into wrestling when things were really dead in Florida. And now it yeah. seems like half the wrestlers in the business live there. <laughs> NXT is there. Again, right? Yeah, it almost seems yeah. like there's a Florida revival happening right now. Yeah. Hey, so, you know, I don't mean to go backwards, but, like, my experience at Malenko's was so cool because a lot of these legendary wrestlers would come visit Malenko. Just, you know, George Scott would be there all the time. You know, Angelo Papo and, and his wife, Judy, they were really, they were great to me. Uh, uh, Bob Orton Sr., you know, Hans Mortier. Oh, wow. It was incredible all the people that was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What about the great Malenko himself? What about Larry Simon? What was he like? I, I, he was like a father to me because I, I didn't have one growing up. So I looked for that and, you know, anyone I could find it in. And, uh, and I, you know, uh, because Phyllis was with him every day, so was I. You know, we would have breakfast at this little place and he was notoriously cheap. And so we would go to this place that had dollar fifty breakfast specials and, but I was just, I just loved it. You know, I soaked up everything he would tell me. And he, God, oh, man, what a great teacher he was, Brian. He just was amazing, man. And, and uh, you know, I mean, just, he could teach anybody. And he can cover everything. He can cover conditioning. He can cover how to work. He can cover yes. how to do a promo. I mean, he was a total package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I go and, uh, hey, so there's this YouTube channel, not to go off into the weeds, Brian, but. There's this YouTube channel, 106 North Albany, and it plays all the old yeah, uh, Florida, championship wrestling from Florida stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I watch it all the time. 
And that's so why I found some old Malenko stuff. And it's like, it's man, he was, he was great. His timing is, you know, uh, like you said, Terry Funk told me he's like probably the best promo guy he'd ever heard, you know, talker and wrestling he'd ever heard at that point. I think, you know, a lot of the guys from that era, it's usually Malenko and King Curtis. Yeah. Those are the two guys that you hear as the big influences. Wow. Yeah. What's your favorite period of Florida? I mean, obviously you went to your first show in 83, but in terms of the stuff you watch, like what is your favorite period to sit down and watch? Well, it's the stuff that I remember going to as a kid, you know, like that, that period, that 83. And, and also uh, when Billy Jack came to, came to Florida, um, he's huge. And I was so in awe of him and, and he, uh, he really resonated with the people. I mean, yeah, he's crazy now or whatever, but, um, back then, I mean, he's crazy back then too, I imagine, but yeah, he walked out uh, of every territory. <laughs> yeah. But man, oh man, did, did he make you feel like he really cared about you and he would stay outside the matches after the shows and sign people's autographs. And, uh, you know, he, we're all in the same boat. I'm no better than you like that, all that talk. And, you know, he was the people's champ in Florida and, uh, and he was really good to me too. Like, like I had a personal relationship with him, Brian. Yeah, man. And, uh, and, and he was my hero when I was a kid. It, it makes me really sad to see how, or, you know, what's going on with him now. Yeah. There's a lot going on and hopefully, uh, yeah. All you can hope for is the best for him. Yeah. It's similar to you. Everyone I talk to who has been around, I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people just say, despite what you see, despite what you hear, he was always such a tremendously nice guy and really a good guy to be. He really was. Yeah, he really was. What was it like for you as a kid when all of a sudden Dusty's gone, when Dusty goes up to Mid-Atlantic and eventually takes just about every guy that was part of his crew, takes Blackjack, takes Barry, takes everyone he can up there. What was it like for you as a fan of Florida? Did you realize things were drastically changing beyond just dusty not being there like that things were in a bit of a downturn yeah i i, I kind of it would have been a bigger deal to me brian if billy jack hadn't been there and i wasn't such a huge fan of his right uh and he did kind of keep you know uh keep it alive there for a while after they left but yeah man there was uh He'd come back in, like Dusty would come back in every now and then, but yeah, it, it was, it was real noticeable. And, and I remember like, I quit watching for a little bit and I was cause I mean, part of it was cause I was training, uh, take one dough every night for a while at the time. And, and I kind of quit watching wrestling every week and quit going to it for a while. So were you, um, the, were you in the martial arts films? And Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially like, you know, um, you know, Kung Fu theater that was on, you know, yeah. like around this, on Sunday yeah. on USA network. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And I love Bill. Like I love the Billy Jack movie. I love, uh, uh, Oh yeah. The Bill Bruce Lee movies, every, all that. So, so let me ask you this. If this, well, had, if you had broken into the business 20 years after you really did, you know, everything else, yeah. you know, things obviously are different, but everything's the same. Otherwise, do you think you would have gone into wrestling or would you have gone into mixed martial arts? Uh, wrestling. <laughs> Cause, yeah, I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm a much better entertainer than I'm a fighter, Brian. So, and I mean, not that you don't mind fighting, but like, I don't want, I don't want to hurt anybody. Like, you know, yeah. um, I, I mean, like, not like that. You get have that, you know, it's just a whole different ball game. I mean, you know, I have a mean streak and I showed it in the ring, you know, but, uh, but not like that. And plus, I just, I, I don't know. I, 
But the thing is, Brian, um, man, I've been in trouble if I uh, came in wrestling 20 years uh, after I did, man, with the, <laughs> the caliber of athlete and the, like the, the, you know, the bar is raised so high. Like it's just, it's crazy. I, I mean, I'm curious to know how I would, you know, stack up to these guys. Well, you know, and I want to get back to everything we're talking about the early years. But, yeah, okay. But real quick on this topic, what do you think when you see someone like a Zack Sabre Jr., who, much like you when you first broke in, noticeably skinnier than the rest of the wrestlers, but immensely yeah. talented, do you feel an affinity towards him because of that? Or what do you think when you see someone like Zack Sabre Jr.? Well, he's one of my favorite guys to watch because I like, um, I like all different kinds of stuff when it comes to wrestling. Uh, uh, but I'm a big fan of that when it's done like that, you know, when, when, when you do it as good as Zach does and it's not, it's not boring. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, when people get on the mat and they just start rolling around and, you know, doing, you know, teen wrestling or like, I don't really want to call it these days. It can get really boring, man. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm just being honest and man, he's, there's nothing boring about Zach. And, uh, and I try to be, a, I try to be a, like early on in my career, if you know, it's like global, I tried to keep it to, even though I did, I flew around the chicks and stuff. Like I tried to still have a wrestling base. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. I just watched actually, you know, we'll, we're skipping all around here, but I just watched the, uh, recently the two out of three falls match, you and Jerry Lynn, which I think oh, is wow. one of the last, if not the last things you did in global. And it is the last thing. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you, there again, there's a few dives to the floor. Jerry does a dive to the floor, but like you said, you kind of illustrate that you're more than just a guy who does dives to the floor. You're a guy who has a, a background in wrestling. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the tough thing about that match is, is the stipulation, Brian. Two out of three falls, but we could only use our finishers, and mine was like a, 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 a tombstone power driver, and his was a sleeper, so that really limits the false finishes you can do, right? Yeah. And the near falls. So, um, yeah, we worked around it. I didn't even realize at the time that that was a problem. You know, I wasn't <laughs> wise enough about wrestling to realize that, oh, hey, I can't do my false finishes then. I was just like, okay, we'll do it. And I didn't even think about things like that at the time. Did you know you were finishing up that night? Because obviously Eddie had just become the booker a little while before that, and you had debuted before Eddie was booker. Did you know that was your last night with the Global Wrestling Federation? No. No, and and they just they couldn't pay me anymore because I was on a bit of a guarantee, like three hundred dollars a week, but they couldn't even pay me that anymore and fly me in. So that's why I dropped it to Jerry, because uh, Jerry was you know uh, driving in from Memphis. But uh, no, Eddie liked me. It's just, you know that was just it's how it worked out. And uh, but it put me in a bind. I, I was you know my she wasn't my wife yet, but we you know we were pregnant. You had a baby coming. You know I'm nineteen and. Uh, is not making any money and, and we decided it's a good idea to have a baby. Like it wasn't even an accident, Brian, but anyhow, <laughs> um, yeah. Where, where was I? Well, we were talking about global and, uh, Eddie like, Oh yeah. So yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, I get it. And that's when, that's when I connected with Dennis after that. And, and also my universal pro step in Japan, which was really uh, a great experience. So I was doing both. You know, I still want to go back to the Malenko stuff, but now you open the door to yeah. uh, the Universal stuff. What was that like for a young guy? How much lucha had you seen already? Because obviously you're wrestling in Japan, but you're wrestling against the best luchadors in the world, Silver King, El Tejano. I mean, everyone yeah. was on those tours. Were you exposed to lucha already? And was it difficult for you to transition to working with them? 
Uh, no, I wasn't. But I wasn't really exposed to a lot of it. I I was shown I was shown videotapes. I was given videotapes of the Universal Pro matches, which when those guys came to Japan, they worked a little bit different than they did in Mexico. You know, it was more of like a hybrid, a little bit more hard hitting uh, style that they were doing there. The only person I had a hard time adjusting to because he was real traditional was Io Del Santo. Yeah, the other guys, they worked on the left side and, you know, they could adjust and, you know, to the international stuff and that. But, uh, yeah, no, it, but it was crazy because also I was the only American, I was the only American, you know, and uh, and there was a language issue and, and all that. But, um, wow, what a great experience. It was tough, though, Brian, you know. They didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't get hotels a lot of the nights. We would stay in capsule hotels or these places called Kenko Land. They were just like big bathhouses that you everyone slept on the floor. It was crazy. I'm grateful for it, though. You know, there are so many indie groups now in Japan. Back then, there were, yeah. you know, there was FMW, there was UWFI, yeah. which was kind of a different thing altogether. And then Universal popped up inexplicably around this period of time, and unfortunately, it didn't last that long. How long were you in Japan before you met Masahori? Like, I, I think I met him on my first show there. I think I, it was either my first or second uh, time coming to Japan. Because after my debut, they kept bringing me back every month. And I would get $1,000 a week. And that was more than a lot of those guys were making. But anyways, yeah, Maso would cut. And I, because I've, like, I've seen pictures he posted of he and I from, from around that time. That's funny you mentioned him. As a big wrestling fan, what's it like for you to go to Japan and see the way, you know, it was so different, especially at that period of time, the way the Japanese fans absorbed wrestling media, the magazines, all the stores that actually sold wrestling merchandise exclusively? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. There was a place called uh, Maniacs in, uh, in Shinjuku. It was a little wrestling shop. Uh, that's why I got my first real pair of kick pads. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and just, Hey, also, you know, I was just a huge fan of all of it. The, the magazines, I would run to the newsstands and try to look for the magazines and the Tokyo sports and all that. And also, um, even go to other shows. Uh, they, uh, Meltzer came over there with this guy named John Williams. And, uh, and, you know, we connected and went to Tokyo Disneyland and then went to, <laughs> went to watch a, a JWP uh Japanese women's wrestling uh oh man TV taping at at like uh it was like this cable station in Tokyo back when they the very beginnings of cable over there it was crazy you know dynamite kansai cutie suzuka i mean there was a lot of yeah that's a great period for japanese women wrestling 1992 mm -hmm. 1993 i think was dream slam 1 and 2 so that's a great period of time yeah but let's uh let's take a step back cuz we zoomed far ahead you... Oh my God! That's what that's what happens when you have me on your show. We go all over the place, Brian. <laughs> hey, well, we're making it. Work. Oh my God! But to go back, you're at Malenko's. At what point is the decision made that you're going to have your first match? Tell me about your first match, and let's try to figure out the road from that match until July of '91. What's the road to global? How do you end up on ESPN? So you want to hear about my first match? Yeah, let's hear about it. Well, so I was in a big hurry, you know, to. Uh, to have a match, right? And, you know, Malenko wasn't in a hurry to get me. Plus, I, you know, I didn't really book the part, but uh, uh, there was a real tiny show that wasn't even a Malenko show, and I got to have a match with one of the guys I was coming up and wrestling with, and 
wow, this story is not as great as I thought it was going to be before I started telling it. <laughs> 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 Anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Yeah, it's never bad. It's not that great. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, I, I rushed through the match, right? Like Moenko came and saw me and, yeah. you know, he told me great job, but like slow down. Was, you know, we all go too fast when we first start. But Did you ever work with Rusty Brooks down there? I didn't. I didn't because he was training guys down in, you know, the Fort Lauderdale part. And, you know, and that's where Tom Nash and, and Dave Heath, you know, Gangrel, they were training with Rusty. And, you know, I strictly was in Tampa. So, but I, I knew Rusty a little bit. I saw him around. So after your debut in Florida, at what point do you end up back in Minnesota? Because I know you pop up in what, like 1990, you're working for mm-hmm. the PWA. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Phyllis, left, Phyllis ended up leaving Florida and going back to Ohio. And I actually left Florida. My grandparents moved to Minnesota. So I helped them move up to Minnesota to Duluth. And then I moved down to, to Minneapolis. And uh, hooked up with Eddie Sharkey. And uh, Wellington Wilkins Jr. was there, who I, you know. <laughs> That's um, a name I've heard of. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and I was, con- you know, connected with all those guys. That's where I hooked up with Jerry Lynn, Ricky Rice, Derek Dukes, you know, Lethal Larry Cameron, Charlie Thunderblood Norris. That was uh, quite the lesson, you know. Like, you know, People talk about Eddie Sharkey and, you know, and some of the guys that were trained by him, like they talk about, you know, how like maybe he didn't teach them that much, but you know, there were a lot of things we learned from Eddie. It just weren't like, you know, some of them weren't, <laughs> you know, some of them weren't the, the type of things you want to pass on. But is the Vern Gagne story true? I mean, I'm sure you must have heard. Absolutely. It. Oh yeah, it's true. I've heard it from a bunch of people about yeah, Vern. Uh, Apparently, like hitting on Eddie's wife Dixie, yeah. who like was a he was a wrestler, and then yeah, Eddie went in and, and blew his office up with a shotgun. <laughs> Eddie was a badass. Eddie was the Ed, Eddie Eddie was the Eddie was an innovator in Minneapolis. He was kind of like in the you know the Minneapolis mafia kind of, and and uh, and he opened the very first rubbing truck in Minneapolis. The Donnelly uh, Salon first <laughs> spa was called. I understand it was a picture of Vern on the wall. Please do not admit this. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, on the topic of Eddie, I mean, the PWA is, you know, in a lot of ways a forgotten promotion, but it really held up yeah. Minnesota wrestling after the AWA fell, where you had a lot of young local guys and guys like Derek Dukes who had some exposure in the last years of the AWA. What yeah. was it like for you? Was it a fun experience being around other young guys? I mean, I know this is this is where you first connected with Jerry uh, Lynn, correct? Yeah, and it was really cool because we also got to be around guys like Adnan L. Casey, you know, Sheik Adnan, the Baron, and, and Wally Carbo. Like, I got to know Wally, and it was so cool knowing him. And, you know, a lot of those characters from back then. I got to team with Ray the Crippler Stevens, Brian. Oh, no way. Yeah, man. Um, and, wow. and so, and, and all the shows were kind of supported, uh, by this, there was a wrestling block on channel 23 called Saturday night at ringside hosted by Mick Karch. And we would promote our local shows through that in between the commercial breaks. During this period of time, you're wrestling in Minnesota. Are you staying in touch? Are you trying to make things happen already? Or are you just trying to focus on Minnesota? 
I'm just focusing on what I'm doing at the time and getting the, and doing the best I can there. And, you know, we were starting to get noticed. You know, Melter would write about me. Uh, Wade, Wade Keller would come to the shows and, you know, uh, give me some great press. I, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that, all that stuff. So, uh, you know, the newsletters, you know, um, getting the word out about me uh, was huge. Were you reading the newsletters at this period of time already? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't get enough of it. I just wanted the knowledge, man, you know. When did you discover The Observer? Uh, Phyllis. I got, I, I, you know, when I started going to wrestling uh, school, and Phyllis, I, she, would, she would make copies of it and give it to, like, Paphos and Malenko and, you know, herself. And, uh, we, you know, I would, get to, I would get it after they read it. So, Did you ever hear any of those veterans say anything, any grumbling about The Observer, the nature of The Observer, anything? Mm, not back then, not until I got to the WWE. <laughs> it was those veterans <laughs> <laughs> not until I got to the WWE Brian and, and after our um, when I came back from Japan and had the, the $10,000 challenge match with Scott it was versus Kid versus Razor Yeah. when I saw my face off the top rope and cracked my head <laughs> anyway so, um, so that uh, I read like later on in the week that 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 segment did a three, two. And so like the next week in the locker room, I, I, I come in bragging about doing a three, three, two rating. Cause I read it in the observer. <laughs> oh my God. I got raked over the cold. They caught, they were calling me the three, two kid for a while. It was, it was pretty funny. I had it coming so bad. Well, you were a trendsetter. You cared about the ratings mm-hmm. before everyone else did. I, yeah, I did. And also, you know, man, it's just that all these are things that for me, like having the knowledge and information and information is power. That's so true. And, uh, and just, you know, I always put myself in the right place at the right time, Brian. And I had really good timing, you know? So back to the PWA days, are you staying in touch with Phyllis? (laughs) Phyllis is in Ohio. I am staying in touch with her. Yeah. And she would come to some, like she travel like, uh, up there once in a while to, to see us and, yeah, and so, you know, and there was, like, a connection between, you know, everyone. Like, there was a loose connection with Dan. Like, Dennis knew Phyllis, and, you know, and, uh, and you know, about the show we did, right? Obviously. NWA but that's, that's kind of going in. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm kind of going, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit. Yeah, we'll get to that. So, that's in 93. Yeah. But, uh, hey, let me ask you, is it true that you and I think even Jerry Lynn were in attendance for, I guess, a portion of what was taped for the AWA Team Challenge pilot episode? Not that, but they shot some of that at the strip club Jerry and I worked at because Jerry and I worked at the uh, with the Beverly Hills Knockouts. Um, yeah, that's what it was. Foxy Boxing. <laughs> yeah. So that was the connection there. And so when I saw that stuff on the network, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> I mean, for more reasons than one, right? So, yeah. It is an astounding episode of professional wrestling. And, uh, wow. That's incredible. That's with the music cut out. We don't even know what that music is. It's a segment <laughs> with some band. I don't know. The, the AWA 1989, not the greatest stuff in the world, but Oof. you're wrestling in 1990 in Minnesota. You're starting to get attention. You're working with other yeah. young guys like Jerry Lynn. How do you, again, yeah. you know, like I said, the road to global, how do you get there in the summer of 91? I just remember, um, hearing word, you know, that they're going to start doing that, you know, uh, 
down there. And then I got, um, I can't remember how, I, how Joe got in contact with me, but he ran the whole thing by me and that I was going to win the, you know, junior title and all that. And I was just so excited, you know, and just like the thought of going and wrestling at the sportatorium, Brian, oh my God. What was the sportatorium you know? like at that point in 91? Uh, wow. Um, you know, it was the dump. I don't mean to like, I, I say that with affection because I was so, right, right. it was so cool, you know, but it was so hot in there and the ring was so hard. And, uh, yeah, but I just loved every minute of it. Every minute of it, man. And Bill Eady was the booker. Bill Eady was the booker and he was a Malenko guy. Yeah. It just so happens as, as we're talking on, on the big screen is, uh, the masked superstar versus Paul Orndorff from Georgia Championship Wrestling. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> That's Orndorff right after <laughs> Mid-South. Orndorff's in great shape there. Yeah. But uh, what was it like for you working with guys that you hadn't yet worked with? Like someone like Chaz Taylor, who you end up working several mm. matches with, but obviously you were not acquainted with him at all before you got to Dallas. What was it like working a program or at least a series of matches with Chaz? He was good in there. And like, he was like, it was kind of great. Like looking back, like he had a weird look, but like for some reason it worked with the people, like at least the, the base of fans that we had at the time, uh, they liked him. And so it was easy. I mean, you know, and you know, obviously we weren't, neither one of us were veterans. So we were making a lot of mistakes in there and doing things wrong, but you know, we were doing some things right too. And, and you know, people, people dug it. I, I enjoy working with him. He was uh, a little, like, you know, people gave him a little bit of shit about uh, when he won the, the title from me. He came to Hooters later that night wearing the belt and the Hooters. <laughs> but I get it. We're, we're excited, right? Yeah, yeah. He's young. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, let me, I'll tell you about him. Uh, because I was the heel and, and he was a second generation guy, you know, being, you know, Doug Taylor, his father. Yeah. His father taught him, like, okay. He got his picture money, and he gave me money. He gave me a cut of his picture money. He didn't have to do that. I didn't expect it. That's a pro. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And it's amazing. When you see Tug Taylor, he's nothing physically, nothing like his son. It's amazing. Nothing. Yeah. Well, he kind of looks a little bit more like him these days. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when you go down there for, like, the light heavyweight tournament, which you know you're winning, in general, yeah. and I know like the whole crew wasn't there because it was different weeks, different people were coming in, but in general, was there an air of optimism about Global, about this mystery money man that Pedicino found? Did you guys think that this really was something that may work out? Yeah. Yeah, well, I did. I mean, I don't know what the other guys, the older guys thought, you know, that were there. That they might have just been, you know, we've seen money people come and arrest them before and they were there to get, you know, get the payoff. And if it worked out, it worked out. You know, I, but I had a different, you know, the, my worldview was different. I was new to the world, right? So uh, I was really excited about it. Um, and it was so cool. You know, also, um, Adrian Street was there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was kind of funny, though. There's like John Tatum in the junior heavyweight tournament. <laughs> he has What's a light that? heavyweight tournament with Hollywood right? John Tatum. 260 pounds. <laughs> and Randy, the guy that played did the, the Dusty Rhodes impression. I, I mean, come on. <laughs> so that was a little weird, but Hey, also like, um, you know, they hadn't, they booked me with matches like, uh, one against sweet brown sugar and sweet brown sugar didn't want to put me over. So Skip we never had the match. Yeah. Wow. Why wouldn't he put you over? Well, you know, 
that was his hometown and he had this felt a certain way and you know i'm the skinny kid and you know i you know, whatever he came up talked to me about it and like you know i mean i wasn't really that i wasn't upset about it you know but it was i mean that happened you worked the oh. show that they did in Marietta, right? I mean, they did very few shows outside of Dallas. Yep. You, you worked the one in Marietta. What do you remember about that night? I worked, I worked with uh, Chaz, I think, for, I think in that match. And uh, yeah, I just remember, you know, we had about, I don't know, six or 800 people there. And, uh, and I remember it being a decent, ma- good match. People liked it. Nothing to write home about. You know, uh, I'm pretty sure... Weirdly enough, I think I remember um, Del Wilkes at the Patriot versus Doug Doug Gilbert, Dark Patriot was the main event, maybe. But uh, yeah, then we worked like I think the next night, and it was like Super Bowl Sunday. It was some ridiculous, silly night to actually try to run a live wrestling independent wrestling match. <laughs> yeah. But we had a match in Gadsden, Alabama. Those were the only two house shows GWF ran. There was like hardly anyone in Gaston. Oh my God. They were all watching football. <laughs> what a weird, you know, you run Dallas and then Marietta, which I get it. That's Pettacino's area. And then Gadsden, uh-huh. Alabama. And that's uh, the run of the GWF outside of Dallas. Hey, I would love to, hey, Brian, I would love to uh, get in touch with Joe Pettacino. Uh, I have a, a debt of gratitude to that guy, too. He was a great guy. He was really good to me. So if he hears this, thank you, Joe. Like you said, that. Pro Wrestling This Week was such a was such a great show, such a great concept. Oh, so good. And it holds up. You go back and you watch it, and you get to see the highlights of every territory. It's great shit. Yeah. It's just great shit. I thought about trying to put something like that together nowadays, uh, and obviously you wouldn't have the kayfabe aspect, but I think it could be done. I think it should be done, quite frankly. I think yeah. it would be the best way to encapsulate yeah. everything, something like that. Because that's the thing. There's so much shit now. I mean, it was a lot of shit then, but there's just so much now. It would be nice if there was a half hour, well, I shouldn't say half hour, let's say an hour weekly program where you could digest the highlights of everywhere. Who's breaking out over here? What's happening here? What's the hot angle here? I wish there was something like yeah. that, but you know, yeah. it won't happen. <laughs> but uh, Probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, this last match you have in Global, the uh, two out of three falls match with Jerry Lynn, that's right after yeah. Christmas of 91. By this point in time, you're already set up to go to Universal because you go there pretty early nope. in 92. No. No, the universal thing was last minute because all of a sudden I don't have an income coming in. And, you know, uh, no, it's kind of desperate. And so Wally Yamaguchi came through, uh, came to town and, and it was a real last minute thing. Hey, come to Japan, you know? And, uh, so it was such a last spur of the moment thing. I wasn't announced. I was just a surprise, you know, all of a sudden uh, here I am in Cork and Hall. But no advertising or anything. Had you appeared? So, but I had to. Oh no! You know what? No, I never mind. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> I take that back. I still, I was still the champion the first time I went. Oh, the light heavyweight champion of GWF. Yes, yes. And then I dropped it. And then Jerry and I both went the second time. The second time I went, Jerry came with me, and we were tag team. He was dynamic, Jerry Lynn. Dynamic, and, Jerry Lynn. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> And he and I had a, a, several matches with uh, Gato and Pat Tanaka that were excellent. How many matches do you think you had against Jerry? Mm. I don't know. It seems like we had thousands, but, uh, you know, it was probably 
realistically, 75, maybe 50, 75. I don't know. So here we are spring of 1992, a year away from you getting into the world wrestling federation. And you don't have the global wrestling federation anymore. You have universal, you go over there for several tours. Universal wouldn't have a long lifespan. At what point do you hook up with Dennis and are you starting to wonder? I mean, this is around a period of time where WCW is launching a light heavyweight division. Do you think there's a place for you yet at this period of time in 92 in the WWF or WCW? I don't remember thinking about that as much as like, you know, Japan, you know, I just assume, okay, Japan would be where I sit in the best and, you know, and it was what I liked and that. But so this is where John Arezzi comes into play because he was having the, you know, we can, the champions and pretty sure he had one prior to this, but then I think I was on a second one maybe, but that was amazing for me. And, and Dennis, you know, and you know, he brought me in, I can't remember if he guaranteed me anything, but he brought me in and I got in the cell and keep whatever I, you know, I sold and it was just great. And John was so great to me. I just love that guy so much. Um, and we weren't even around each other, but like once, but anyways, so Dennis was running and, you know, across the bridge in Jersey and outdoor, you know, high school football stadium. He was running a show in conjunction with the convention. And, uh, and you know, Dennis was getting some name guys on his shows and I, you know, so, yeah. he, so he had Jerry law, you know, he had Waller versus Gilbert. Um, and you know, he put me on the show and I came in and Larry made me do a job to this guy named Bud Licious. <laughs> everyone was like why did you lose to him and it was just like you know and that was crazy too because you know larry didn't really want me but dennis did and larry and dennis would force me on larry and larry would try to pay me less and De- dennis would give me the money on the back end it was it was crazy it was a weird relationship with those two especially at that period of time that towards the end of their partnership and when i say larry i mean larry sharp for anyone that's wondering larry who so that's the first time you work for Dennis. At that point, does he make an agreement? Hey, I want to bring you in. I want you to work on more shows. I mean, I don't remember us, you know, like sitting down and ironing out an agreement, but he just kept bringing me back. And, you know, I would have, he would book me out to like Dennis Whipwreck, uh, you know, MEWF, it was called at the time, and Baltimore area. And, you know, do shows up in that area, you know, and it was, uh, it was pretty cool. I got to... And it was just another way for me after, you know, after the GWF stuff to keep my name out there. You know, okay, so people see that I'm traveling around. If I'm like in Minnesota and Chicago and Jersey, that means like I must be worth like somebody's flying me somewhere, right? You know, I remember thinking that when I was a kid and I saw you on the NAWA, Tony Capone's company, which got on Sports Channel in New York for a while. And... You were on there. I remember you against the Condor. And, you know, that's a good example because I remember thinking, wow, here he is now. And, you know, again, you were in a good spot. They, you know, had you win. You were pushed well. What do you remember about that? Tony Capone of the NAWA. Nice guy. You know, he was one of those guys that just, you know, he he was from, you know, he had his own wrestling show and, and he, uh, you know, was the champ and, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been a champ in any other promotion, but he was a good guy. I liked him. I mean, I mean, that was my experience with him. I don't know how, you know, what he did you know, in his private life other than that. 
Is that one of the first times you're around a lot of those guys that had typically been Savaldi guys or Johnny Rod school yeah. guys, the Northeast Indy crew? Yeah, so I got to be around uh I got to be around Tony Rumble, Boston Bad Boy. I got to be around uh that's the first time I met Tommy Dreamer. That's the first time I, I, I met uh Tony Atlas and all these guys knew who I was. Uh it was so that was kinda cool for me, right? Like, okay, and these guys actually know who I am, right? But uh so I got to see Tony, you know, get the, the woman step on his face with the high heel shoes. That was crazy. You know, I'm a kid, right? Like I was telling you earlier, you know, before we started recording this, like, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm still a little kid pretty much in wrestling. So it was just crazy for me. Were you treated okay in the locker room? Because like you say, oh, I mean, yeah. you weren't the kid, but you certainly looked like a kid and you were skinnier than a lot of guys like a Tony Atlas. Yeah. So when you get into a locker room and it's the first time and you haven't been around that crew or those guys before, do they treat you differently or do they give you a weird look because of your appearance? Every now and again, like there was this one, there was this one guy and you know, his name, Rick Renslow. It's, it was guys like that, that would like, you know, try to, We'd be in a battle royal, and they'd try to take liberties, liberties with me, and I'd just fucking haul off and knock the shit out of them. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, not that I was a tough guy or anything, but, you know. You got to stand up I, for yourself. I didn't care. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought I was tough as fuck, Brian. <laughs> and I mean, I think I was. I honestly, like, for the average person, I, I, I kind of was. Yeah. I got in a lot of fights in Minneapolis. Just not, I mean, you know, when it comes to being in the wrestling business, that's, we're talking about some badass motherfuckers that you know i wouldn't dare uh compare myself to so <laughs> but you got kick pads so you have a an advantage there it looks exactly like, it looks like you can kick exactly. some ass no matter what it is <laughs> so, yeah no but you know they were nice to me because they knew i had you know proper training and you know and all that so and and i got to, you know it was cool i got to be in the car with uh, cowboy bob orton jr and i forget who i think it was ivan koloff on one of those dentist shows and you know, man, it was so cool. Was it ever hard for you to keep your fandom in check being in a situation like that where a guy you grew up watching here early in your career where they're in the car with you or they're at the dinner table with you, whatever it may be, is it hard keeping your fandom in check? Uh, it's it's harder now. <laughs> really? That's interesting. Yes. Yes. If I see somebody that I was a fan of now, I mark out more so than I ever did back then. <laughs> and I'm not embarrassed by it either, Ryan. Like when I met freaking Pampiro Fairpo, come on. I was like, oh my God. Well, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And I know he, yeah. his daughter, Mary, listens to this show. So I'll say hello to Mary right here in the middle of this interview. But let's go back to this period of time. You start working for Dennis. Oh, yeah. And then the match with Bill Wilcox. Well, what I was going to say before we get to the Wilcox match. And by the way, I just recently found in my stuff, I have the master tape of that match. I have Dennis's master VHS tape, because that's how it was taped, of that match here in my collection. Perfect quality with the Bill Wilcox match. But before we get to talking about that match, do you get to know Dennis in the period of time, in the months building up to the Wilcox match in November? You know, obviously there are a lot of characters in the wrestling business, but did you get a kick out of Dennis? What kind of guy did he seem to you? What was the impression he was making on you? Yeah, well, I mean, so I was kind of naive back then, so I didn't pick, I didn't catch on to a lot of this stuff, right? You know, you, but Dennis, he had me, like, I knew his wife, I, I, you know, I stayed at their house. You know, Mark was a little kid at the time, and I just, you know, we just, I only knew 
the, the dentist that was a lover of wrestling that loved wrestling as much as anyone I knew. And, and, uh, and we only, you know, we just talked about, uh, you know, we just talked about how much we loved it. And it, it, the thing is, you know, that was kind of a hothead sometimes. And I used to, I don't know, this is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard for me to remember like details of a lot of that, but I just, he was just, he was, he was just a really, uh, interesting character, Brian. I don't mean to sound cliche when I say that, but. I don't even know how else to put it. Well, he certainly saw something in you and wanted to push you. And going into this match, it's you against Bill Wilcox, November 28th, 1992. Bill Wilcox had gotten a little bit of a reputation because he had been working for John McAdam, UCW in New Hampshire, which I believe is one of the first places Perry Saturn worked also. They were using a lot of those guys out of the Kowalski school or who were kind of ostracized from the Kowalski school, whatever the story was. and. Wilcox had a little bit of a reputation coming out of there, but had you met him before this match? Never, never. And I only saw like some video of him and he had matches with this guy, Freight Train Fulton. And so, but they were just like, you know, spot, 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 right? Like, and, but I had no idea what I was getting into. Like, I mean, the guy, you, as soon as I locked up with him, it was just a nightmare. You know, I mean, the guy's reputation was totally, uh, you know, based on these matches, he had with one guy, and like when he got near me, like he was the definition of crowbar, Brian. Like I, I actually needed a crowbar to pry his arm off to like grab a headlock <laughs> from the freaking lockup. Uh, it was crazy. Like, and you expend so much energy, like because you, you're trying to go this way and they're going that way, and he was just you could tell he wasn't trained properly. And then you know uh, it was just about it. You saw the match. Yeah, you saw the match. And then, you know, so he dives out onto the floor and I caught him and my head crashed onto the concrete. I was done. You know, it almost killed me. Like legit almost killed me. Um, Did he actually land on your head? On my head, onto the concrete. All his weight onto my head, onto the concrete. Oh my God. I had a, I had an acute hematoma of the brain from that. A blood clot in the brain. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. And so he's supposed to put me over. But, you know, when something like that happens, you know, all bets are off, right? But he decides to actually pick me up by the head, roll me in the ring, and then roll himself up. One, two, three. You saw it. Yeah, it was crazy. Like, I mean, you know, what if I, what about a broken neck or something? You know? So, uh, yeah, I don't remember any of it. I don't remember any of it. I just remember the, like, kind of coming to in the ring and just, like, still being completely out of it and uh yeah they weren't the guys weren't happy with him they threw his stuff out of the locker room oh i didn't know that wow yeah yeah that was the that was i mean i didn't see it obviously because i was way to the hospital but yeah apparently they weren't too happy with him over that so you know when i talk about him you know he might hear this stuff or whatever and i don't mean to be a dick about it like brian but like you know that almost killed me well you were told after that to get out of wrestling, weren't you? Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. And I took, I had to take, like, I took like three months off till I actually felt like my, my mind was like clear. You know, I was in this fog for, for months. And so, uh, had you had many concussions before that period of time, before that point? I had a few, I had a few, like one in middle school and, you know, a couple here and there bad ones. And I'm sure I had several, you know, 
minor ones that we don't even realize we have, or we, you know, yeah, but that was my first major head trauma and, you know, wrestling. I asked Mark Caraluzzo, uh, his memories of that night. Cause he was in fact, the world's youngest ring announcer for that match. And he said that him and his father were actually in the ambulance with you going to mm-hmm. the hospital. And he said his biggest memory is you all of a sudden kind of coming to and getting loud and saying, Dennis, I can't move my legs. And he said, Dennis started laughing and said, you can't move your legs because they're strapped down, dummy. Holy shit. Yeah, but that's what he said he remembers. <laughs> you thought that you had broken your neck and were paralyzed and you couldn't move your legs. Wow. You didn't realize they were strapped down to the gurney. Wow. I don't even remember that. That's crazy. And Tammy, you know, Tammy Sitch was there taking pictures and she has, you know, like she gave me still pictures of that, you know, many years ago when we were in WWE together. Oh, wow. So, wow. I didn't, re- I didn't even put two and two together yeah. when she was shooting there. Wow. Oh, yeah. On my first, my first show with Dennis, you know, that one with Lawler and Gilbert on top, they were there. Chris, and that was my first time meeting Chris and Tammy. Oh, yeah. I mean, Chris was like a son to Dennis. For all those years, he was, oh, yeah. everything Dennis did, Chris was there. I mean, he's really the biggest guy there is out there when it came to being a booster for Chris Candido uh, in his career. Oh, yeah. But coming out of this match... You take several months off because your your brain is in a fog. Do you stay in touch with Dennis? Is Dennis, you know, how sure. bad does he feel about what happened? Oh, so this is the part, right? So when we're having these matches in, in Jersey, there's a commission there, right? And, you know, uh, to wrestle, you have to be covered by, with the, you have to have an insurance policy. And so, you know, when all this happened and they go for the, you know, I go to the hospital and all of a sudden Dennis is sweating a little bit about the insurance. So (laughs) I'm pretty sure that there was no insurance policy. And like, you know, after the fact he doctored, you know, he did some, I'm pretty sure there was insurance fraud involved in that. Well, he he was an insurance salesman and he was an insurance salesman. Yeah. I think the statute of limitations may be (laughs) up (laughs) for anything Dennis may have done, but I would not be surprised if uh, there may have been some shenanigans to make sure you were taken care of uh, medically (laughs) coming out of that. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah. um, So, but then, you know, we decided to, uh, I can't remember how long after that we decided to uh, do the show in Minneapolis. And that's NWA Grand Slam, and that's such an interesting show. That's the one you have Terry Funk versus Road Warrior Hawk in the main event. And then the match that really, you know, and again, timeline-wise, it's so interesting because this is right when you start with the World Wrestling Federation. But the match with you and Sabu became like an instant, every tape trader needed that match. Every tape trader heard about that match and needed to see that match. Talk a little bit about how that show came together. Uh, Well, you know, we just do it. It just seemed like something that was, it seemed like a good idea. And that many, that Minneapolis, uh, you know, I just wanted to do that there. And Dennis was down for it. And Eddie was down for it, Eddie Sharkey. And, you know, like the local guys, some of the local guys were good at selling tickets. And, you know, like uh, Char, Char, Charlie Norris. Um, so we had him team with Masa Saito versus Nails and, uh, and the Hater. Um, the hater. I forgot and, about him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was in an AWA too. That was like, yeah. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, Terry, like this, this local guy named Tommy Ferrara, who was this really tough guy, small guy, but really tough, uh, Vietnam that he, he used to bounce at that grandma bees with the road warriors and, uh, and rude and all those guys. Yeah. And he had a reputation for being a badass. 
but really nice guy. He worked with Larry Cameron. Taz came in and worked with Brad Rangans. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and Humphrey Inc. was there. He was, he managed, you know, Sabu. Was Sabu already on your radar? Had you, cause obviously 93 is their year. He really became like the indie darling for everyone. I mean, you had to yeah. see his matches. You had to see him breaking tables. Oh, when, he was, when did yeah. you first see him? I mean, he was so different. When did he get on your radar? We, we were on the same flight going back to, uh, from Japan. And so I met him and the Sheik at the same time. And it was right after they had that match where they almost got burned to death. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, yeah. That, yeah. And so Sheik was all burnt up and shit. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But we connected, you know. And, you know, obviously we had mutual, you know, admiration for each other. And, you know, I look back at that match and both of us realized, like, that match wasn't that great. We just did some cool shit, you know. We didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the match, you know, uh, I don't know. I... Dennis gave me, he sent me 500 bucks to use, you know, to help promote. And I bought a couple of ads and like a local, you know, entertainment paper that you got for free called the Twin Cities Reader. Oh no, Creative Loafing. Sorry. And it was just a little tiny ad, but people saw it. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was cool to do that. And, but at the, right around that time is when I got called to come out to try out with uh, WWE and and also, uh, I got hired to go to New Japan at the same time. Yeah, you know, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is there's so much happening right around this period of time in the yeah. spring of 93 when you go to the WWF and you have several matches with several different names leading into the match with Razor Ramon on Raw. But yeah. leading into that, you have the match with Sabu that everyone amongst the tape traders is talking about. You have a deal with New Japan where you're going in there and obviously this is a period of time, it's a golden era for junior heavyweights in New Japan. Yeah. A little while after this, AAA would start running in North America with Ron Scholar and John Arezzi, the IWC. Wow, Ron Scholar. Wow. ECW wow. pops up first with Eddie and then with Paul Heyman. If you hadn't gone to the World Wrestling Federation in 93, how do you see the next few years of your career working out? What do you think you would have done? Well, so, right, um, I had connected, and, and a lot of those ECW originals were on that NWA Grand Slam show. You know, Sabu, Taz. The only one missing was RBD, you know, uh, Jerry, Jerry Lynn. And so, you know, like, we had all been talking, like, Sabu and I had been talking, and we'd all, like, discussed our our desire and our opinion that, like, there was this demand for, like, an adult, you know, themed wrestling promotion. And, you know, like something that we could watch and not like roll our eyes at. And, you know what I mean? You know, um, I'm still looking for that. And, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's what ECW turned into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And so I, I'm pretty sure I would have ended up in ECW. Do you think you would have done stuff with AAA considering you had worked with a lot of luchadors with Universal, even though that was a lot of the guys that were in CMLL, but considering the Lucha explosion, and eventually, you know, when Ron Scholar does the pay-per-view, they bring in some American guys to work on it. Do you think you would have ended up doing more Lucha stuff? Um, maybe. I would have wanted to, but I think when I, like, earlier, like, when I looked like that, and I looked so young, and I kind of, like, kind of weird looking, actually, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, Pena uh, wasn't a huge fan of my look. That was per Conan. Oh, wow. You know, later on. I didn't know that at the time, but later on, you know, I was told that. So I'm not sure. Going back to this period of time here, 
Do you remember talking to Dennis about getting a shot with the World Wrestling Federation or having an offer on the table from them? I don't remember. No. Did it all happen pretty quick with you getting the shot with the World Wrestling Federation? Yeah. Yeah, cause, I mean, do you want me to tell you want me to tell you the story real quick? Yeah, please. So uh, it's while I'm promoting the NWA Grand Slam show, right? I'm like every day out grinding and, you know, promoting, putting flyers up, uh, you know, all of this. And uh, all of a sudden I get a call, you know, on my home phone. Well, that's all we had back then, home phone. And it's Sergeant Slaughter. And he's telling me, yeah, we have the TV tapings after WrestleMania. And I'm still not putting two and two together, Ryan. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, why is Slaughter calling me? Like, does he, is he trying to get on this show? Like, <laughs> you know, that I'm promoting, you know, that's, but what yeah, that's what's going through my mind, Brian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, Hater. The Sarge is coming to town. <laughs> right. So, um, and then, you know, as he keeps talking, it dawns on me. I'm like, holy fucking shit. They want me to come have a tryout for WWF. And I already, you remember Kip Fry? Yeah, of course. So Kip Fry brought me in for a tryout in WCW. And then, and I had a hell of a match with Bob Cook at center stage. And then he got fired, like, basically the next week. And Bill Watts came in. And that wasn't Bill's idea. So Bill, I ended up not getting a job and it kind of, it really bummed me out because I thought of the two big companies, like I would fit in more in WCW, right? And that was the period of time where they launched their light heavyweight division with Liger and Pillman. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, that would have been the period of time to do it too. Yeah. Um, so when I got that call from WWE, I just, I forgot I even sent them tapes, but they, you know, they knew who I was from other things too, from the TV and all that, that I got, you know, global. So. Yeah, so I went, yeah, man. And so I went and had that trial in Phoenix, Arizona, and then the next night in Tucson. Were you nervous? What was it like being in a ring with... Uh, I was so nervous, man. I was so nervous. Had you been in a ring with real ropes up to that period of time? Well, yes, but uh, but there, it was just such a big ring, right? And just, I don't know, I, I was just really nervous, but I was able, I was... When it came to, like, the match, like, I was able to channel that nervousness. You know, not as much with the promos, but definitely with the matches. So, uh, yeah, no, and I, Tony Gurria let me pick my opponent. So, man, I, if they would have just said, hey, you have a tryout match with Virgil, I'd have been fucked. <laughs> Who would you pick? Luis Piccoli. Oh, there you go. Bam. There you go. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me a hell of a match, Brian. You can go watch it on Hidden Gems, by the way. Oh, okay. I'll check that out. I didn't know that was up. Yeah. I remember it. I remembered it in my mind being way better than it was when I watched it back years later. I remember when you first showed up on Raw, and I forget if you were just, no, you weren't the kid that week. I forget if Mm -hmm. different names each week, but I remember thinking, oh my God, it's the lightning kid. Surely they're not just going to beat him. And they did week after week. And I'm like, come on, they Mm -hmm. couldn't have brought him in to do this. And then. They actually gave yeah. me the push. It was so surprising. It was so cool. Well, so it just seemed like forever between the time I had to try out and the time that they called me. And so I'm sitting at home and I get another phone call at home and pick up the phone and it's Vince. And he's got Pat on the line with him. And they run the whole thing by me. You know, the whole freaking Razor storyline. You know, and, uh, and then I told him I had the, you know, the New Japan tour and, and uh, 
And so, uh, you know, we, we worked around that, you know, they had Scott challenge me, giving me challenges every week until I got back and it helped build it up even better. So. Well, you know, Sean, I got to thank you once again for being a part of episode 100 of the super podcast here today. It was fun talking to you about your career and Dennis, but more than that, it was fun just actually talking to you as a fan about other things. And I want to invite you back just to talk about anything, whether it's Florida, or Georgia, whatever you want to talk about. Let's do that again sometime. But as we wrap this segment up, what are your final thoughts about Dennis Carluzzo? What do you think his legacy is and how do you think he should best be remembered? So much more positive than negative when it comes to Dennis. You know, like you could, we could talk about, you know, the insurance little thing I talked about earlier or, you know, some of the benefit shows or whatever. But uh, as far as just as love for the business and, and some of the people like, like me, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it wasn't for Dennis, you know, and some other guys too. And uh, yeah, it's, I just think he should be recognized for, for the good things he did, you know, and, and as well with the NWA and trying to keep that alive. It was a very noble uh, effort on his part. Boom! There it is, Sean Waltman here on episode 100 of the 605 Super Podcast. We want to thank him for being... Hey, wait a minute. What do you mean? Wait a minute. What do you mean? Boom, Sean Waltman. Hey, man, come on. Didn't you get my damn messages? This is the 100th anniversary, uh, 100th show, and I left you a message, man. I left you a message. Look, man. Is this Bobby? The fuck? Yes, it's Bobby motherfucking Blaze, Brian Last. Who the fuck are you thinking with this accent? God damn it. I've called. I left you a message. And, and the deal is this. You have all these people making cameos. I come on a show. I talk about my Australian extravaganza date with fucking Sue the Shooter, Sue Shooter, well, whatever. You know, and then, you know, and I, I put over the podcast to 605. I'm like, you know, fuck those guys on all these other podcasts and this and that. Do, and, yeah. and I've been on here several times. I even co-hosted a couple times, and that was an honor. But fuck, now you're going to go boom and then expect me to fucking, uh, yeah, you even have Sean Waltman on here. No one's heard from him forever in a day. Well, no, hold uh, on. Hello, Sean. Thank you very much. Uh, although I have total respect and love for Sean, it's not his fault you don't fucking call me and put me back on the show, especially after I left a message for well, you. Well, hold on, Bobby. I did get your message. Uh, I got many messages about episode 100. <laughs> I am happy to have you here. And, and by the way, just for the record, you are one of our favorite guests here on the show, one of our favorite co-hosts on the show. And Sean Waltman just put you over. In the well, he should, segment. and you should have me on the show, and I thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for at least acknowledging that, man, that I'm one of the favorite guests on the show, and I appreciate I love the 605, man. There's, do, I, do I have heat or something? Someone, no, what no, the fuck, man? No, we love you, Bobby. There's no heat. We, we love you. We think about you. I'm happy to have you here at the end of episode 100. I don't know how you got on this line here, but how are, how are you? How are things in Ashland? How the fuck you think I'm doing this? Ashland fucking Kentucky, man. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm doing okay. I'm glad, I'm glad, look, I, I love the 605, man. I'm glad you, we smooth things over here. I, yeah, I don't have any heat with you guys. I don't want any fucking no, heat with you. No else. I love the podcast, man. I was just curious, you know? Bobby, we love you, and we look forward to having you back on one of the shows in the future. Now that we're done with episode 100, we have 101 and 102 and 103 and all these other shows that'll probably take 10 years to come out to plan, and I guarantee you'll be on them, but uh, until then, we got to say goodbye. We got to wrap up this wait, show. Wait, so. say goodbye. There's no fucking guarantees. You got me on right now, Brian. Talk to me. What do you mean goodbye? We're running a little bit late. This may even be a two-part episode. I don't know how much more time we have, Bobby. I kind of have to move on with the show. I have to end the show right now. Fuck.
Anything you want to say to the 605ers before you leave? Well, I thought you'd have hung up on me. Fuck, yeah, I want to say, hey, it's great to be back on the 605. I love the fucking podcast. Brian, I love you guys too, man. I'm glad to be on it. Thank you very much. And to the fans, hey, it's a pleasure to be back on this podcast. Thank you all very much. I'm glad you've got so many listeners, and I wish you much, much continued success. Thank you. Hey, Bobby? Yes. Season's greetings. Fuck you. (laughs) That's crazy. You know I hate that. God damn it. All right. Well, (laughs) thank you, Bobby, for being here. But uh, we'll now wrap things up here with episode 100 of the Super Podcast. I have a lot of people I want to thank here real quick at the end of the program. First, I want to thank the great team we have here at Arcadian Vanguard. Of course, Travis Heckel, the official art director of the 605 Super Podcast. Lou Kippelman, who has become a superstar producer after starting out as just a caller on, I think, a trivia contest here on the Super Podcast. Jay Snockerado, the director of show research. We recently welcomed Jake Hammer to the team. He's doing some artwork for some of the other shows. And Rick Lonnen, who has done some 3D artwork for Arcadian Vanguard. I appreciate everyone's help. Also, gotta thank the two guys who make the top 10 work. Of course, none other than the wrestling humorist, Scott Cornish, and everyone's pal, Howard Baum. These guys kill it each and every time with their characters, their voices, and making me laugh uncontrollably, just like they do all the listeners. So thank you so much to Scott and Howard for all of their work in making the top 10 what it is. Also want to say thanks to Peter Berkowitz, Cousin Alex Last, the Paper Bag Assassin, and of course, the kids and Swami. I want to thank all the historians who have participated in this show for all these episodes, and of course, all the various book publishers who have worked with us as we've done Book of the Week. Got to thank our good friend, Dolph Ramsor and Ramsor Records, the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling of the music industry for sponsoring this show and also just being a great friend to this show. Thank you, Dolph. Thank you, Ramsor Records. And of course, support Ramsor Records every time you get a chance. The Ruin Brothers, Amethyst Kia, the Avid Brothers, the National Reserve, Bombadil, whatever act you see on the road that's from Ramsor Records, support them. Check them out because they support us. Also want to thank my friend Stephen Pinu, the consigliere of the Cult of Cornet, and someone who has been a big friend of the 605 Super Podcast. I want to thank all the great guys we work with here on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Of course, breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, Jeff Bowdrin and Barry Rose. Stick to wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. I just said their names there in the name of the show. I want to thank Mike Mills for working with me and always being incredibly patient. Just really one of the good guys out there, Mike Mills, for working with me on the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast. Can't forget about the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, who has become such a great friend to me. I really appreciate and love working with Ron each and every week on the Studcast. John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now, which has become a hit show and is so much fun to go back and relive wrestling on Long Island. Of course, it's all of wrestling, but it's from Long Island. It's a way to relive my youth, and I know John has a great time doing it. And of course, that's John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now. Of course, Mike Sempervivi just recently joined the Arcadian Vanguard podcast family with his new show, the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast that he does with Roman Gomez. Really happy to have Mike and Roman on the team. Also want to say thanks to the guys who have worked with me on shows that are no longer on the network, like Austin Idol Live with Austin Idol. We had a great time doing that. And Kentucky Fried Wrestling with Scott Bowden. Got to thank David Bixenspan for starting this show with me way back when, four years ago. And of course, none other than Jim Cornette for all he has done to help this show. And of course, so many of you know me and this show specifically from my duties as Mr. Co-host 
on the Jim Cornette Experience or the host of Jim Cornette's drive through I really do appreciate all the support I've gotten from the Cult of Cornette. Really, really thankful for that. But here we are at the end of this show. I'm sure everyone's wondering, hey, you just put up two shows. When is episode 101? I promise you, episode 101 will be out before 2035. I give you my word. No, all kidding aside, more episodes are in the works right now. We hope you enjoy this 100th episode. Spectacular. This has to be like close to eight hours or something. I'm not even sure. I have to add this up after we're done recording. But thank you to everyone for supporting the Super Podcast. Of course, you can become a patron of the Super Podcast. Patreon.com slash Super Podcast. You get nothing. I promise you nothing. It's just the way you can support this show. If you want to make a donation to the production of the Super Podcast, you could do so. PayPal.me slash Super Podcast. If you're going to make any purchases on Amazon, use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon for all your purchases. It really helps to show out. Got to also make mention that if you want to get a 605 Super Podcast t-shirt, bumper sticker, mothership shirts, mothership bumper stickers, magnets, and the Arcadian Vanguard shirts are coming pretty soon, go to the official online store, tinyurl.com slash superpod store. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can follow the Super Podcast on Twitter at 605Pod. And of course, the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Super Podcast, the official online hub for the Super Podcast. I want to make mention that this episode of the 605 Super Podcast is dedicated to the memory of Robert James Sidford Brown, that is the father of our good friend Kurt Brown, who just recently passed away, and we want to dedicate this, the 100th episode of the Super Podcast, to his memory, and with that, the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all the guests that have appeared on episode 100, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!